Chapter 35 I looked at Lucio's still unconscious form. The stress of coordinating the search for Morgan for who knows how long before he showed up, coupled with the pains of her injuries and the sedative effect of the painkillers I'd given her, meant that she'd never stirred. Not when the gun went off, not when we'd been talking, and not when we'd all had to work together to get Morgan back up the stairs and out to the silver rolls. I made sure she was covered with a blanket. The moment I did, Mr. descended from his perch atop one of my bookcases and draped himself languidly over her lower legs, purring. I scratched my cat's ears and said, Keep her company. He gave me an inscrutable look that said maybe he would and maybe he wouldn't. Mr. was a cat, and cats generally considered it the obligation of the universe to provide shelter, sustenance, and amusement as required. I think Mr. considered it beneath his dignity to plan for the future. I got a pen and paper and wrote, Anastasia, I'm running out of time, and visitors are on the way. I'm going someplace where I might be able to create new options. You will understand shortly. I'm sorry I didn't bring you two. In your condition, you'd be of limited assistance. I know you don't like it, but you also know that I'm right. Help yourself to whatever you need. I hope that we'll talk soon. Harry. I folded the note and left it on the coffee table, where she'd see it upon waking. Then I bent over, kissed her hair, and left her sleeping safe in my home. I parked the rolls in the lot next to the marina. If we hurried, we could still get there before the witching hour, which would be the best time to try the invocation. Granted, trying it while injured and weary with absolutely no pre-ritual work was probably going to detract more than enough from the ritual to offset the premium timing. But I was beggared for time, and therefore not spoiling for choice. Allow me to reiterate, Murphy said, that I feel that this is a bad idea. So noted, I said, but will you do it? She stared out the Rolls' windshield at the vast expanse of Lake Michigan, a simple and enormous blackness against the lights of Chicago. Yes, she said. If there was anything else you could do, I said, I'd ask you to do it, I swear. I know, she said. It just pisses me off that there's nothing more I can add. Well, if it makes you feel any better, you're going to be in danger, too. Someone might decide to come by and try to use you against me. And if word gets back to the council about how much you know, they're going to blow a gasket. She smiled a bit. Yes, thank you. I feel less left out now that I know someone might kill me anyway. She shifted, settling her gun's shoulder harness a little more comfortably. I am aware of my limits. That isn't the same as liking them. She looked back at me. How are you going to reach the others? I'd really rather not say. The less you know... The safer I am? No, actually, I said. The less you know, the safer I am. Don't forget that we might be dealing with people who can take information out of your head, whether you want to give it or not. Murphy folded her arms and shivered. I hate feeling helpless. Yeah, I said. Me too. How's he doing, Molly? Still asleep, Molly reported from the back of the limo. I don't think his fever is any higher, though. She reached out and touched Morgan's forehead with the back of one hand. Morgan's arm rose up and sharply slapped her arm away at the wrist, though he never changed the pace of his breathing or otherwise stirred. Christ, it was literally a reflex action. I shook my head and said, Let's move, people. 
Molly and I wrestled the wounded warden into his wheelchair again. He roused enough to help a little and sagged back into sleep as soon as he was seated. Molly slung the strap of my ritual box over her shoulder and started pushing Morgan across the parking lot to the marina docks. I grabbed a couple of heavy black nylon bags. And what do we have in there? Murphy asked me. Party favors, I said. You're having a party out there? I turned my eyes to the east and stared out over the lake. We couldn't see the island from Chicago, even on a clear day, but I knew it was there, a sullen and threatening presence. Yeah, I said quietly. A real party. Practically everyone who'd wanted to kill me lately would be there. Murphy shook her head. All of this over one man. Over a hero of the council, I said quietly. Over the most feared man on the wardens. Morgan nearly took out the Red King himself. A vampire maybe 4,000 years old, surrounded by some disgustingly powerful retainers. If he hadn't bugged out, Morgan would have killed him. You almost said something nice about him, Murphy said. Not nice, I said, but I can acknowledge who he is. Morgan has probably saved more lives than you could count over the years. And he killed innocents, too. I'm certain of it. He's been the council's executioner for at least twenty or thirty years. He's obsessive and tactless and ruthless and prejudiced. He hates with a holy passion. He's a big, ugly, vicious attack dog. Murphy smiled faintly. But he's your attack dog. He's our attack dog, I echoed. He'd give his life without hesitation if he thought it was necessary. Murphy watched Molly pushing Morgan down the dock. God, it's got to be awful to know that you're capable of disregarding life so completely. Someone else's, yours, doesn't really matter which. To know that you're so readily capable of taking everything away from a human being, that's got to eat away at him. For so long, there's not a lot left, maybe, I said. I think you're right about the killer acting in desperation. The situation got way too confused and complicated for it to be a scheme. It's just a big confluence of all kinds of chickens coming home to roost. Maybe that will make it simpler to resolve. World War I was kind of the same deal, I said. But then it was sort of hard to point the finger at any one person and say, that guy did it. World War II was simpler that way. You've been operating under the assumption that there is someone to blame, Murphy said. Only if I can catch him, I shook my head. If I can't, well... Murphy turned to me. She reached up with both hands, put them on the sides of my head, and pulled me down a little. Then she kissed my forehead and my mouth, neither quickly nor with passion. Then she let me go and looked up at me, her eyes worried and calm. You know that I love you, Harry. You're a good man, a good friend. I gave her a lopsided smile. Uh, don't go all gushy on me, Murph. She shook her head. I'm serious. Don't get yourself killed. Kick whatever ass you need to in order to make that happen. She looked down. My world would be a scarier place without you in it. I chewed my lip for a second, feeling very awkward. Then I said, I'd rather have you covering my back than anyone in the world, Karen. I cleared my throat. You might be the best friend I ever had. She blinked several times and shook her head. Okay, this is going somewhere awkward. Maybe we should take it from whatsoever ass, I suggested. She nodded. Find him. Kick his ass. That is the plan, I confirmed. 
Then I bent down and kissed her forehead and her mouth gently and leaned my forehead against hers. Love you too, I whispered. Her voice tightened. You jerk. Good luck. You too, I said. Keys are in the ignition. Then I straightened, hitched up the heavy bags, and started walking toward the docks. I didn't look at her as I walked away. I didn't look back. That way we could both pretend that I hadn't seen her crying. My brother owned an ancient battered commercial fishing boat. He told me it was a trawler, or maybe he said troller, or schooner. It was one of those, unless it wasn't. Apparently nautical types get real specific and fussy about the fine distinctions that categorize the various vessels. But since I'm not nautical, I don't lose much sleep over the misuse of the proper term. The boat was 42 feet long and could have been a stunt double for Quint's fishing boat in Jaws. It desperately needed a paint job, as the white of its hull had long since faded to gray and smoke-smudged black. The only fresh paint on it was a row of letters on the bow, which read, Water Beetle. Getting Morgan on board was a pain, literally in his case. We got him settled onto the bed in the little cabin and brought all the gear aboard. After that, I climbed up onto the bridge, started the engines with my copy of the Water Beetle's key, and immediately realized I hadn't cast off the lines. I had to go back down to the deck to untie us from the dock. Look, I just told you, I'm not nautical. Leaving the marina wasn't hard. Thomas had a spot that was very near the open waters of the lake. I almost forgot to flick on the lights, but got them clicked on before we got out of the marina and onto the open water. Then I checked the compass next to the boat's wheel, turned us a degree or two south of due east, and opened up the engine. We started out over the blackness of the lake, the boat's engines making a rather subdued, throaty, lub-lub-dub-lub sound. The boat had originally been built for charter use in the open sea, and it had some muscle. The water was calm tonight, and the ride remained smooth as we rapidly built up speed. I felt a little nervous about the trip. Over the past year, Thomas and I had gone out to the island several times so that I could explore the place. He'd been teaching me how to handle the boat, but this was my first solo voyage. After a few minutes, Molly came partway up the short ladder to the bridge and stopped. Do I need to ask permission to come up here or something? Why would you? I asked. She considered. It's what they do on Star Trek? Good point, I said. Permission granted, Ensign. Aye, aye, she said, and came up to stand next to me. She frowned at the darkness to the east and cast a wary glance back at the rapidly fading lights of the city. So, we're going out to the weird island, the one with that big ley line running through it? Yep, I said. Where my dad got... I tried not to remember how badly Michael Carpenter had suffered when he had gone there with me. Crippled, I said. Yeah. She frowned quietly. I heard him talking to my mom about the island. But when I tried to go look it up, I couldn't find it on any of the maps, not even in the libraries. Yeah, I said. From what I hear, bad things happened to everyone who went out there. There used to be some kind of port facility for fishing and merchant traffic, big as a small town, but it was abandoned. Sometime in the 19th century, the city completely expunged the place from its records. Why? Didn't want anyone to go out there, I said. If they merely passed a law, they knew that sooner or later some moron would go there, out of sheer contrariness. So they pretty much unmade the place, at least officially. 
And in more than a century, no one's ever seen it? That dark ley line puts off a big field of energy, I said. It makes people nervous. Not insane or anything, but it's enough to make them subconsciously avoid the place, if they aren't making a specific effort to get there. Plus, there are stone reefs around a big portion of the island, and people tend to swing wide around it. She frowned. Couldn't that be a problem for us? I'm pretty sure I know where to get through them. Pretty sure? Pretty sure. Maybe she looked a little paler. Oh, she said. Good. And we're going there, why? The Sanctum Invocation, I said. The island has a kind of spirit to it, an awareness. A genius loci, she said. I nodded approval. Exactly that. And fed by that ley line, it's a big, strong one. It doesn't much care for visitors, either. It's arranged to kill a bunch of them. Molly blinked. And you want to do a sanctum invocation there? Oh, hell no, I said. I don't want to, but I've got to find some way to give myself an edge tomorrow, or it's all over but the crying. She shook her head slowly. Then she fell silent until we actually reached the island a little while later. It was dark, but I had enough moonlight and starlight to find the buoy Thomas and I had placed at the entry through the reef. I swung the water beetle through it and began following the coastline of the island until I passed a second buoy and guided the boat into the small floating dock we'd constructed. I managed to get the vessel next to the dock without breaking anything and hopped off with lines in hand to tie it off. I looked up to find Molly holding my ritual box. She passed it to me and I nodded to her. If this works, it should take me an hour or so, I told her. Stay with Morgan. If I'm not back by dawn, untie the boat, start the engine, and drive it back to the marina. It's not too different from a car for what you'll be doing. She bit her lip and nodded. What then? she asked. Get to your dad. Tell him I said that you need to disappear. He'll know what to do. What about you? she asked. What will you be doing? I slipped the strap to the ritual box over one shoulder, took up my staff, and started toward the interior of the island. Not much, I said over my shoulder. I'll be dead. Chapter 36 Grimm's Fairy Tales, a compilation of the most widely known scary stories of Western Europe, darn near always feature a forest as the setting. Monstrous and terrifying things live there. When the hero of a given story sets out, the forest is a place of danger, a stronghold of darkness. And there's a good reason for it. It can be freaking frightening to be walking a forest in the dark. And if that isn't enough, it's dangerous to boot. You can't see much. There are sounds around you, from the sigh of wind in the trees to the rustle of brush caused by a moving animal. Invisible things touch you suddenly and without warning. Tree branches, spider webs, leaves, brush. The ground shifts and changes constantly, forcing you to compensate with every step as the earth below you rises or dips suddenly. Stones trip up your feet. So do ground-hugging vines, thorns, branches, and roots. The dark conceals sinkholes, embankments, and the edges of rock shelves that might drop you six inches or six feet. In stories, you read about characters running through a forest at night. It's a load of crap. Or maybe it's feasible in really ancient pine forests where the ground is mostly clear. 
or in those vast oak forests where they love to shoot Robin Hood movies and adaptations of Shakespeare's work. But if you get into the thick native brush in the U.S., you're better off finding a big stick and breaking your own ankle than you are trying to sprint through it blind. I made my way cautiously uphill, passing through the ramshackle, decaying old buildings of what had been a tiny town, just up the slope from the dock. The trees had reclaimed it long since, growing up through floors and outbroken old windows. There were deer on the island, though God knows how they got there. It's big enough to support quite a few of the beautiful animals. I'd found signs of foxes, raccoons, skunks, and wildcats, plus the usual complement of rabbits, squirrels, and groundhogs. There were a few wild goats there as well probably descendants of escapees from the former human residents of the island. I began to sense the hostile presence of the island before I'd gone twenty steps. It began as a low, sourceless anxiety, one I barely noticed against the backdrop of all the perfectly rational anxiety I was carrying. But as I continued up the hill, it got worse, maturing into a fluttery panic that made my heart beat faster and dried out my mouth. I steeled myself against the psychic pressure and continued at the same steady pace. If I let it get to me, if I wound up panicking and bolted, I could end up a victim of the normal threats of a forest at night. In fact, that was probably what the island had in mind, so to speak. I gritted my teeth and continued, while my eyes slowly adjusted to the night, revealing the shapes of trees and rocks and brush and making it a little easier to move safely. It was a short hike to the mountain's summit. The final bit of hill was at an angle better than 45 degrees, and the only way one could climb it safely was to use the old steps that had been carved into the rock face. They had felt weirdly familiar and comfortable the first time I went up them. That hadn't changed noticeably in subsequent visits. Even now, I could go up them in the dark, my legs and feet automatically adjusting to the slightly irregular spacing of the steps without needing to consult my eyes. Once at the top of the stairs, I found myself on a bald crown of a hilltop. A tower stood there, an old lighthouse made of stone. Well, about three-quarters of it stood there anyway. Some of it had collapsed, and the stones had been cannibalized and used to construct a small cottage at the foot of the tower. The silent presence of the island was stronger here, a brooding and dangerous thing that did not care for visitors. I looked around the moonlit hilltop, nodded once, marched over to the flat area in front of the cottage, and planted my ritual box firmly on the ground. What I was about to attempt had its beginnings in ancient shamanic practice. A given tribe shaman or wise one or spirit caller or whatever would set out into the wild near home and seek out a place of presence and power such as this one. Depending on the culture involved, the practitioner would then invoke the spirit of the place and draw its full attention. The ritual that happened next wasn't quite an introduction or a challenge or a staking of a claim on the land or a battle of wills, but it incorporated elements of all of those things. If the ritual was successful, it would form a sort of partnership or peerage between the shaman and the genius loci in question. If it wasn't successful, well, 
It's a bad thing to have the full attention of a dangerous spirit that can exert control over the environment around you. This spirit, bolstered by the dark energy of the ley line that ran beneath the tower, was more than capable of driving me insane or recycling me into food for its animals and trees. And yet here I am about to pop you in the nose, I muttered. Am I daring or what? I set my staff down and opened the box. First, the circle. Using a short whisk broom, I quickly cleared dirt and dust from the rock shelf beneath me in an area about three feet across. Then I used a wooden-armed chalk compass, like those used in geometry classrooms, to draw out a perfect circle on the stone in faintly luminescent glow-in-the-dark chalk. The circle didn't have to be perfectly round in order to work, but it was a little bit more efficient, and I wanted every advantage I could get. Next, I got five white candles out of the box and checked a magnetic compass so that I could align them properly. The compass needle spun wildly and aimlessly. The turbulence of the nearby ley line must have been throwing it off. I put the thing away and sighted on the North Star, setting the candles out at the five points of a pentagram, its tip aligned with due north. After that, I got out an old and genuine K-Bar U.S. Marine combat knife, along with a plain silver chalice and a silver former Salvation Army bell with a black wooden handle. I double-checked each of the objects and the circle, then stepped a few feet away and undressed completely, losing my rings, bracelet, and all my other magical gear, except for the silver pentacle amulet around my neck. I didn't have to do the ritual sky-clad, but it reduced the chances of any of the enchantments on my gear, causing interference by a small, if significant, amount. All the while, the pressure from the island's awareness kept doubling and redoubling. My head started pounding, which was just lovely in combination with the fresh bumps on it. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up. Mosquitoes began to whine and buzz around me, and I shuddered to think of the places that were going to get bitten while I did this. I went to the circle, checked everything again, got a box of matches out of the ritual box, and then knelt down in the circle. Yes, I could have lit them with a spell, but again, that would have left an energy signature on the candles that could potentially interfere. So, I did it the old-fashioned way. As I struck the first match and leaned down to light the northernmost candle, a screech owl let out an absolutely alien-sounding cry from so nearby that I almost jumped out of my skin. I barely kept from losing my balance and smudging the circle. Cheap shot, I muttered. Then I lit a fresh match and began again. I lit the five candles, then turned to face the north and reached out to gently touch the chalk circle. A mild effort of will closed it, and the psychic pressure I'd been feeling for the last half hour or more abruptly vanished. I closed my eyes and began to regulate my breathing, relaxing my muscles group by group, focusing my thoughts on the task at hand. I felt my will begin to gather. Outside my circle, the owl shrieked again. A wildcat let out an ear-splitting yowl. A pair of foxes set up a yipping, howling corral in the brush. I ignored them until I felt that I had gathered all the strength I could. Then I opened my eyes and picked up the bell. I rang it sharply once and filled my voice with the power of my will. 
I am not some clueless mortal you can frighten away, I said to the hilltop. I am Magi, one of the wise, and I am worthy of your respect. A wind came rushing up from the lake. The trees muttered and sighed with the force of it, a sound like angry surf, enormous and omnipresent. I rang the bell again. Hear me, I called. I am Magi, one of the wise, and I know your nature and your strength. The wind continued to rise about me, making the candles flicker. With an effort of will, I steadied their flames and felt the temperature of my body drop a couple of degrees in reaction. I set the bell down, took up the knife, and drew it along the knuckles of my left hand, opening a thin line in my flesh. Blood welled up immediately. I put the knife down, took up the chalice, and let my blood trickle into the cup. And as I did, I used the one thing that made me think it was possible, just possible, to pull this thing off. Soul fire. During a case a little more than a year ago, an archangel had decided to invest in my future. Uriel had replaced the power I'd lost when I had resisted the temptations offered me by one of the fallen. The demon's hellfire had been literally hell on wheels for destructive purposes. Soulfire was apparently the angelic equivalent of the same force, the flip side of the coin. Fires of creation rather than those of destruction. I hadn't experimented with it much. Soulfire used my own life force as a source of energy. If I poured too much into any given working, it could kill me. As the blood dripped down into the chalice, I reached out to the place in my mind where the archangel's gift resided and poured soul fire into my blood. Silver-white sparks began to stream from the cuts and accompanied the blood down into the chalice, filling it with supernatural power far in excess of what my blood, a common source of magical energy, contained on its own. I lifted the chalice in my right hand and the silver bell in my left. Droplets of blood and flickering sparks of soul fire fell on the silver, and when it rang again, the sound was piercing, the tone so perfect and pure that it could have shattered glass. Hear me, I called, and my soul fire enhanced voice rang out in a similar fashion, sharp and precise, strong and resonant. Small stones fell from a broken section of the tower wall. I am Magi, one of the wise. I make of my blood this gift to you, to honor your strength and to show my respect. Come forth. I set the bell down and prepared to break the circle and release the spell. Come forth. I bellowed even louder. Come forth. I simultaneously broke the circle, released my will, and poured out the scarlet and silver fire of my enhanced blood onto the stone of the hilltop. Animals of the forest erupted into screams and howls. Birds exploded from their sleeping places to swarm in the skies above me. Half a dozen tree branches snapped altogether in the rushing wind, the sounds crackling over the stony hilltop like rifle shots. And an instant later, a bolt of viridian lightning crashed down out of a completely clear sky and struck the ground in the center of the empty shell of the old lighthouse. There was little enough in the lighthouse that could burn, but some brush and grasses grew there. 
Their light danced and flickered on the walls, if only for a few seconds, and then suddenly revealed an indistinct and solid shape inside. I took a slow breath and rose to my feet, facing the lighthouse. It was a rare thing for such an entity to take material form, and I had thought it so unlikely to happen that I had scarcely bothered to plan for it. The woods all around me rustled, and I darted my eyes left and right without moving. Animals had appeared. Deer were the largest and most obvious, the stag's horns wicked in the moonlight. Foxes and raccoons were there, too, as well as rabbits and squirrels and all manner of woodland creatures, predator and prey alike. They were all staring at me with obvious awareness that was far more than they should have had, and all of them were eerily still. I did my best not to think about what it might be like to be overrun and chewed to death by hundreds of small wild animals. I turned my eyes back to the tower and waited. The dark shape, indistinct in the heavy shadows, moved and came closer until it looked like something that was not quite human. Its shoulders were too wide, its stance too crooked, and it walked with a slow, limping gait, drag, thump, drag, thump. It was covered with what appeared to be a voluminous dark cloak. Oh, and it was eleven or twelve feet tall. Yikes. Green eyes, the same color as the bolt of unnatural lightning, burned inside the darkness of the cloak's hood. They faced me and flashed brighter once, and a gust of wind washed down onto me, almost taking me from my feet. I gritted my teeth against it and endured, until a moment later it died away. I looked at the dark shape for a moment, and then nodded. Right, I said. I get you. I reached for my will, infused it with a meager portion of soul fire, and hurled my right hand forward, calling... Vintas Servitas! Wind festooned with ribbons of silver light rushed from my outstretched hand, crashing into the figure. It didn't move the thing. The entity was far too massive for that, but the wind cast the gray cloak back as sharply as a ship's flag caught in a gale, making the fabric snap and pop. My evocation died away, and the entity's cloak settled down again. Once more, its eyes flashed, and the earth beneath my feet and slightly behind me erupted, solid rock splitting and cracking. Sharp shards flew up from the supernatural impact, and I instantly felt half a dozen hot, stinging cuts on my legs and back. Ow, I muttered. At least they weren't in any tender spots, I guess. Then again I summoned my will and soul fire, this time focusing on the earth near the entity. Geodas! I shouted, and the earth beneath the entity twisted and screamed, suddenly opening into a sinkhole. The entity never moved. It just stood there on empty air, as if I hadn't literally pulled the ground out from under it. The entity's eyes kindled to life again, but this time I had anticipated it. Flame gathered before it in a lance and rushed toward me, leaving a coating of sudden frost and ice on the ground beneath it as it came. But my own will had reached down into the ground below me and found the water from the stream that fed the cottage's little well. I drew it up through the cracks the entity had created in the rock, 
taking advantage of the work it had done, and with a shout of, Aquilevitas! A curtain of water rose up to meet the onrushing flame, and they consumed one another, leaving only darkness and a cloud of steam. I lifted a hand, and my soul fire enhanced will, and shouted, Fuego! A column of silver and blue flame, as thick as my chest, roared across the ground and struck the entity hard in the center of its mass. It rocked back at the impact. Not much, maybe half an inch, though that column of fire would have blown apart a brick wall. But I had moved it that half an inch, there was no doubt about that. Weariness was slowly seeping into my limbs as the entity stared at me. I forced myself to stand straight and face the being without blinking and without looking weak. You want to keep it up? I asked it aloud. I could do this all night. The entity stared at me. Then it walked closer. Drag, thump, drag, thump. I was not at all scared, even a little. The only reason my mouth was so dry was all that fire that had been flying around. It stopped five feet away, towering over me. And I realized that it was waiting. It was waiting for me to act. My heart pounded harder as I bowed my head respectfully. I don't know why I said what I did exactly. I just know that my instincts screamed at me that it was the right thing to say my voice infused with my will. I am Harry Dresden, and I give thee a name, honored spirit. From this day on, be thou called Demon Reach. Its eyes flashed, burning more brightly, sending out tendrils and streams of greenish fire in a nimbus around its head. Then Demon Reach mirrored my gesture, bowing its own head in reply. When it looked up, its head turned briefly toward the cottage. Then the wind rose again, and darkness fluttered over the hilltop. When it passed, I was alone, the hilltop empty of entity and animal alike. I was also freezing. I staggered toward my clothes and gathered them up, shaking so hard that I thought I might just collapse on the ground. As I rose with my gear in my arms, I saw a light flickering in the cottage. I frowned and shambled over to it. The door, like the windows, had long since rotted away, and there was very little roof to speak of. But the cottage did have one thing in it that still functioned. A fireplace. A neat stack of fallen wood was burning in the fireplace, putting off a cheery warmth, its golden flames edged with flickers of green at their very edges. I blinked at the fire for a moment, and then made my way over to it, reveling in the warmth as I dressed again. I glanced up, searching for that alien presence. I found it immediately, still there, still alien, still dangerous, though it no longer seemed determined to drive me away. I slid will into my voice as I said simply, Thank you. The gentle wind that sighed through the trees of Demon Reach may have been a reply, or maybe not. Chapter 37 I didn't return to the dock by the same route I'd taken to the tower. There was a much shorter, easier way, down what looked like a sheer rock wall. It proved to have an ancient, narrow gully worn into the stone, almost completely hidden by brush. 
The gully's floor had a thin layer of silt in it, leaving little room for plants to grow, and was as easy to traverse as a sidewalk, even in the dark. Following it brought me back to the island's shoreline in half the time it had taken to go up. I didn't wonder how I'd known about the path until I stepped out of the woods and saw the dock again. I hadn't been that way before. I hadn't known it existed. Yet when I decided to take that trail, the knowledge had come to me as completely and immediately as if I had lived there for years. Pure information. I paused and looked around me. I knew not to walk directly to the dock from where I stood. There was a large hornet's nest in the earth at the base of a fallen tree, and I would risk arousing their anger if I accidentally crushed it while walking by. I also knew that a grumpy old skunk was trundling its way back to its den, thirty yards in the other direction, and that it would happily douse me with musk if I came anywhere close. I glanced over my shoulder, back toward the tower, casting out my supernatural senses. The island's awareness continued being that same constant presence I'd felt ever since leaving the tower. I considered going back, taking the old stairs this time, to see what would happen, and immediately I understood that there was a cottonmouth that made its home in a large crack on the twenty-sixth step. If I delayed the trip until later in the morning, the snake would be out on the stones, sunbathing to build up its body heat for the day. The dawn was approaching, and the sky had begun to lighten from black to blue. I could see the tower standing, lonely and wounded, but unbowed, a black shape against the sky. Demon Reach began to awaken to the first trills of songbirds. I walked down to the dock, thoughtfully, and walked out to where the water beetle was moored. Molly, I called. Feet pounded on the deck, and Molly burst up out of the ship's cabin. She flew across the distance between us and nearly tackled me into the water on the far side of the dock with the enthusiasm of her hug. Molly, the daughter of two ferocious warriors, was no wilting violet. My ribs creaked. You came back, she said. I was so worried. You came back. Hey, hey, I need my rib cage, kid. I said, but I hugged her in return for a quiet moment before straightening. Did it work? she asked. I'm not exactly sure. God, I need something to drink. We both boarded the water beetle, and I went below and removed a can of Coke from a cabinet. It was warm, but it was liquid, and more important, it was Coke. I guzzled the can's contents and tossed it into the trash bin. How's Morgan? I asked. Awake, Morgan rumbled. Where are we? Demon Reach, I said. It's an island in Lake Michigan. Morgan grunted without emphasis. Lucio told me about it. Oh, I said. Oh, good. Miss Carpenter says you were attempting a sanctum invocation. Yeah, Morgan grunted. You're here. It worked. I think so, I said. I'm not sure. Why not? I shook my head. I thought that when a bond was formed with the land in question, it gave you access to its latent energy. Yes. Which meant that my magic would be subsidized by the island whenever I was here. I'd get a lot more bang for my buck, so to speak. I thought that was all it did. Generally, Morgan said. I saw him turn his head toward me in the dim cabin. Why? What else has happened? 
I took a deep breath and told him about the hidden trail, the hornets and the skunk. Morgan sat up in his bunk by the time I got to the end. He leaned forward intently. You're sure you aren't mistaken? Confrontations with a genius loci can leave odd after-effects behind. Hang on, I said. I went back to the woods where I knew the hornets were and found their nest in short order. I retreated without crushing anything and went back to the boat. Yeah, I said, I'm sure. Morgan sank back onto the bunk as if he was being slowly deflated. Merciful God, he said. Intellectus. I felt my eyebrows go up. You're kidding. Molly muttered a couple of candles to light so that we could see each other clearly. Intel what's she asked me. Intellectus, I said. Um, it's a mode of existence for a very few rare and powerful supernatural beings. Angels have it. I'm willing to bet old Mother Winter and Mother Summer have it. For beings with intellectus, all reality exists in one piece, one place, one moment, and they can look at the whole thing. They don't seek or acquire knowledge. They just know things. They see the entire picture. I'm not sure I get that, Molly said. Morgan spoke. A being with intellectus does not understand, for example, how to derive a complex calculus equation because it doesn't need the process. If you showed him a problem and an equation, he would simply understand it and skip straight to the answer without need to think through the logical steps of solving the problem. It's omniscient? Molly asked, her eyes wide. Morgan shook his head. Not the same thing. The being with intellectus has to be focused on something via consideration in order to know it, whereas an omniscient being knows all things at all times. Isn't that pretty close? Molly asked. Intellectus wouldn't save you from an assassin's bullet if you didn't know someone wanted to kill you in the first place, I said. To know it was coming, you'd first need to consider the question of whether or not an assassin might be lurking in a dark doorway or on top of a bell tower. Morgan grunted agreement. And since beings of intellectus so rarely understand broader ideas of cause and effect, they can be unlikely to realize that a given event might be an indicator of an upcoming assassination attempt. He turned to me. Though that's a terrible metaphor, Dresden. Most beings like that are immortal. They'd be hard-pressed to notice bullets, much less feel threatened by them. So, Molly said, nodding, it might be able to know anything it wants to know, but it still has to ask the right questions, which is always harder than people think it is. Yeah, I said, exactly. And now you've got this intellectus, too? I shook my head. It's demon reach that has it. It stopped when I got out over the water. I tapped my finger against my forehead. I've got nothing going on in here at the moment. I realized what I had said just as the last word left my mouth and glanced at Morgan. He lay on the bunk with his eyes closed. His mouth was turned up in a small smile. Too easy. Molly fought not to grin. Morgan pursed his lips thoughtfully. Can the entity feed you any other information, Dresden? The identities of those behind Lafortier's murder, for example. I almost hit myself in the head with the heel of my hand, 
I should have thought of that already. I'll let you know, I said, and went back to the shore. Demon Reach sensed me at the same time as I perceived it, and the mutual sensation felt oddly like a hand wave of acknowledgement. I frowned thoughtfully and looked around the island, concentrating on the issue of Lafortier's killer. Nothing sprang to mind. I tried half a dozen other things. Who was going to win the next World Series? Could I get the Blue Beetle out of Impound yet? How many books had Mr. knocked off my shelves in my absence? Zip. So I thought about hornets' nests, and instantly felt certain that there were thirty-two of them spread around the hundred and fifty or so acres of the island, and that they were especially thick near the grove of apple trees on the island's northern side. I went back to the boat and reported. Then it only exists upon the island itself, Morgan rumbled. Like any other genius loci. This one must be bloody ancient to have attained a state of intellectus, even if it is limited to its own shorelines. Could be handy, I noted. Morgan didn't open his eyes, but bared his teeth in a wolf's smile. Certainly. If your foes were considerate enough to come all the way out here to meet you. Could be handy, I repeated firmly. Morgan arched an eyebrow and gave me a sharp look. Come on, grasshopper, I said to Molly. Cast off the lines. You're about to learn how to drive the boat. By the time we made it back to the marina, the sun had risen. I coached Molly through the steps of bringing the water beetle safely into dock, even though I wasn't exactly Horatio Hornblower myself. We managed to do it without breaking or sinking anything, which is what counts. I tied off the boat and went onto the dock. Molly followed me anxiously to the rail. No problem here, grasshopper. Take her out for about ten minutes in a random direction that you choose, then turn off the engine and wait. I'll signal you when I'm ready for you to pick me up. Are you sure we shouldn't stay together or something? she asked anxiously. I shook my head. Tracking spells can't home in too well over water, I said. And you'll know if someone's coming for you from a mile away, literally. Keep Morgan out there, and you should be as safe as anywhere. She frowned. What if he gets worse? Use your noggin, kid. Do whatever you think is most likely to keep you both alive. I started untying the line. I shouldn't be gone more than a couple of hours. If I don't show, the plan is the same as when I went up to the tower. Get yourself vanished. She swallowed. And Morgan? Make him as comfortable as you can, and leave him. She stared at me for a minute. Really? If I get taken out, I don't think you'll be able to protect him, I said, as matter-of-factly as I could. Or catch the real bad guy, so run like hell, and let him look out for himself. I saw her think that over, and she smiled slightly. It would really humiliate him if he found himself under the protection of a girl, an apprentice, and a possible warlock to boot. I nodded. True. Molly pursed her lips thoughtfully. That might be worth staying for. Kid, I said, the smart thing for you to do, if it all goes sour, is to run. Smart, she said, but not right. I studied her soberly. You sure? Because there's a world of hurt waiting to fall. She nodded, her face pale. I'll try. And she would.
I could see that in her eyes. She knew better than most exactly how dangerous such a thing would be for her, and it clearly terrified her. But she would try. Then if I'm taken off the board, see Murphy, I said. She knows everything I do about the case. Listen to her. She's smart, and you can trust her. All right, she said. I tossed the mooring lines back on board. Get a move on. I started walking down the dock. Behind me, Molly called. Harry? What signal are you going to use? You'll know it, I called back. I left the docks in search of the tool that could rip apart this tangled web of suspicion, murder, and lies. I found it in the marina's parking lot. A payphone. Lara answered on the second ring. Wraith? Dresden, I said. What have you got for me? Oh, to have straight lines like that more often, she said, her tone wry. What makes you think I have anything for you? Because I've got something to trade. Men generally seem to think that way. Most of them tend to overestimate the value of their wares. Pheromone, lass, I said. Can we have the rest of this conversation above the waistline? She let out that rich, throaty laugh of hers, and my hormones sounded the charge. I ignored them. Stupid hormones. Very well, she said. It should interest you to know that the money deposited in Warden Morgan's account came from a dummy corporation called Windfall. Dummy organization, I asked. Who owns it? I do, she said calmly. I blinked. Since you're sharing this information, I take it that it happened without your knowledge. You are quite correct, she said. A Mr. Kevin Aramis is the corporation's manager. He's the only one, other than myself, with the authority to move that much money around. I thought furiously. Whoever aced Lafortier hadn't just intended the council to implode. He, or they, had also gone to a lot of trouble to incite hostility with the white court. Hell's bells. My imagination treated me to a prophetic nightmare. Morgan fights against the injustice of his frame. Hostilities erupt, creating strife between various factions of wizards. The council eventually runs down the money trail, discovers Lara on the other end, and the council seizes upon the opportunity to unify the factions again, thanks to a common enemy. Hostilities with the vampires start fresh. The Red Court sees the poorly coordinated council exposing itself in battle with the White Court and pounces, breaking the back of the council. And after that, it would all be over but the heroic last stands. Hell's bells indeed. We're being played against one another, I said. That was my conclusion as well. A couple more pieces clicked into place. Madeline, I said. She got to this Aramis guy and coerced him into betraying you. Yes, Lara hissed. Barely suppressed, wholly inhuman rage filled her level, controlled voice. When I catch up to her, I'm going to tear out her entrails with my bare hands. Which took care of my hormone problem. I shivered. I'd seen Lara in action. I could never decide if it had been one of the most beautiful, terrifying things I'd ever seen, 
or if it was one of the most terrifying, beautiful things I'd ever seen. You might try looking at the Hotel Sachs, room 1233, I said. If I'm right, you're going to find Mr. Aramis's body there. Madeline's working for someone, a man. She didn't say anything that would help identify him. You should also know that she has hired the services of a mercenary named Binder. Not exactly a rocket scientist, but smart enough to be dangerous. Lara was silent for a second. Then she said, How did you learn this? Shockingly, with magic. I heard her speaking to someone in the room with her. Then she got back on the phone and said, If Aramis is dead, Madeline has tied up the loose end in her plan. It will be impossible to provide credible evidence that I did not in fact pay for Lafortier's murder. Yeah, that's why she did it. I heard her make a displeased sound, but it was still ladylike. What do we intend to do about this, Harry? Do you have a nice dress? Pardon? I found myself grinning maniacally. I'm throwing a party. Thomas's phone rang four times before the connection opened. There was a moment of silence. Then Thomas spoke, his voice raw and ragged. Harry? My heart just about stopped beating to hear my brother's voice. Thomas? How's it going? Oh, he rasped. I'm just hanging around. I've seen Thomas in agony before. He sounded exactly like this. The phone emitted random noises, and then the yowl-purring voice of the skinwalker came over the line. He is here. He is alive. For now. Give me the doomed warrior. Okay, I said. There was a moment of silent consternation from the far end of the phone. Bring him to me, it said. Nah. That isn't going to happen. What? You're coming to me. Do you wish me to end his life this instant? Frankly, Shaggy, I don't give a damn, I said, forcing boredom into my voice. It'd be nice to be able to return one of the vampires to his own, get myself a marker I can call in someday, but I don't need it. I paused. You, on the other hand, need Thomas to be alive, if you expect me to trade Morgan for him. So this is how it's going to go down. At dusk, you will be contacted on this phone. You will be told where our meeting will take place. When you arrive, you will show me the vampire, alive and well. And when he is returned to me, you will take Morgan without contest. I am not some mortal scum you can command, mageling, Shagnasty seethed. No, you're immortal scum. You blind, flesh-feeding worm, Shagnasty snarled. Who are you to speak to me so? The worm who's got what you need, I said. Dusk, keep the phone handy. I hung up on him. My heart hammered against my chest, and cold sweat broke out over my upper body. I felt myself shaking with terror for Thomas, with weariness, with reaction to the conversation with Shagnasty. I leaned my aching head against the earpiece of the phone and hoped that I hadn't just ended my brother's life. One more call. 
The White Council of Wizards uses telephone communications like everyone else, albeit with a lot more service calls. I gave headquarters a ring, gave them the countersign to their security challenge, and got patched through to one of the administrative assistants, an earnest young woman not quite finished with her apprenticeship. I need to get a message to every member of the senior council, I told her. Very well, sir, she said. What is the message? Get this verbatim, okay? Yes, sir. I cleared my throat and spoke. Be advised that I have been sheltering Warden Donald Morgan from discovery and capture for the past two days. An informant has come to me with details of how Warden Morgan was framed for the murder of Senior Council Member Lafortier. Warden Morgan is innocent, and what's more, I can prove it. I am willing to meet with you tonight on the uncharted island in Lake Michigan, east of Chicago, at sundown. The informant will be present and will produce testimony that will vindicate Warden Morgan and identify the true culprit of the crime. Let me be perfectly clear. I will not surrender Warden Morgan to the alleged justice of the council. Come in peace and we will work things out. But should you come to me looking for a fight, be assured that I will oblige you. The assistant had started making choking sounds after the very first sentence. Then sign it, Harry Dresden, I said. Um, yes, sir. Sh shall I read that back to you? Please. She did. I'd heard sounds of movement in the background around her, but as she read aloud, all of those sounds died to silence. When she finished, she asked in a rather small, squeaky voice, Do I have that down correctly, sir? Murmurs burst out in the background over the phone, excited and low. Yeah, I told her. Perfect. Chapter 38 I figured I had an hour, maybe, before someone was going to show up from Edinburgh. It was time enough to grab a cab and head to the hospital. Back in the ICU, Will was sacked out in the waiting room, and Georgia was the one sitting with Andy. A middle-aged couple who looked as if they hadn't slept much was in there with her. I knocked on the glass. Georgia said something to the couple and rose to come out into the hallway with me. She looked tired but alert and had her long, rather frizzy hair pulled back into a ponytail. Harry, she said, hugging me. I returned the hug, cutting it off a little early. How is she? Georgia studied me for a second before she answered. In bad shape. The doctors don't seem to be willing to say whether or not she'll recover. Better that way, I said. If one of them said she'd be fine and then she wasn't. Georgia glanced at the couple sitting beside Andy's bed, holding each other's hands. I know. It would be cruel to offer false hope, but... But you're still irrationally angry that the docs haven't saved her yet. You know better, but you're upset anyway. She nodded. Yes. Irrationality is not something I'm comfortable with. It isn't irrational, I said. It's human. She gave me a small smile. Will and I talked, and you're in a hurry. I nodded. I need you both, and right now. I'll get him, Georgia said. We took Georgia's SUV back down to the marina and arrived with ten minutes to spare on my estimated time window. I definitely wanted to be out over open water by the time the members of the council started showing up. 
The water wouldn't be a perfect protection from incoming magic, but it would make it a lot harder for anyone to target me solidly, and it was a hell of a lot better than nothing. Okay, I said. You guys wait here for a minute. Will frowned. Why? I need to talk to someone who can be a little shy around strangers. One minute. I hopped out of the SUV and walked down the rows of cars until I found two vans parked together. I slipped between them, put the fingers of one hand to my lips, and let out a sharp whistle. There was a whirring sound, and Toot Toot streaked down from overhead, came to a hover in front of me, drew his little sword, and saluted. Yes, my liege? Toot, I have two missions for you. At once, my lord. No, I want you to do them one at a time. Toot lowered his sword, his expression crestfallen. Oh. First, I want you to find the boat out on the lake that my apprentice is in. She's not more than a mile or two from shore. I took off my silver pentacle amulet, wrapped the chain around it, and handed it to Toot Toot. Leave this where she will notice it right away. Toot accepted the amulet gravely, tucking it under one arm. That will be done. Thank you. Toot Toot's chest swelled out and he stood a little bit straighter. Second, I told him, I need to know how many of the little folk you could convince to join the guard for one night. He frowned and looked dubious. I don't know, Lord Harold. The pizza ration is already stretched as far as it can go. I waved a hand. The guard's pay won't change. I'll order extra to pay for the new guy's service. Call them the Zaw Lord's militia. We only need them sometimes. How many do you think would agree to that? Toot buzzed in an excited circle. For you? Every sprite and pixel and dewdrop fairy within a hundred miles knows that you saved our kind from being imprisoned by the Lady of the Cold Eyes. There's not a one who didn't have had or kin languishing endurance vile. I blinked at him. Oh, I said. Well, tell them that there may be great danger. Tell them that if they wish to join the militia, they must obey orders while they serve. And I will pay them one large pizza for every four score volunteers. That's less than you pay the guard, Harry, Toot said smugly. Well, they're amateurs, not full-time veterans like you and your men, are they? Yes, my lord. I looked at him seriously. If you can recruit a militia, and if they perform as asked, there's a promotion in it for you, Toot. His eyes widened. Does it come with cheese and the crust and extra toppings? It isn't a pizza, I said. It's a promotion. Get this work done, and from that time forward you will be, I paused dramatically, Major General Toot Toot Minimus, commanding the Zaw Lord's elite. Toot's body practically convulsed in a spasm of excitement. Had a giant yellow exclamation point suddenly appeared in the air over his head, I would not have been surprised. A major general? I couldn't resist. Yes, yes, I said solemnly. A major general. He let out a whoop of glee and zipped up and down the little space between vans. What do you wish us to do when I have them, my lord? I want you to play, I said. Here's what we're going to do. I rejoined Will and Georgia, and ten minutes later, the water beetle came chugging back toward the marina. 
The grasshopper got my brother's boat into dock with only a mildly violent impact. I secured lines quickly, and Will and Georgia jumped on. Almost before Will's feet were on the deck, I was already untying the lines and following them onto the boat. Molly, for her part, already had the engine in reverse. Now what? she called down to me from the wheel atop the cabin. Use the compass on the dashboard, one to two degrees south of due east, and call me when you spot the island. Aye, aye. Will squinted at Molly and then at me. Aye, aye. I shook my head sadly. Landlubbers, I'm going to go shiver timbers or something. I haven't slept in a while. Go ahead, Harry, Georgia said. We'll wake you if anything happens. I nodded, shambled down to the second bunk, and passed out immediately. Someone shook me two seconds later, and I said, Go away. Sorry, Harry, Will said. We're here. I said several uncouth and thoughtless things, then manned up and opened my eyes, always the hardest part of waking up. I sat up and Will retreated from the cramped cabin with a glance at Morgan's unconscious form. I sat there with my mouth feeling like it had been coated in turtle wax. It took me a second to identify a new sound. Rain. Raindrops pattered onto the deck of the boat and the roof of the cabin. I shambled out onto the deck, unconcerned about the rain ruining my leather duster. One handy side effect of going through the painfully precise ritual of enchanting it to withstand physical force as if it had been plate steel, was that the thing was rendered waterproof and stainproof as well, yet it still breathed. Let's see, Berman's or Wilson's do that. Sufficiently advanced technology, my ass. I climbed up to the bridge, keeping an eye on the sky as I did. Lowering clouds of dark gray had covered the sky, and the rain looked to be a long, steady soaker, a rarity in a Chicago summer which usually went for rough-and-tumble thunderstorms. The heat hadn't let up much, and as a result the air was thick and heavy enough to swim through. I took the wheel from Molly, oriented myself by use of the compass and the island, now only a few minutes away, and yawned loudly. Well, this makes things less pleasant. The rain? Molly asked. She passed me my pentacle. I slipped it back over my head and nodded. I'd planned on lying off the island until closer to dark. Why? Mostly because I just challenged the senior council to a brawl there at sundown, I said. Molly choked on her gum. I ignored her. I didn't want to make it easy for them to slip up on me. Oh, and I've arranged to trade Thomas for Morgan with Shagnasty. He won't get word of where to go until later, though. I think otherwise he'd cheat and show up early. He looks like a shifty character. The pun went past Molly, or maybe she was just that good at ignoring it. You're trading Morgan for Thomas? Nah, I just want to get Shag Nasty out here with Thomas in one piece so that the White Court can take him down. Molly stared at me. The White Court, too? I nodded happily. They've got a stake in this as well. Um, she said, why do you think the senior council will take you up on your challenge? Because I told them I was going to be producing an informant who would give testimony about who really killed Lafortier. Do you have someone like that? Molly asked. I beamed at her. No. She stared at me for a moment, clearly thinking. Then she said, But the killer doesn't know that. 
My smile widened. Why no, Miss Carpenter, he doesn't. I made sure word got around headquarters of my challenge to the senior counsel. He's got no choice but to show up here if there's any chance at all that I might actually have found an informant ready to blow his identity, which, by the way, would also provide substantial proof of the existence of the Black Council. Her golden brows knitted. What if there's no chance of such an informant existing? I snorted. Kid, groups like these guys, the ones who maim and kill and scheme and betray, they do what they do because they love power. And when you get people who love power together, they're all holding out a gift in one hand while hiding a dagger behind their back in the other. They regard an exposed back as a justifiable provocation to stick the knife in. The chances that this group has no one in it who might believably have second thoughts and try to back out by bargaining with the council for a personal profit are less than zero. Molly shook her head. So, he or she will call in the Black Council to help? I shook my head. I think this is happening because the killer slipped up and exposed himself to Lafortier. He had to take Lafortier out, but with all the security at Edinburgh, there was every chance something could go wrong, and it did. Everything else he's done is smacked of desperation. I think that if the Black Council finds out that their mole has screwed up this thoroughly, They'd kill him themselves to keep the trail from leading back to them. I stared at the glowering mass of Demon Reach. His only chance is to tie off any loose ends that might lead back to him. He'll be here tonight, Molly. And he's got to win. He has nothing to lose. But you're putting everyone together in a confined space, Harry, Molly said. This is going to be a huge mess. Pressure cooker, Padawan, I said, nodding. The perp is already desperate enough to be acting hastily and making mistakes, especially the mistake of taking things a step too far and trying to incriminate the white court in Lafortier's death as well. Molly stared out at the water thoughtfully. So you put him together in a confined space with two major groups of power who will want to kill him. His worst nightmare has got to be the wizards and the white court being drawn into a closer alliance because of what he's done. And with as much power as they have, there's no way he's going to be able to fight them all. I smiled at her. Yeah, it sucks to feel helpless, I said. Especially for a wizard, because we usually aren't. Or at least we're usually able to convince ourselves that we aren't. You think he'll crack, she said. I think he'll be there. I think that with enough pressure, something is going to pop loose somewhere. I think he'll try something stupid. Maybe a preemptive spell, something to take everyone down before they know a fight is on. A sneak attack, Molly said, which won't be a sneak attack if you know where he is and what he's doing. Intellectus! I tapped my temple with a finger. Capital thinking, grasshopper. Thunder rumbled far away. I sighed. Thomas can sail in bad weather, but I don't know how to do it intelligently. Something like this could turn ugly fast. We're going to have to head into the dock and take our chances. I navigated. Sheesh, listen to me. Navigated. The boat had a steering wheel and a lever to make it go faster. It was about as complicated to make move as a bumper car. Granted, simple isn't the same thing as easy, but even so. The actual process of pointing the boat and making it go is not complicated enough to deserve to be called navigation. 
I drove the water beetle around to the safe passage through the reef and pulled her into the dock, much more smoothly this time. Will was waiting by the rail and ready. He hopped onto the dock and Georgia threw him the mooring lines. Don't step onto the land until I get a chance to get there first, I called to them. I want to, uh, sort of introduce you. Billy gave me an oblique look. Um, okay, Harry. I climbed down from the bridge and was just about to hop to the dock when a tall, slender figure in a black robe, black cape, and black hood appeared from behind a veil, standing at the very end of the dock. He lifted his old rune-carved staff, muttered a word, and then brought it smashing down onto the wooden planks. A disk of sparkling blue light washed out from the point of impact. I had time, barely, to draw in my will, cross my arms at the wrists, holding them against my chest, and slam will into both my shield bracelet and into strengthening my mental defenses. Smears of deep blue, purple, and dark green appeared like puffs of smoke where the expanding ring struck Molly, Will, and Georgia, and the three of them simply collapsed, dropping into sprawling heaps on the dock and the deck of the boat. My vision darkened, and for an instant I felt unbearably tired. But in a panic I forced more energy into my defenses, and the instant passed. The robed figure stood staring at me for a few seconds. Then it spoke in a deep voice. Put the staff down, Dresden. Swirling narcotic colors gathered around his staff, and he pointed it at me like a gun. It is over. Chapter 39 The rain came down steadily. I risked a glance at the others. They were all down, but breathing. Molly's head, shoulders, and arms hung off the side of the boat. Wet, her sapphire-dyed hair looked like a much darker hue. Each rock of the boat made her hands swing. She was in danger of falling into the water. I turned back to the cloaked figure and peered at him. Big billowy cloaks and robes are nicely dramatic, especially if you're facing into the wind, but under a calm, soaking rain, they just look waterlogged. The outfit clung to the figure, looking rather miserable. The rain also made the cloth look darker than it was. Looking closer, I could see faint hints of color in the cloth, which wasn't actually black. It was a purple so deep that it was close. Wizard Rashid? I asked. The gatekeeper's staff never wavered as he faced me. He lifted a hand and drew back his hood. His face was long and sharp-featured and weathered like old leather. He wore a short beard that was shot through with silver, and his silver hair was short, stiff brush. One of his eyes was dark. The other had a pair of horrible old silver scars running through it, from his hairline down to his jaw. The injury had to have ruined his natural eye. It had been replaced with something that looked like a stainless steel ball bearing. Indeed, he said calmly. Should have seen it sooner. There aren't many wizards taller than me. Lay aside your staff, Wizard Dresden, before anyone else is hurt. I can't do that, I said. And I cannot permit you to openly challenge the White Council to battle. No, I asked, thrusting out my jaw. Why not? His deep, resonant voice sounded troubled. 
It is not yet your hour. I felt my eyebrows go up. Not yet? He shook his head. Places in time. This is not the time, nor the place. What you are about to do will cost lives, among them your own. I wish you no harm, young wizard, but if you will not surrender, so be it. I narrowed my eyes at him. And if I don't do this, an innocent man is going to die. I don't want to fight you, but I'm not going to stand by and let the Black Council kill Morgan and dance off behind the curtains so that they can do it again in the future. He tilted his head slightly. Black Council? Whatever you want to call them, I said. The people the traitor is working for, the ones who keep trying to stir up trouble between the powers, who keep changing things. The gatekeeper's expression was unreadable. What things? The weirdness we've been seeing. Mysterious figures handing out wolf belts to FBI agents. Red court vampires showing up to fights with outsiders on the roster. Fairy queens getting idealistic and trying to overthrow the natural order of the fairy courts. The unseelie standing by, unresponsive, when they are offered an enormous insult by the vampires trespassing on their territory. The attack on Arctis Tor. I can think of half a dozen other things to go with those, and those are just the things I've personally gotten involved with. I made a broad gesture with one hand back toward Chicago. The world is getting weirder and scarier, and we've been so busy beating on one another that we can't even see it. Someone's behind it. He watched me silently for a long moment. Then he said, Yes. I frowned at him, and then my lips parted as I realized what was going on. And you think I'm with them? He paused before speaking, but then he damn near always did. Perhaps there is reason. Add to your list of upset balances such things as open warfare erupting between the Red Court and the White Council, a seely crown being passed from one young queen to the next by bloody revolt, and not the will of Titania, wardens consorting with White Court vampires on a regular basis, college students being taught magic sufficient to allow them to become werewolves, the little folk, wild fae banding together and organizing, the most powerful artifacts of the church vanishing from the world, and, as some signs indicate, being kept by a wizard who does not so much as pay lip service to the faith, much less believe, I scowled. Yeah, well, when you put it like that, he smiled faintly. I held up my hand, palm out. I swear to you, by my magic, that I am not involved with those lunatics, except for trying to put out all these fires they keep starting. And if questionable things surround me, it's because that's the kind of thing that happens when you're as outclassed as I usually am. You have to find solutions where you can, not where convenient. The gatekeeper pursed his lips thoughtfully, considering me. Look, can we agree to a short truce to talk this out, I said, and so that I can keep my apprentice from drowning? His gaze moved past me to Molly. He frowned and lowered his staff at once. Five minutes, he said. Thanks, I said. I turned around and got Molly hauled back onto the boat. She never stirred. 
Once she was safely snoozing on deck, I went down the dock to stand in front of the gatekeeper. He watched me quietly, holding his staff in both hands, leaning on it gently. So, I said, where's the rest of the senior council? On the way, I should think, he said. They'll need to secure transportation to the island in Chicago and then find their way here. But not you. You came through the never-never? He nodded, his eyes watching me carefully. I know a way. I've been here before. Yeah? I shook my head. I thought about trying to find a way out here, but I didn't want to chance it. This isn't exactly Mayberry. I doubt it hooks up to anything pleasant in the never-never. The gatekeeper muttered something to himself in a language I didn't understand and shook his head. I cannot decide, he said, whether you are the most magnificent liar I have ever encountered in my life, or if you are truly as ignorant as you appear. I looked at him for a minute, then I hooked my thumb up at my ridiculous head bandage. Dude! He burst out into a laugh that was as rich and deep as his speaking voice, but more somehow. I'm not sure how to explain it. The sound of that laugh was filled with a warmth and a purity that almost made the air quiver around it, as if it had welled up from some untapped source of concentrated, unrestrained joy. I think maybe it had been a while since Rashid had laughed. You, he said, barely able to speak through it. Up in that tree, covered with mud. I found myself grinning at him. Yeah, I remember. He shook his head and actually wiped tears away from his good eye. It took him another moment or two to compose himself, but when he spoke, his living eye sparkled, an echo of his laughter. You've endured more than most young people, he said, and tasted more triumph than most as well. It is a very encouraging sign that you can still laugh at yourself. Well, gosh, I said, I'm just so ignorant, I don't know what else to do. He stared at me intently. You don't know what this place is. It's out of the way of innocent bystanders, I said, and I know it better than most of the people who are on the way. He nodded, frowning. I suppose that is logical. So? Hmm? I sighed. Wizards. So, what is this place? He considered his words for a moment. What do you think it is, beyond the obvious physical and tactical terrain? Well, I said, I know there's a ley line that comes through here, very dark and dangerous energy. I know that there's a genius loci present, and that it's real strong and isn't very friendly. I know that they tried to start up a small town here, linked with the shipping interests in the Great Lakes, but it went sour. Demon Reach drove them away or insane, apparently. Demon Reach? he asked. Couldn't find a name on the books, I said, so I made up my own. Demon Reach, the gatekeeper mused. It's certainly fitting. So? He gave me a tight smile. It wouldn't help you for me to say anything more, except for this. One of your facts is incorrect. The ley line you speak of does not go through the island, he said. This is where it wells up. The island is its source. Ah, I said. Wells up from what? In my opinion, that is a very useful question.
I narrowed my eyes. And you aren't going to give me anything else? He shrugged. We do have other matters to discuss. I glanced back at my unconscious friends. Yeah, we do. I am willing to accept that your intentions are noble, he said. But your actions could set into motion a catastrophic chain of events. I shrugged. I don't know about that, I said. What I do know is that you don't kill a man for a crime he didn't commit. And when someone else tries to do it, you stop them. And do you think that this will stop them? The gatekeeper asked. I think it's my best shot. You won't succeed, he said. If you press ahead, it will end in violence. People will die, you amongst them. You don't even know what I have in mind, I said. You're laying a trap for the traitor, he said. You're trying to force him to act and reveal himself. A lesser man might have felt less clever than he had a moment before. Oh, and if I can work it out, the gatekeeper said, then so can the traitor. Well, duh, I said, but he'll show up anyway. He can't afford to do anything else. And he'll come ready, the gatekeeper said. He'll choose his moment. Let him. I've got other assets. Then he did something strange. He exhaled slowly, his living eye closing. The gleaming steel eye tracked back and forth as if looking at something, though I could only tell it was moving because of the twitches of his other eyelid. A moment later, the gatekeeper opened his eye and said, The chances that you'll survive it are minimal. Yeah? I asked him. I stepped around him and hopped off the dock and onto the island, immediately feeling the connection with Demon Reach as I turned to face him. How about now? He frowned at me and then repeated the little ritual. Then he made a choking sound. Blood of the prophet, he swore, opening his eyes to stare at me. You, you've claimed this place as a sanctum? Uh-huh. How? I punched it in the nose, now we're friends, I said. The gatekeeper shook his head slowly. Harry, he said, his voice weary. Harry, you don't know what you've done. I've given myself a fighting chance. Yes, today, he replied. But there is always a price for knowledge. Always. His left eyelid twitched as he spoke, making the scars that framed the steel orb quiver. But it will be me paying the price, I said, not everyone else. Yes, he said quietly. We were both silent for several minutes, standing in the rain. Then longer than five minutes, I said. How do you want it to be? The gatekeeper shook his head. May I offer you two pieces of advice? I nodded. First, he said, do not tap into the power of this place as well. You are years away from being able to handle such a thing without being altered by it. I hadn't planned on touching it, I said. Second, he said, you must understand that regardless of the outcome of this confrontation, someone will die. Preferably, it would be the traitor. But if he is killed rather than captured, no one will be willing to accept your explanation of events, no matter how accurate it may be. Morgan will be executed. Odds are excellent that you will be as well. I'm sure as hell not doing this for me, he nodded. Don't suppose you'd be willing to lend a hand. 
I cannot set foot on the island, he said. Why not? Because this place holds a grudge, he said. I suddenly thought of the drag, thump, limp of the island's manifest spirit. Damn. He turned to the dock behind him and flicked a hand at the air. A neat, perfectly circular portal to the never-never appeared without a whisper or flicker of wasted power. The gatekeeper gave me a nod. Your friends will awaken in a moment. I will do what I can to help you. Thank you, I said. He shook his head. Do not. It may be that true kindness would have been to kill you today. Then he stepped through the portal and was gone. It vanished an instant later. I stood there in the rain and watched the others begin to stir. Then I sighed and walked back to them to help them up and explain what was going on. We had to get moving. The day wasn't getting any younger, and there were a lot of things to do before nightfall. Chapter 40 We worked for three hours before I started dropping things, tripping on nice flat ground, and bumping into other people because I'd forgotten to keep an eye out for them. That's it, Harry, Georgia said firmly. Your sleeping bag is in the cottage. Get some more sleep. I'll be all right, I said. Harry, if anything happens to you, we aren't going to have anyone we know looking out for us. You need to be able to focus. Go rest. It sounded awfully good, but my mouth opened on its own. We've still got to lay out the... Will had come up behind me in complete silence. He pulled my arm behind my back in a capable, strong grip and twisted carefully. It didn't hurt until he leaned gently into me and I had to move forward to keep the pressure off. You heard the lady, he said. We can finish the rest of it on our own. We'll wake you up if anything happens. I snorted, twisted at the waist, bumping Will off balance with my hip, and broke the lock. Will could have broken my arm and kept hold of me, but instead he let go before it could happen. All right, all right, I said. Going. I shambled into the cottage and collapsed onto a sleeping bag that lay on top of a foam camp pad. Four hours later, when Will shook me awake, I was lying in the exact same position. Late afternoon light slanted into the half-ruined cottage from the west. Morgan lay on his own pallet, made by stripping the foam mattress from the bunk on the water beetle. His eyes were closed, his breathing steady. Will must have carried him up from the boat. Okay, I slurred. I'm up. I'm up. Georgia has been patrolling the shoreline, he said. She says there's a boat approaching. My heart began beating a little faster and my stomach fluttered. I swallowed, closed my eyes for a moment, and imagined a tranquil tropical beach in an effort to calm my thoughts. But the beach kept getting overrun by shape-shifting zombie vampires with mouths on the palms of their hands. Well, that's useless, I said in sleepy disgust. I got to my feet and gathered my things. Where's it coming from? West. He'll have to sail a third of the way around the island then to get through the reefs. I yawned. Where's Georgia? Claws scraped on hard-packed earth, and a large, tawny wolf appeared in the doorway. She sat down and looked at me, her ears perked forward. Good work, I told her. Molly? Here, Harry, she called as she hurried into the cottage. She held a crystal of white quartz about two inches thick and a foot long in her hands. Get to work, grasshopper. 
Don't hesitate to use the crystal if things get dicey, and good luck to you. She nodded seriously and went to Morgan's side. She reached out and took his limp hand, frowned in mild concentration, and they both vanished behind one of her wonder veils. God be with you, Harry, she said, her voice coming out of nowhere. Will, I said, get your game face on. I turned to Will to find the young man gone and a burly, dark-furred wolf sitting in his place next to a pile of loose clothes. Oh, I said, good. I checked my gear, my pockets, my shoelaces, and realized that I had crossed the line between making sure I was ready and trying to postpone the inevitable. I straightened my back, nodded once, and began to stride toward the cottage door. Let's go, people. Party time. It was getting darker over the enormous expanse of the lake. Twilight is a much different experience when you're far away from the lights of a city or town. Modern civilization bathes us in light throughout the hours of darkness. Lighted billboards, streetlights, headlights, airplane lights, neon decorations, the interior lights of homes and businesses, floodlights that strobe across the sky. They're so much a part of our life that the darkness of night is barely a factor in our daily thinking anymore. We mock one another's lack of courage with accusations of being afraid of the dark, all the while industriously making our own lights brighter, more energy-efficient, cheaper, and longer-lasting. There's power in the night. There's terror in the darkness. Despite all our accumulated history, learning, and experience, we remember. We remember times when we were too small to reach the light switch on the wall, and when the darkness itself was enough to make us cry out in fear. Get a good ways out from civilization, say miles and miles away on a lightless lake, and the darkness is there, waiting. Twilight means more than just time to call the children in from playing outside. Fading light means more than just the end of another day. Night is when terrible things emerge from their sleep and seek soft flesh and hot blood. Night is when unseen beings with no regard for what our people have built and no place in what we have deemed the natural order look in at our world from outside and think dark and alien thoughts. And sometimes, just sometimes, they do things. I walked down the ancient hillsides of Demon Reach and felt acutely aware of that fact. Night wasn't falling so much as sharpening its claws. I walked out to the end of the floating dock alone. Billy and Georgia remained behind in the woods. You would not believe how sneaky a wolf is capable of being until you've seen one in action. Wolves acting with human-level intelligence, an exceptional human intelligence at that, are all but invisible when they choose to be. A boat was rounding the buoy that marked the opening in the reef. It was a white rental boat, like any number available to tourists in the area, a craft about twenty feet long and rigged for water skiing. The wind had risen, coming in from the southwest, and the lake was getting choppier. The rental boat was wallowing a little and bouncing irregularly against the waves, throwing up small shocks of spray. I watched it come over the last few hundred yards until I could see who was on board. The boat was fairly new. Its engine made an odd clattering noise which served to identify the occupants. The White Council, it seemed, 
had arrived on time. Ebenezer McCoy was at the wheel of the boat, his bald head shiny in the rain. Listens to wind, sat in the passenger seat, wearing a rain poncho, one hand gripping the side of the boat, the other holding on to the dashboard in front of him. His weather-seamed face was grim. In the center of the rear bench was a tiny figure in white silk, embroidered with red flowers. Ancient Mai was Chinese and looked as delicate and frail as an eggshell teacup. Her hair was pure white and long, held up with a number of jade combs. Though she was now old, even by the standards of the White Council, she was still possessed of a sizable portion of what would have been a haunting, ethereal beauty in her youth. Her expression was serene, her dark eyes piercing and merciless. She frightened me. Veteran wardens sat on either side of ancient Mai, dour in their gray cloaks, and three more were sitting or crouching elsewhere in the boat, all of them from the hard-bitten squad that had been on standby back in Edinburgh. They were all armed to the teeth, and their expressions meant business. Apparently Mai scared them at least as much as she did me. One of them was holding an umbrella for her. I waited at the end of the dock, inviting Ebenezer by gesture to pull up on the side opposite the water beetle. He brought the boat in with considerably more skill than I had shown, killed the ailing engine while it was still moving, and got up to toss me a line. I caught it and secured the boat to the dock without taking my eyes off of anyone in the boat. No one spoke. Once the engine had fallen silent, the only sound was rain and wind. Evening, I ventured, nodding to Ebenezer. He was staring hard at me, frowning. I saw his eyes scan the shoreline and come back to me. Hoss, he said. He rose and stepped out onto the dock. One of the wardens tossed him another line, and he secured the back end of the craft. Then he got off, walked up to me, and offered me his hand. I shook it. Rashid, he whispered so low I could barely hear it over the rain. With us. I replied as quietly, trying not to move my lips. His head tipped me a tiny nod, and then he turned to beckon the others. Wardens and senior council members began clamoring out of the boat. I walked down the dock beside Ebenezer, watching the wardens over my shoulder. They were the sort of men and women who had no illusions about violence, magical or otherwise. If they decided that the best way to deal with me would be to shoot me in the back, they wouldn't hesitate. I stepped off the dock and onto the island again, and immediately felt the presence of Demon Reach. At the moment, the only persons on the island were those I had brought with me. Ebenezer followed me, and I felt it the instant he stepped onto the shore. It wasn't as if someone had whispered in my ear. I simply knew, felt it, the way you know it when an ant is crawling across your arm. He stopped a step later, and I kept going until I was about ten feet away. I turned to face them as their group came down the dock to stand on the shore. I kept close track of them through the link with the island, making sure that there weren't any wardens hiding behind veils so that they could sneak up behind me and start delivering rabbit punches. Ebenezer, ancient Mai, and listens to wind, his expression bearing a faintly greenish cast, stood side by side facing me. The wardens fanned out behind them, wary eyes watching every possible route of approach, including from the lake. Well, Wizard Dresden, Ebenezer said. He leaned on his staff and regarded me blandly. 
We got your note. I figured, I said. Did you get as far as the part where I said if you wanted to fight, I would oblige you? The wardens didn't actually bare their teeth and start snarling, but it was close. Aye, aye, Ebenezer said. I thought it might be more profitable if we could talk about things first. Indeed, said Ancient Mai. Her voice was too smooth and too confident to match the tiny, fragile person speaking in it. We can always kill you afterward. I didn't actually break out into rivulets of sweat, but it was close. Obviously, the disrespect you have offered the White Council merits some form of response, she continued. Do not flatter yourself by thinking that we have come to you because we lack other options. Ebenezer gave Mai a mild look. At the same time, he said, your reputation as an investigator is unrivaled within the Council. That, added to the nature of your relationship with the alleged murderer, is reason enough to hear what you have to say. Wizard Dresden, listens to wind, said. You said you had proof of Morgan's innocence. You said you had a witness. And more, I replied. And where are they? We need to wait a moment, I said, until everyone arrives. Ancient Mai's eyes narrowed. The wardens got even more alert and spread out a bit, hands on their weaponry. What others, Haas? Ebenezer asked. Everyone directly involved in this plot, I said. Warden Morgan wasn't the only one being set up as a patsy. When you manage to track down the source of the money found in Morgan's account, you'll find that it comes from a corporation owned by the White Court. Listens to Wind frowned. How do you know this? I investigated, I said. After further investigation, I concluded that the money had probably been moved without the knowledge of the White Court's leaders. The guilty party not only wished Lafortier dead and Warden Morgan to take the blame for it, he also wanted to manipulate the Council into renewing hostilities with the vampire courts. The wardens traded looks with one another when I said that. It was getting darker, and I had trouble making out their expressions. Listens to Wynne's face became thoughtful, though. And there is proof of this? he asked. I believe there will be, I replied. But it might take time to find. Longer than the duration of Morgan's unjust trial, an undeserved execution, anyway. Ancient Mai suddenly smiled, an expression with all the joy and life of frozen porcelain. In other words, she said, whatever measures being taken to veil Morgan from our tracking spells were near their limits, forcing you to seek this meeting. I had to work hard to keep from twitching. The only thing worse than scary is smart and scary. Mai turned to Ebenezer. It seems obvious that Dresden was involved in this plot on some level, and if Dresden is here, Morgan is probably nearby. Arrest Dresden and resume attempting to track Morgan immediately. We can attend to the business in a proper and orderly fashion back in Edinburgh. Ebenezer eyed Mai and then looked at listens to wind. The old medicine man stared at me for a time and then reached up an ink-stained finger to pull back a few loose hairs that had been plastered to his face by the rain. He leaned on his staff and looked around the island for a long minute, his expression distant. No mention was made of other parties being present, he said finally. 
This is council business and no one else's. Adding representatives of the white court to this meeting could prove as disastrous as the war you claim to be trying to avoid, Wizard Dresden. Ebenezer's jaw tensed up. That's not the same thing as saying we should arrest him. Listens to wind faced Ebenezer stolidly. If what he says is so, the truth will come out. We can postpone a trial so that, if this evidence exists, it can be found. You know as well as I do, Ebenezer said, that the outcome of the trial is not going to be changed by the truth. Listens to Wynne's voice became hard and rough, holding a deep and burning anger that I had never heard from the old man before. There is the world that should be, he growled, and the world that is. We live in one. And must create the other, Ebenezer retorted, if it is ever to be. Listens to Wind looked down and shook his head. He looked very old and very tired. There are no good paths to choose, old friend, he said quietly. All we can do is choose if many die or a few. He looked up at me, his face hard. I am sorry, Hoss Dresden, but I must agree. Arrest him. Chapter 41 Demon Reach allowed me to sense Billy and Georgia slinking closer, and to feel the uncertain sense of excitement that could have been tension or fear or anger coming from them. It had a much more vague idea of the emotions of the wardens, but I could tell that they weren't eager to start a fight with me. Which made me want to laugh. I mean, seriously. One-on-one, -on -one, sure, maybe I could have been a handful for any of them, but there were three members of the senior council there, any one of which could have tied me into knots. And they had me outnumbered five to one beyond that. And then it hit me. They were dealing with something far more dangerous than me, Harry Dresden, whose battered old Volkswagen was currently in the city impound. They were dealing with the potential demonic Dark Lord Nightmare Warlock they'd been busy fearing since I turned sixteen. They were dealing with the wizard who had faced the heirs of Kemmler riding a zombie dinosaur and emerged victorious from a fight that had flattened Morgan and Captain Lucio before they had even reached it. They were dealing with the man who had dropped a challenge to the entire senior council and who had then actually showed, apparently willing to fight, on the shores of an entirely too creepy island in the middle of a freshwater sea. Granted, I technically was that person, but they had no idea how close several of those calls had been. They didn't know the small details, the quirks of fate, or the assists from allies I probably didn't deserve that allowed me to shamble out of those clouds of insanity in more or less one piece. They just knew that I was the one still standing, and that fact inspired a healthy and rational fear. More than that, they were afraid of what they didn't know I could do, and none of them knew that I would so much rather be back in my apartment reading a good book and drinking a cold beer. I didn't move when Listens to Win made his statement. I just stood there as if I wasn't much impressed. The council had evidently sent the three senior members as a kind of quorum, and I would think that the word of two of them would be enough to decide a course of action. But the oldest of the wardens there, a large man with a big black beard whose name was Bjorg, or Jorg, 
or Bjorn, definitely Scandinavian, turned to look at Ebenezer. The Wizard of the Ozarks stood looking at me, a small smile on his face. I recognized the smile. When I'd first gone to live with him, after I'd killed my foster father, we would go into town every week for supplies. A gang of teenage boys, bored, reacted to the presence of a new boy with typical adolescent thoughtlessness. One of them had tried to get me to fight him. At the time, I remember being annoyed at the distraction from my day, because I had just wiped out a major demon and a former warden of the White Council in a pair of fair fights. Local teenage bullies were really kind of beneath my notice. They were kids playing a game, and I had grown older very quickly. I could have killed them, all of them, without too much trouble, but the very idea was laughable. It would have been like using a flamethrower to clean cobwebs out of the house. I'd stood there, just looking at them, while they tried to tease me into fighting. I hadn't moved or said anything or done anything. I just stood there, in a wall of silence and stillness, until that silence had become heavier and heavier. They had eventually been pushed back by it, and I had simply walked past them. And I was doing the same thing again, letting the silence fuel their uncertainty. I met Ebenezer's gaze, and we both smiled faintly in acknowledgement of the memory. Well, gentlemen, Ebenezer said, turning to face the wardens, you've heard the will of the council, such as it is, but you should be advised that since you'll be doing something foolish at the behest of someone acting foolish, I won't be assisting you. Mai's head snapped around to focus on Ebenezer. McCoy? Ebenezer bowed his head to her. Wizard Mai, I would advise you not to seek a quarrel with the young man. He's a fair hand in a fight. The old woman lifted her chin haughtily. He was not truly your apprentice. You kept watch over him for a mere two years. And came to know him, Ebenezer said. He turned to eye listens to wind. What did that raccoon pup you had think of him? You go on about what good judges of character young animals can be. Is he the sort of man who would involve himself in that kind of plot? You know the answer. Listens to Wind shook his head tiredly. It isn't about that, and you know it. If you do not assist us in subduing him, Mai said, her voice crisp and thrumming with tension, it could be considered treason, Wizard McCoy. I am assisting you, Ebenezer said, by advising you to avoid conflict. He paused and said, You might try asking him. Excuse me? Mai said. Asking him, Ebenezer said. He hooked a thumb in one strap of his overalls. Ask him politely to come with you back to Edinburgh. Maybe he'd cooperate. Don't bother, sir, I said. I won't. Ancient Mai, rumbled Warden Bjork. If you would please return to the boat, we will see to this. I remained just as I'd been standing and hoped that the others would be arriving soon. I didn't want to start up the dance music until everyone had taken the floor, but if the wardens pressed me, I might need to. Ancient Mai, Warden Yorgi repeated, do you wish us to... He didn't get to finish the phrase before there was a deafening roar and a helicopter swept over the hillside behind us, flying about an inch and a half above the treetops. It soared past us and then banked around in a turn over the lake, only to return and hover thirty feet above the shoreline, maybe a hundred yards away. 
In the movies, special forces guys come zipping down on lines. I've even been the guy on a line once, sort of, though I was more sack of meal than Navy SEAL. But when the people jumping off the helicopter are vampires, you don't bother with a lot of lines. Or any lines, at all. Three figures in white leapt from the hovering chopper, neatly flipped once on the way down, and landed together in a dancer's crouch. Then they all rose, the movement as beautiful, smooth, and coordinated as anything you'd see at the Cirque du Soleil. Lara and her two sisters walked toward us, and they were good at it. Lara was wearing a white sundress that showed off her curves, with two black leather belts that crossed on her hips. A handgun in a holster hung from one of the belts. The other belt supported a sword, a genuine rapier whose worn handle looked as if it had seen actual use. Her long black hair was pulled up in a net, and the top of her head was covered in a white cloth, a very gypsy sort of look. She wore a choker made of pure platinum, the metal seeming to hold its own glow, even in the failing light, and a single large, blood-red ruby hung from it. As she walked, it was impossible not to notice the gorgeously feminine curves of her body, the casual sway of her hips from side to side, each movement emphasizing the fact that she carried deadly weapons. And since it was raining on her white dress, it was impossible not to notice a whole lot of other things about Lara, such as the fact that other than the weapons and her shoes, it was all she was wearing. I concentrated on keeping my tongue from hanging down past my chin and forced my eyes to look elsewhere. Her sisters were wearing much different gear. Though they also wore white, they had both donned what looked like motorcycle leathers, not like the archetypal American bikers, but more like the gear you see professional racing motorcyclists wearing. It looked very high-tech and was obviously armored. In standard gear, the armor was heavy plastic, there to protect the rider in the event of a collision or a fall. I was willing to bet that it had been upgraded to something a lot stronger in the Wraith's gear. They, too, were equipped with sidearms of both the past and present. Their hair was tied up and back, and like Lara, their skin was pale. Their eyes were wide and gray, their lips dark and inviting. I watched the three Wraith sisters come and thought to myself that if there was any justice in the universe, I would get to watch that in slow motion. Alas. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Mai calmly lift a hand to Warden Berserker Gang, motioning him to stand down. It didn't surprise me. Ancient Mai had very strong notions of proper behavior and how it ought to be followed. She would never condone observable division amongst members of the council where outsiders could witness it. Lara stopped twenty feet away, and her sisters stopped a couple of feet behind her. Their eyes were on the wardens, who returned the vampire's stare with calm attention. Harry, she said, her voice warm, as if we'd just run into one another at a soiree. You are a wicked, wicked man. You didn't tell me I'd have to share you with others tonight. What can I say? I asked, turning to face Lara. I smiled at her and bowed my head without taking my eyes off her. It was a more enjoyable paranoia than I'd observed for the wardens, if no less wary. I used to be a trusting, gentle soul, but the rigors of the cruel world have made me cynical and cautious. Lara looked from the wardens to me, her expression speculative. 
Then she gave them a smile that could have melted plate steel and walked to me, somehow making a swagger look perfectly feminine. She extended both hands to me as she came. I smiled in return, though mine was a lot stiffer and more artificial, and whispered through my smiling teeth, You have got to be kidding. She cast her eyes down demurely, toning the smile down to a smirk, and breathed, Be nice to me, wizard mine, and I'll return the favor. I don't think I hesitated very long before I offered her my hands in return. We clasped them. Her fingers were silken smooth and very cold. She smiled radiantly and inclined her head to me, a slow, graceful, formal gesture. Then, faster than I could blink, much less move, she smacked me in the kisser. She used her open hand, which prevented the blow from being a lethal one. Even so, it hit like a club. It knocked me several steps back, spinning me as I went, and I wound up caught in a drunken corkscrew that ended with my ass hitting the ground ten feet away. Once again, you have lied to us, Lara snarled. Used us. I have had my fill of your deceits, wizard. I sat there with my mouth open, wondering if my jaw would start wobbling bonelessly in the rising breeze. Fury radiated from her in a cold sphere, and every fiber of her body looked ready to do violence. She faced me with the members of the council on her left, the darkness of the forest on her right. I focused on my shield bracelet, certain that there was every possibility that she might be about to draw her gun and plug me. If my brother is not returned to me whole this night, she continued, her voice cold and deadly, there will be blood between us, and my honor will not be satisfied until one of us lies dead on the dueling ground. And then she winked at me with her right eye. Do you understand? she demanded. Uh, I said, trying to move my jaw. It was apparently whole. Yeah, message received. Arrogant child, she spat on the ground in my direction. Then she turned and walked purposefully toward the senior council members. She stopped about ten feet from ancient Mai, just before the warden standing behind her would have snapped and started hurling thunder and fury. She came to a graceful stance of attention, and then bowed rather deeply to ancient Mai. Mai's face revealed nothing. She returned the gesture, bowing less deeply. It is a pleasure to meet you in the flesh, Lara said. You must be ancient Mai. Lara Wraith, Mai replied. I had not anticipated your presence at this meeting. Nor I yours, she gave me a rather disgusted glance. Courtesy, it seems, is a devalued commodity in this world. She bowed again to Ebenezer and listens to Wind and greeted them by name. Your reputations, gentlemen, proceed you. Injun Joe nodded without speaking. Lady Rafe, Ebenezer said calmly. Touch that boy again, and the only things left for your kin to bury will be your five hundred dollar shoes. I, ya, yeah, Ancient Mai said in a flat tone. Lara paused at Ebenezer's statement. It didn't rattle her precisely, but she gave Ebenezer another look, and then inclined her head to him. Gentlemen, lady, obviously we both have urgent concerns that must be addressed. <laughs> 
Equally obviously, none of us anticipated the presence of the other, and a violent incident would benefit no one. On behalf of the White Court, I propose a formal agreement of non-aggression for the duration of this meeting. Ancient Mai gave Ebenezer a hard look, then lifted her chin slightly and turned away, somehow giving the impression that she had formally dismissed him from reality. Agreed, she said. On behalf of the Council, I accept the proposal. I managed to stagger back to verticality. My wounded head felt like Lara had split it open, and I'd have a hand-shaped bruise on my cheek, but I wasn't going to sit there moaning about getting slapped by a girl. Granted, the girl was hundreds of years old and could change a fire truck's tires without using a jack, but there was a principle at work here. I got to my feet and then walked carefully over to stand beside Ebenezer, facing the vampires. One of the wardens there made a little room for me, all his attention focused forward on Lara and her sisters. Huh. They were much more comfortable with me when I was aimed at an enemy. I tried to keep a running portion of my awareness focused on demon reach. I had done as much as I could in assembling this group. I was counting on my estimate of the killer to take it to the next level, and until he showed up, I had to keep stringing both Lara and the Council along. The best way to do that, for the moment, was to keep quiet and let them talk. I suppose the first thing we must do is share knowledge, Lara said to Ancient Mai. Would you prefer it if I went first? Mai considered that for a moment, and then bowed her head in a slight acknowledgment. Lara proceeded without further ado. My brother, Thomas Wraith, has been taken by a skinwalker, one of the ancient Nagloshi. The skinwalker has offered an exchange, my brother for Warden Donald Morgan. Mai tilted her head to one side. How is Dresden involved in this matter? He claims that he is attempting to establish Warden Morgan's innocence in some sort of matter internal to the Council. As a gesture of goodwill to the Council, and to help keep the peace within Chicago, I have instructed my brother to offer reasonably low-risk aid and assistance to Dresden. She glanced at me. He has abused my good intentions repeatedly. This time, he somehow involved my brother in his investigation and Thomas was ambushed by the skinwalker. And that is all? Mai asked. Lara glared at me again and seemed to visibly force herself to take a moment to think. He claims that a third party was behind Warden Morgan's predicament and attempting to set the court against the council. To my surprise, my own investigation did not immediately disprove his statements as lies. It seems possible that one of my financial managers may have been somehow coerced into embezzling the contents of a considerable account. Dresden claims the money was sent to an account that was made to appear to belong to Warden Morgan. Mai nodded. Was it? Lara shrugged elegantly. It is possible. My people are working to find evidence that will establish what happened more precisely. Mai nodded and was still for several seconds before she said, Despite how carefully you have danced around the subject, you know exactly why we are here. Lara smiled very slightly. The tale Dresden tells us lacks the credibility of simplicity, Mai continued. Despite how carefully you have danced around saying the actual words, 
It seems that you wish us to believe that the White Court was not involved in the matter of Lafortier's death. Thus your story, too, lacks the credibility of simplicity. In my experience, matters of state are rarely simple ones, Lara responded. Mai moved a hand, a tiny gesture that somehow conveyed acknowledgement. Yet, given recent history, the actions of a known enemy seem a far more likely source for Lafortier's murder than those of some nameless, faceless third party. Of course, you are, after all, wizards, Lara said, without a detectable trace of irony. You are the holders of great secrets. If such a group existed, you would surely know of it. It is possible that I am unfairly judging your people in accusing them of plotting Lafortier's death, Mai replied, her voice utterly tranquil. You are, after all, vampires, and well known for your forthright and gentle natures. Lara inclined her head, smiling faintly. Regardless, we find ourselves here. That seems incontrovertible. I seek the safe return of my brother. Mai shook her head firmly once. The White Council will not exchange one of our own. It seems to me, Lara said, that Warden Morgan is not in your company. A transitory situation, Mai said. She didn't look at me, but I felt sure that the steel in her voice was aimed in my direction. Then perhaps a cooperative effort, Lara said. We need not allow the skinwalker to take the warden. Those who ally themselves with the white court come to regret it, Mai replied. The council has no obligation to assist you or your brother. Despite the recent efforts made on your behalf by my king and his court, Lara asked. Mai faced her without blinking and said nothing more. He is my blood. Lara said quietly. I will have him returned. I appreciate your loyalty, Mai said, in a tone that suggested she didn't. However, this matter of the skinwalker wishing an exchange is hardly germane to where we stand at the moment. Actually, I said, it kind of is, ancient Mai. I had someone tell Shagnasty where to meet me tonight. Depending on how he crosses the water, he could be here any moment. Ebenezer blinked. Then he turned his face to me, his expression clearly asking whether or not I was out of my damned mind. Wily Coyote, I said to him soberly. Super genius. I saw him thinking, and I recognized it when my old mentor got it, when he understood my plan. I could tell because he got that look on his face I've only seen when he knows things are about to go spectacularly wrong, and he wants to be ready for it. He let his staff fall to rest against his chest and idly dug in a pocket, his eyes flicking across the woods around us. I don't know where Mai's head was, or if she worked out anything at all. I had a feeling that she wouldn't. Since her thought processes would all have to start from given assumptions that were incorrect, she didn't have much of a chance of coming to a correct conclusion. All that means, she said to me, is that it would be wise to finish our business here and retreat from this place. Sadly, I am reaching a similar conclusion, Lara said deliberately. Perhaps it is time for this meeting to adjourn. Behind her, one of her sisters shifted one hand very slightly. Lightning flashed overhead, and thunder forced a pause into the conversation. The wind picked up again, and listens to wind suddenly lifted his head. 
His gaze snapped around to the north, and his eyes narrowed. An instant later, I sensed a new presence on the island. More people had just touched down onto the far side of the bald hill where Demon Reach Tower stood. There were twelve of them, and they began moving toward the hilltop at inhuman speed. White court vampires, they had to be. Seconds later, another pair of human-like presences simply appeared in the woods four hundred yards away. And if that wasn't enough, two more people arrived on the northwest shore of the island. Mai took immediate note of Injun Joe's expression and tilted her head, staring hard at Lara. What have you done? she demanded. I have signaled my family, Lara replied calmly. I did not come here to fight you, ancient Mai, but I will recover my brother. I focused on the two smaller groups, both of them pairs of new presences, and found that their numbers were growing. On the beach, many, many more pairs of feet had begun beating the ground of Demon Reach, thirty of them or more. In the forest nearby, a presence that the island had never before encountered appeared, followed by more and more and more of the same. There was only one explanation for that. The new arrivals were calling forth muscle from the never-never. I was betting that the pair on the beach was Madeline and Binder, and that he had begun calling out his gray men the moment his feet hit the ground. The two who had simply appeared in the forest had to have taken away and emerged from the never-never onto the island directly. It was possible a second summoning like Binder's was underway, but I thought it far more likely that someone had gathered up support and brought it with them through the way. Meanwhile, Mai and Lara were beginning to bear their claws. Is that a threat, vampire? Mai said in a flat tone. I would prefer that you regard it as a truth, Lara replied, her own tone losing the charm and conviviality it had contained in some measure throughout the conversation. The wardens behind me started getting nervous. I could feel it, both for myself and through demon reach. I heard leather creak as hands were put to the grips of holstered guns and upon hilts of swords. Lara, in response, rested her fingertips lightly upon her own weapons. Her two sisters did the same. Wait! I snapped. Wait! Everyone turned to look at me. I must have looked like a raving madman standing there with my eyes half-focused, looking back and forth out of pure instinct and force of habit, as the island's intellectus informed me of the rapidly transpiring events. The White Court reinforcements had bypassed the Tower Hill and were headed for the beach to support Lara, which was something, at least. Lara's helicopter hadn't dropped them up there specifically to look for Morgan. It must have come up low, from the north, using the terrain of the hilltop to mask the sound of its arrival. I forced my attention back to the scene around me. Holy crap! I knew this would put the pressure on him, but this guy's gone to war! What? Listens to Wind asked. What are you talking about? Don't start in on one another, I snapped. Lara, we need to work together, or we're all dead. She turned her head a little to one side, staring at me. Why? Because, better than a hundred, one hundred ten now, beings have just arrived at different points of the island, and they aren't here to cater the little mixer we've got going. There are only nine of us, and fifteen of you. We're outnumbered five to one. Six to one now. Mai stared at me. What? Howls slithered into the air, muffled by the falling rain, 
but were made all the more eerie by the lack of direction to them. I recognized them at once. Binders, gray men. They were coming, moving with mindless purpose that cared nothing for the danger of a forest at night. The second group was nearer. They'd stopped growing at a hundred and twenty-five and were already on the move toward us. They weren't as fast as the gray men, but they were moving steadily and spreading out into an enormous curved line meant to sweep the forest and then encircle the quarry when they found it. Red light began to pour through the trees in their direction, casting eerie black shadows and turning the rain to blood. I forced myself to think, to ask Demon Reach the right questions. A second's consideration revealed that the two forces would converge on us at exactly the same time. They were working together. The numbers' disadvantage was too great. The wardens might get some spells off, and the senior council members would probably leave mounds of corpses piled around them. But outnumbered six to one, on a dark night, when they would have trouble seeing their targets before they were within a few steps, they wouldn't prevail. The large group would hit them from one side, and the smaller one would come from the other, boxing us in. Unless... Unless we could get to one of the two groups first, and eliminate it before its partner reached us and hit us from behind. Outnumbered as hideously as we were, the smartest thing would have been to run like hell, but I knew that no one would. The Council still had to recover Morgan. Lara still had to recover Thomas. Neither of them enjoyed the advantage I did. To them, the danger was only a vague threat, some howls in the dark, and it would remain so until it was too late to run. Which left us only one option. We had to attack. The gray men howled again from much closer. I gave Ebenezer a desperate glance and then stepped forward, lifting my staff. They've got us boxed in. Our only chance is to fight our way clear. Everyone with me. Lara and her sisters stared at me in confusion. The wardens did the same, but the fear in my voice and on my face was very real. And when one human being displays a fear response, those nearby it tend to find it psychologically contagious. The warden's eyes immediately went to ancient Mai. I started jogging, beckoning as I went, and Ebenezer immediately fell in with me. You heard the man, Ebenezer roared. Wardens, let's move! At his bellow, the dam broke, and the wardens surged forward to join us. Lara stared at me for another half a second, and then cried, Go! Go! to her sisters. They began running with us, effortlessly keeping pace, their motion so graceful and light that it hardly seemed possible that they would leave footprints. I looked over my shoulder as I slowly increased the pace. Ancient Mai had turned toward the hateful red glare coming from the forest to the south, facing it calmly. Wizard listens to wind, with me. Let us see if we can slow the progress of whatever is coming this way. Injun Joe went to her side, and the two of them stood there, gathering their will and muttering to each other. I consulted Demon Reach for the best route to follow toward the enemy, put my head down, and charged the demons that were coming to kill us, wardens and vampires alike, at my side. Chapter 42 Adrenaline does weird things to your head. You hear people talk about how everything slows down. That isn't the case. Nothing is happening slowly. It's just that you somehow seem to be able to fit a whole lot more thinking into the time and space that's there. 
It might feel like things have slowed down, but it's a transitory illusion. For example, I had time to reflect upon the nature of adrenaline and time while sprinting through the woods at night. It didn't make me run any faster, though. Although, if I wasn't actually moving my arms and legs faster than normal, then why was I twenty feet ahead of everyone else, the vampires included? I heard someone curse in the dark behind me as they tripped over an exposed root. I didn't trip. It wasn't that I had become more graceful. I just knew where to put my feet. It was as if every step I took was over a path that I had walked so many times that it had become ingrained in my muscle memory. I knew when to duck out of the way of a low-hanging branch, when to bound forward at an angle to my last step in order to clear an old stump, exactly how much I needed to shorten a quick pair of steps so that I could leap a sinkhole by pushing off my stronger leg. Lara Wraith herself was hard-pressed to keep pace with me, though she managed to close to within three or four yards, her pale skin all but glowing in the dark. The whole time, I tried to keep track of the position of the enemy. It wasn't a simple matter. I didn't have a big map of the island in my head, with glowing dots marking their positions. I just knew where they were, as long as I concentrated on keeping track of them. But as the number of enemies continued to increase, it got harder to keep track. The nearest of the hostile presences was about forty yards away when I lifted my fingers to my lips and let out a sharp whistle. Out there, in front of me, I shouted. Now, toot! It had been an enormous pain in the ass to wrap fireworks in plastic to waterproof them against the rain, and even more of a pain to make sure that a waterproof match was attached to each of the rockets, Roman candles, and miniature mortars. When I had Molly and Will scatter them around the woods in twenty separate positions, I'd gotten those is-he-crazy looks from both of them. After all, it isn't as if fireworks are heavy-duty weaponry capable of inflicting grievous bodily harm and wholesale destruction. They're just loud and bright and distracting. Which, under the circumstances, was more or less all I needed. Toot Toot and half a dozen members of the guard came streaking out of nowhere, miniature comets flashing through the vertical shadows of the trees. They went zipping ahead, alighting on low branches, and then tiny lights flickered as waterproof matches were set to fuses. A second later, a tiny, shrill trumpet shrieked from somewhere ahead of us, and a dozen Roman candles began shooting balls of burning chemicals out into the darkness, illuminating the crouched, running forms of at least ten of Binder's gray men in their cheap suits not fifty feet away. They froze at the sudden appearance of the flashing pyrotechnics, attempting to assess them as threats and determine where they were coming from. Perfect. I dropped to one knee, lifting my blasting rod as the human-seeming demons shrieked at the sudden appearance of the bright lights. I trained it on the nearest hesitating gray man, slammed my will down through the wooden haft, and snarled, Fuego! It was more difficult to do than it would have been if it hadn't been raining, but it was more than up to the task. A javelin of red-gold flame hissed through the rain, leaving a trail of white steam behind it. It touched the nearest of the gray men on one flank, and his cheap suit went up as readily as if it was lined with tar instead of rayon. The gray man yawled and began thrashing furiously. The fire engulfed him, throwing out light for a good thirty yards in every direction and illuminating his companions. I dropped flat, and an instant later the forest behind me belched forth power and death.
Guns roared on full automatic fire. That would be the wraiths. Lara and her sister's sidearms had been modified submachine guns with an enlarged ammunition clip, given the superhuman strength, perception, and coordination the vampires had at their disposal. They didn't suffer the same difficulties a human shooter would have faced, running at full speed in the dark, firing a weapon meant to be braced by a shooter's entire upper body in one hand, and their left hands at that. Bullets chewed into three different gray men, ten or eleven rounds each, all of them hitting between the neck and temple, blasting the demons back to ectoplasm. Then it was the warden's turn. Fire was the weapon of choice when it came to combat magic, Though it was taxing upon the will and physical stamina of the wizard, it got a lot of energy concentrated into a relatively small space. It illuminated darkness, something that was nearly always to a wizard's advantage, and it hurt. Every living thing had at least a healthy respect, if not an outright fear, of fire. Even more to the point, fire was a purifying force in its non-physical aspect. Dark magic could be consumed and destroyed by fire when used with that intent. The wardens used the zipping little fireballs from the Roman candles and my own improvised funeral pyre to target their own spells, and then the real fireworks started. Each individual wizard has his own particular quirks when it comes to how he uses his power. There is no industrial standard for how fire is evoked into use in battle. One of the wardens coming up behind me sent forth a stream of tiny stars that slewed through the night like machine gun fire, effortlessly burning holes through trees, rocks, and gray men with equal disdain. Another sent a stream of fire up in a high arch, and it crashed down among several gray men, splashing and clinging to any moving thing it struck like napalm. Lances of scarlet and blue and green fire burned through the air, reminding me for a mad moment of a scene from a Star Wars movie. Steam hissed and snarled everywhere, as a swath of woodland, forty yards across and half as deep, vanished into light and fury. Hell's bells! I mean, I'd seen wardens at work before, but it had all been fairly precise, controlled work. This was pure destruction, wholesale, industrial strength, and the heat of it was so intense that it sucked the air out of my lungs. The gray men, though, weren't impressed. Either they weren't bright enough to attempt to preserve their own existence, or they just didn't care. They scattered as they advanced, spreading out. Some of them rushed forward low to the ground and half hidden by the brush. Others bounded into the trees and came leaping and swinging forward branch by branch. Still more of them darted to the sides, out of the harsh glare of the fires, spreading out around us. Toot! I screamed over the roaring chaos. Go after the flankers! A tiny trumpet added its own notes to the din, and the pizza patrol zipped out into the woods, two or three of the little fairies working together to carry fresh Roman candles. They gleefully kept on with the fireworks, sending the little sulfurous balls of flame chasing the gray men trying to slip around us through the shadows, marking their positions. Lara let out a piercing call and came up to my side, gun in hand, snapping off snarling bursts every time a target presented itself. I pointed to either side and said, They're getting around us. We've got to stop them from taking my and Engine Joe from behind. Lara's eyes snapped left and right, and she said something to her sisters in ancient Etruscan, the tongue of the white court. One of them went in either direction, vanishing into the dark.
A gray man came crashing out of the flame twenty feet away from me, blazing like a grease fire. He showed absolutely no concern for the flame. He just sprinted forward and leapt at me, hands spread wide. I made it up to my knees and braced one end of my quarterstaff against the ground, aiming the other at the gray man's center of mass. The staff struck it, but not squarely. It twisted to one side at the impact, bounced off the ground, took a fraction of a second to reorient itself on me, and erupted into a cloud of ectoplasm as rounds from Lara's gun took its head apart. The next attacker was already on the way, out in the darkness beyond the firelight. I came to my feet and, on pure instinct, snapped off another blast of fire at the empty air twenty feet beyond Lara and about ten feet up. There was nothing there as I released the blast, and I knew it, but as the fire hissed through the falling rain, it illuminated the form of a gray man in the midst of a spectacular leap that would have ended at the small of Lara's back. The blast struck him and hammered him to one side so that he came down like a burning jet, crashing across a dozen yards of ground before dissolving into flame-licked mounds of swiftly vanishing transparent jelly. Lara didn't see the attacker until he'd tumbled past. Oh, she said, her voice conversational. That was gentlemanly of you, Dresden. I've been known to pull out chairs and open doors, too, I said. How very unfashionable, Lara said, her pale eyes gleaming. And endearing. Ebenezer stumped up to us, staff in hand, his eyes narrow and flickering all around us, while wardens continued to send blasts of power hammering into targets. Off in the woods behind us, submachine guns chattered. Apparently Lara's sisters were still hunting the gray men who had gotten around us. We've got one warden down, Ebenezer said. How bad? One of those things came out of a tree above her and tore her head off, he said. I tracked a slight motion in a nearby treetop and swiveled to point a finger. Sir, up there! Ebenezer grunted a word, reached out a hand, and made a sharp pulling motion. The gray man who had been clamoring toward us was seized by an unseen force, ripped out of the tree, and sent sailing on an arc that would land it in Lake Michigan a quarter of a mile from the nearest shore. Where's the second group? Ebenezer asked. I thought about it. They're at the dock, at the edge of the trees. They're closing on my and Engine Joe. I glanced at Lara. I think the vampires have been holding them off. Ebenezer spat a curse. That summoner is still out there somewhere. His pets won't last long in his reign, but we can't afford to give him time to call up more. Can you find him? I checked. There was so much confusion and motion on the island that Demon Reach had trouble distinguishing one being from another but I had a solid, if nonspecific, idea of where Binder was. Yeah, I sensed more movement and pointed behind us to where a trio of gray men had managed to close on a pair of wardens who were standing on either side of a still, red-spattered form on the ground. There! Ebenezer stopped talking to make another swift gesture, spoke a word, and one of the approaching gray men was suddenly and literally pounded flat by an invisible anvil. Ectoplasmic ichor flew everywhere. The two wardens, warned by the magical strike and now facing even odds, made short work of the remaining two. Ebenezer turned back to me and said, Shut down that summoner, Hoss. I'm taking the wardens back to support Injun Joe and Mai. Let's go, vampire. No, Lara said. If Binder is nearby, then so is my sweet cousin Madeline. I'll stay with Dresden. Ebenezer didn't argue with her. 
He just snarled, made a fist, and lifted it up. And Lara let out a short, choking cry and rose up ten feet into the air, her arms and legs snapping down straight, locking her body into a rigid board. I put a hand against his chest. Wait! He glanced at me from beneath shaggy gray brows. Let her down. She can come along. Ebenezer had no way of knowing that I wasn't out there alone. Georgia and Will were lurking nearby and could be at my side in a couple of seconds if necessary. Between the two of them, they had accounted for three gray men, too. I tried to put that knowledge behind a very slight emphasis in my tone and told him, I'll be fine. Ebenezer frowned at me, then shot a glance out at the woods and gave me a reluctant nod. He turned back to Lara and released her from the grip of his will. She didn't quite manage to fall gracefully and landed in a sprawl that gave me a great look at her long, intriguingly lovely legs. The old man eyed her and said, You just remember what I told you, Missy. She rose to her feet, her expression unreadable, but I knew her well enough to know that she was furious. My old mentor had just insulted her on multiple levels, not the least of which was pointing out to her exactly how easy it would be for him to make good on his previous threat. I'll remember, she said, her tone frosty. Wardens, Ebenezer said, on me. The old man broke into a woodsman's lope, a shuffle-footed, loose-kneed gait that managed unpredictable terrain well and covered ground with deceptive speed. The four remaining wardens fell into a wedge shape behind him, and they moved out heading south, back toward the docks and the confrontation with whoever had come forth from the never-never with his own army. Lara turned to me and nodded her head once, gesturing me to lead. I tried to fix Binder's presence firmly in mind, and was certain he was ahead of us and to the north, probably trying to circle widely around the scene of the battle with his minions. I started out through the woods again, pushing myself to move faster. This time, Lara stayed close behind me. She mimicked my movements, down to the length of my stride, taking advantage of my instinctive knowledge of demon reach. I have little interest in this mercenary, she said to me as we ran. She wasn't even breathing hard. Do with him as you would, but Madeline is mine. She might know something, I said. I can't believe anyone with half a mind would entrust her with knowledge of any importance. And I can't believe the treacherous bitch wouldn't steal every bit of information she could find to use against whoever she's working with, I replied, glancing back. Lara didn't dispute the statement, but her eyes hardened like silver mirrors, reflecting the dancing flames that were still burning here and there as we moved through the sight of the battle and out the other side. Madeline has betrayed me, my house and my court. She is mine. I prefer you remained a living, breathing ally. You will not interfere. What do you say to something like that? I shut my mouth and concentrated on finding Binder. It took us about five minutes to reach the piece of shoreline where Binder and his companion had come ashore. A pair of jet skis lay discarded on the beach, so that's how they'd done it. The tiny craft would have no problems at all skimming over the stone reefs surrounding the island, though they would have been hellish to ride in the rough water. We swung past the discarded equipment and up a little ridge line, running along a deer trail. I knew we were getting close, and suddenly Lara accelerated past me, supernaturally fleet of foot on the even ground. I don't know what triggered the explosion, 
It might have been a tripwire stretched across the trail. It's possible that it was detonated manually, too. There was a flash of light, and something hit me in the chest hard enough to knock me down. An ugly, asymmetrical shape was burned into my vision as I lay on my back, trying to sort out what had just happened. Then my body tingled, and Madeline Wraith appeared over me. I realized that she was straddling me. There was a fire burning somewhere close by, illuminating her. She was wearing a black surfer's wetsuit with short arms and legs unzipped past her navel. She held a mostly empty bottle of tequila in one hand. Her eyes were wide and shining with a disorienting riot of colors as she leaned down and kissed me on the forehead and... and hell's freaking bells. The pleasure that surged through me from that simple touch was delicious to the point of pain. Every nerve ending in my entire body lit up, as though someone had run up the wattage on my pleasure centers or injected their engines with nitrous. I felt my body arch up and shudder, a purely sexual reaction to a physical bliss that went far beyond sexuality. I stayed that way, locked into a quivering arch of ecstasy. It took maybe ten or fifteen seconds to subside. From a kiss. On the forehead. God, no wonder people came back to the vampires for more. I could barely register what was happening around me, so I only dimly noticed when Madeline produced a gun of her own, the other favorite model of those with more than human strength, a desert eagle. Good night, sweet wizard, Madeline purred, her hips grinding a slow rhythm against mine. She drew the half-inch-wide mouth of the gun over my cheek as she took a slug of tequila and then rested the gun's barrel gently on the spot she just kissed. It felt obscenely good, like a caress on skin that has just been shaved smooth but hasn't yet been touched. I knew that she was about to kill me, but I couldn't stop thinking how good it felt. And flights of angels, she panted, her breath coming faster, her eyes alight with excitement. Sing thee to thy rest. Chapter 43 I was still sorting things out after the titanic wallop the explosion had given the inside of my skull, when a dark-furred wolf emerged from the shadows of the night and slammed into Madeline Wraith like a loaded armored car. I heard bones breaking under the impact, and she was ripped off of me by the force of the dark wolf's rush. Will didn't stop there. He'd already hammered her once, and he knew better than to try his strength in fighting with a vampire, even if the members of the White Court were physically the weakest of the breed. He hit the ground and bounded away into the dark. Madeline screamed in surprised rage, and her gun went off several times, but I'm not sure you could call it shooting. She was on her knees, firing that big old desert eagle with one delicate hand and holding the now-broken tequila bottle in the other when the sandy brown wolf swept by on silent paws and ripped at Madeline's weapon hand with her fangs. The rip went deep into the muscles and tendons of Madeline's forearm, an almost surgically precise attack. The gun tumbled from her fingers and she whirled to swing the broken bottle at Georgia, but she was no more eager for a fair fight than Will had been, and by the time Madeline turned, Georgia was already bounding away, and Will, unnoticed, was on his way back in again. Fangs flashed, pale wraith blood flowed. 
the two wolves rushed back and forth in perfect rhythm, never giving the vampire a chance to pin one of them down. When Madeline finally realized how they were working her, she attempted to reverse herself suddenly the same instant Georgia began to retreat, to meet Will's rush squarely. But Will and Georgia had learned their trade from a real wolf, and they'd had eight years of what amounted to low-intensity but deadly earnest combat duty, defending several square blocks around the university from the depredations of both supernatural and mortal predators. They knew when the reverse was coming, and Georgia simply pirouetted on her paws and blindsided Madeline again. The vampire screamed in frustrated rage. She was furious, and she was slowing down. The members of the White Court were flesh and blood beings. They bled, bleed them enough, and they would die. I forced myself to start using my head again, finally shaking off the effects of both Madeline's psychotically delicious kiss and the concussion of whatever had exploded. I realized that I was covered with small cuts and scratches, that I was otherwise fine, and that Binder was less than twenty feet away. Will? Georgia? I screamed. Gun! The wolves leapt out of sight and vanished into the forest, with barely a leaf disturbed by their movements, half a second before Binder came out of the woods, a semi-automatic assault shotgun pressed against his shoulder. The mercenary was dressed in a wetsuit as well, though he'd put on a combat jacket and equipment harness over it and wore combat boots on his feet. Binder aimed the weapon after Will and Georgia and started rapidly hammering the woods with shells, more or less at random. Everyone thinks that shotgun pellets spread out to some ridiculous degree, and that if you aim a shotgun at a garage door and pull the trigger, you'll be able to drive a car through the resulting hole. That isn't so. Even when a shotgun has a very, very short barrel, which allows the load of pellets to spread out more. A longer-barreled weapon, like binders, will only spread the pellets out to about the size of my spread fingers at a hundred or hundred and fifty yards. Odds were good that he hadn't hit a damn thing, and given his experience, he probably knew it. He must have kept up the salvo to increase the intimidation factor and force the wolves to stay on the run. In the heat and adrenaline of a battle, gunshots can be hard to count, but I knew he fired eight times. I knew because through demon reach, I could feel the eight brass and plastic shell casings lying on the ground around him. He stood protectively over Madeline as he reached into his pockets, presumably to reload the weapon with fresh shells. I didn't give him the chance. I pulled my forty-four out of my duster pocket, sat up, and tried to stop wobbling. I sighted on his center mass and pulled the trigger. The revolver roared, and Binder's left leg flew out from beneath him, as if someone had hit it with a twenty-pound mallet. He let out a yelp of what sounded more like surprise than pain and hit the ground hard. In the odd little beat of heavy silence that came after the shot, I almost felt sorry for the guy. He'd had a tough couple of days. I heard him suck in a quick breath and clench his teeth over a howl of pain. Madeline whirled toward me, her dark hair gone stringy and flat in the rain. Her eyes burned pure white, as the hunger, the demon inside her, fed her more and more of its power and asserted more and more control. Her wetsuit had been torn open in several places, and paler than human blood smeared her paler than human flesh. She wasn't moving as well as she should have been, but she stalked toward me in a hunter's crouch, deliberate and steady. 
My bells were still ringing hard, and I didn't think I had time or focus to pull together a spell. And besides, my gun was already right there. It seemed like it would be a waste not to use it. I sighted on the spot where Madeline's heart should have been, and shot her in the belly, which wasn't terrible marksmanship under the circumstances. She cried out and staggered to one knee. Then she looked up, her empty white eyes furious, and stood up, continuing toward me. I shot again and missed, then repeated myself. I gripped the gun with both hands, clenching my teeth as I did, knowing I only had two more rounds. The next shot ripped a piece of meat the size of a racquetball out of one of her biceps, sending her down to one knee and drawing another scream. Before she could start moving again, I aimed and fired the last round. It hit her in the sternum, almost exactly between her wetsuit-contoured breasts. She jerked, her breath exploding from her in a little huff of surprise. She swayed, her eyelids fluttering, and I thought she was about to fall. But she didn't. The vampire's empty white eyes focused on me, and her mouth spread into a maniac's sneer. She reached down and picked up her own fallen weapon. She had to do it left-handed. The right was covered in a sheet of blood and flopped limply. Running low on options, I threw my empty gun at her face. She batted my revolver aside with a desert eagle. You, Madeline said, her voice hollow and wheezing, are a bad case of herpes, wizard. You're inconvenient, embarrassing, no real threat and you simply will not go away. Bitch, I replied wittily. I still hadn't gotten my head back together. Everything's relative, right? Don't kill him, Binder rasped. Madeline shot him a look that could freeze vodka. What? Binder was sitting on the ground. His shotgun was farther away than he could reach. He must have tossed it there, because when he had fallen, it was still in his hands. Binder had realized precisely how badly the fight had gone for his side, that he had been lamed and therefore probably could not escape, and he was making damn sure that he didn't look armed and dangerous. Death curse, he said, breathing hard. He could level the island with it. I drew in my breath, lifted my chin, and tried to keep my eyes from slipping out of focus. Boom, I said solemnly. Madeline looked bad. One of the bullets might have opened an artery. It was hard to tell in the near darkness. Perhaps you're right, Binder, she said. If he was a better shot, I suppose I might be in trouble. As it is, I'm inconvenienced. Her eyes widened slightly, and her tongue lashed quickly over her lips. And I need to feed if I'm to repair it. She lowered the gun, as if it had suddenly become too heavy to keep supporting. Don't worry, Binder, she said. When he's screaming my name, he won't be cursing anyone. And even if he tries it, she shivered, I'll bet it will taste incredible. She came closer, all pale skin and mangled flesh, and my body suddenly went insane with lust. Stupid body. It had a lot more cloud at the moment than it usually did, with my mind still reeling from the blast. I aimed a punch at Madeline's face. She caught my hand as the weak blow came in and kissed the inside of my wrist. Sweet silver lightning exploded up my arm and down my spine. Whatever was left of my brain went away, 
and the next thing I knew, she was pressing her chest against mine, her mouth against mine, slowly, sensuously overbearing me. And then a burned corpse came out of the woods. That was all I could think of to describe it. Half the body was blacker than a hamburger that had fallen through the bars of a charcoal grill. The rest was red and purple and swollen with bruises and bloody blisters, with very, very occasional strips of pale white skin. A few wisps of dark hair were attached to her skull. I say her because technically the corpse was female, though that hardly mattered amongst all the burned and pulverized meat that smelled slightly of tequila. The only things I really recognized were the cold silver eyes. Lara Wraith's eyes were bright with an insane rage and a terrible hunger as she snaked her bruised, swollen left arm around Madeline's windpipe and tightened it with a horrible strength. Madeline cried out as her head was jerked back sharply, and then she made no sound at all as the wind was trapped inside her lungs. The burned, blackened corpse that was Lara Wraith dug one fire-ruined hip into Madeline's upper back, using Madeline's own spine as a fulcrum against her. Lara spoke, and her voice was something straight from hell. It was lower, smokier, but every bit as lovely as it ever was. Madeline, she purred, I've wanted to do this with you since we were little girls. Lara's burned black right hand, withered, it seemed, down to bones and sinew, reached slowly, sensually around Madeline's straining abdomen. Slowly, very slowly, Lara sunk her fingertips into flesh, just beneath the floating rib on Madeline's left flank. Madeline's face contorted, and she tried to scream. Lara shuddered, her shoulders twisted, and she ripped an open furrow as wide as her four fingers across Madeline's stomach, pale flesh parting as wet red and gray things slithered out. Lara's tongue emerged from her mouth, bright pink, and touched Madeline's earlobe. Listen to me, she hissed. Her burned hand continued pulling things out of Madeline's body, a hideous intimacy. Listen to me. Power shuddered in those words. I felt an insane desire to rush toward Lara's ruined flesh and give her my ears, ripped off with my own fingers if necessary. Madeline shuddered, the strength gone out of her body. Her mouth continued trying to move, but her eyes went unfocused at the power in Lara's voice. For once in your life, Lara continued, kissing Madeline's throat with her burned, broken lips, you are going to be useful. Madeline's eyes rolled back in her head, and her body sagged helplessly back against Lara. My brain got back onto the clock. I pushed myself away from Lara and Madeline's nauseating, horribly compelling embrace. Binder was sitting with his hands over his ears, his eyes squeezed tightly shut. I grabbed him under the arms and hauled him away from the entwined wraiths, maybe fifty yards downhill, through some thick brush and around the bowl of a large old hickory tree. Binder was obviously in pain as I pulled him, and he was pushing with his unwounded leg, doing his best to assist me. Bloody hell, he panted as I set him down. Bloody hell and brimstone. 
I staggered and sat down across from him, panting to get my breath back and to push the sight of Lara devouring Madeline out of my head. No kidding. Some of the bloody fools I've known, Binder said. Can't stop talking about how tragic they are, the poor lonely vampires. How they're just like us, bloody idiots. Yeah, I said, my voice raw. We sat there for a few seconds. From up the slope there was a low, soft, and eager cry. We shuddered and tried to look as if we hadn't heard anything. Binder stared at me for a moment and then said, Why? Once Lara got going, she might not be able to stop. She'd have eaten you, too. Too right, Binder agreed fervently. But that ain't the question. Why? Somebody has to be human. Binder looked at me as if I was speaking in a language he'd never been very good at and hadn't heard in years. Then he looked sharply down and away. He nodded without looking up and said, Cheers, mate. Fuck you, I told him tiredly. How bad are you hit? Broke the bone, I think, he said. Didn't come out. Didn't hit anything too bad or I'd be gone by now. He'd already tied a strip of cloth tightly around the wound. His wetsuit was probably aiding it in acting as a pressure bandage. Who was Madeline working for? I asked. He shook his head. She didn't tell me. Think, I said. Think hard. All I know, he said, is that it was some bloke with a lot of money. I never talked to him. When she was on the phone with him, they spoke English. He wasn't a native speaker. Sounded like he learned it from a continental. I frowned. Television has most people confident that they could identify the nationality of anyone speaking English. But in the real world, accents could be muddy as hell. Especially when you learn from a non-native speaker. Try to imagine the results, for example, of a Polish man learning English from a German teaching at a Belgian university. The resulting accent would twist a linguist's brain into knots. I eyed Binder. Can you get out of here on your own? He shivered. This place? I bloody well can. I nodded. Binder was responsible for the death of a warden, but it wasn't as though it had been personal. I could bill that charge to Madeline Wraith's corpse. Do business in my town or against the council again, and I'll kill you. Clear? Crystal, mate. Crystal. I got up and started to go. I didn't have my staff, my blasting rod, or my gun. They were back up the hillside. I'd come back for them later. Wait, Binder said. He grunted and took off his belt, and I nearly kicked him in the head, thinking he was going for a weapon. Instead, he just offered the belt to me. It had a fairly normal-looking black fanny pack on it. What's that? I asked him. Two more concussion grenades, he said. I put two and two together. My brain was back on the job. You'd rather not be holding the matches to the one that got Lara, eh? Too right, he said. I started to turn away, and he touched my leg. He leaned toward me a bit and said very quietly, Waterproof pocket inside has a phone in it. Boss lady had me hold it for her. It's powered off. Maybe the lady cop will find it interesting. I stared hard at him for a second, and an understanding passed between us. If this pans out, I said, maybe I'll forget to mention to the wardens that you survived. He nodded and sank back onto the ground. Never want to see you again, mate. Too right I don't. 
I snapped the belt closed and hung it across one shoulder, where I could get to the larger pouch in a hurry if I needed to. Then I got on to the next point of business, finding Will and Georgia. They were both lying on the ground, maybe sixty yards from where I'd last seen them. It looked like they'd been circling around the site of the battle with Madeline, planning on coming back in from the far side. I moved easily and soundlessly through the woods and found them on the ground, back in human form. Will, I hissed quietly. He lifted his head and looked around vaguely. Uh, what? It's Harry, I said, kneeling down next to him. I took off my pentacle amulet and willed a gentle light from it. Are you hurt? Georgia murmured in discomfort at the light. The two of them were twined together rather intimately, actually, and I suddenly felt extremely, um, inappropriate. I shut off the light. Sorry, he slurred. We were going to come back, but it was really nice out here and confusing. I lost track, Georgia said, and fell over. Their pupils were dilated to the size of quarters, and I suddenly understood what had happened to them. Madeline's blood. They'd been inadvertently drugged while ripping at a succubus with their fangs. I'd heard stories about the blood of the White Court, but I hadn't been able to find any hard evidence, and it wasn't the sort of thing Thomas would ever talk about. Hell's bells, I muttered, frustrated. Madeline seemed to have a habit of inflicting far more damage by coincidence than intention. I heard a short, desperately pleasurable cry from nearby, in the direction where I knew Madeline and Lara were on the ground. Then silence. And Madeline wasn't on the island anymore. I lifted a hand in the air and let out a soft whistle. There was a fluttering sound, and then a small fairy hovered in the air beside me, suppressing the light that usually gathered around them when they flew. I could hear its wings buzzing and sensed its position through the island's intellectus. It wasn't Toot Toot, but one of his subordinates. Put a guard around these two, I said, indicating Will and Georgia. Hide them and try to lead off anyone who comes close. The little fairy let its wings blur with blue light twice in acknowledgement of the order and zipped off into the dark. A moment later, a double dozen of the militia were on the way, led by the member of the guard. Toot and company were generally reliable, within their limits. This was going to be pushing them. But I didn't have any other way of helping Will and Georgia at the moment, and the insanity was still in progress. Putting the little folk on guard duty might not be a foolproof protection, but it was the only one I had. I just have to hope for the best. I reached out to Demon Reach to find out about Ebenezer and the others, when a sense of fundamental wrongness twitched through my brain and sent runnels of fear and rage that did not belong to me oozing down my spine. I focused on the source of those feelings and suddenly understood the island's outrage at the presence of a visitor it actively detested. It had come ashore on the far side of the island from Chicago and was now moving swiftly through the trees, dragging a half-dead presence behind it. My brother. The Negloshi had come to Demon Reach. I stood there without allies, without most of my weapons, and grew sick with horror as the skinwalker bypassed the battle at the docks and moved in a straight line toward Demon Reach Tower. Toward Molly. Toward Donald Morgan. And it was moving fast. I put my head down, found the fastest route up the hill, and broke out into a flat sprint. 
praying that I could beat the skinwalker to the tower. Chapter 44 As I ran, I tried to keep track of the battle between the White Council and the forces of the traitor who had brought them to the island. Whatever the enemy had brought with him, they weren't anything close to human-shaped, and they were all over the place. The Council's forces, together with the White Court, were arranged in a half-circle at the shoreline, their backs protected by the lake. The attackers were stacked up at the tree line, where they would be able to hide, and they were probably making swift attacks at odd intervals. The two human-shaped presences who had arrived first were standing together in the forest, well back from the fight, and I felt a moment of severe frustration. If I could only get word to the wardens to tell them where the traitor was, they might be able to launch an effective attack, but I was pretty sure it wasn't possible. If I used more of the little folk, I'd have to stop to whistle some of them up and dispatch them to the task, and it was always possible that they wouldn't find the right target to point out to the council with their fireworks. Then, too, a wizard would be a far different sort of threat to the little folk than a vampire or the gray men had been. A wizard, particularly one smart enough to remain hidden within the council for years without betraying his treacherous goals, could swat little folk out of the air like insects, killing them by the score. Whether or not they thought they understood the risks, I wasn't going to send them into that. But I had to figure out something. The fight wasn't going well for the home team. There was blood mixed heavily with the rain on the muddy ground in the center of their defensive position. I gritted my teeth in frustration. I had to focus on my task for my brother's sake. If I stopped moving now, if I tried to bail the council and Lara's family out of their predicament, it could mean Thomas's life. Besides, if Ebenezer listens to wind and ancient Mai couldn't hold off their attackers, it was pretty much a given that I wouldn't be able to do any better. They would have to manage without me. I didn't quite get up to the tower before the skinwalker, but it was damn near a tie. I guess being a nine-foot-tall shapeshifter with a nocturnal predator's sense and superhuman strength was enough to trump even my alliance with the island spirit. Taken as an omen for the rest of the evening, it was hardly encouraging, but if I did the smart thing every time matters got dangerous, the world would probably come to an end. As it turned out, moving through the forest with perfect surety of where to put your feet is very nearly the same thing as moving in perfect silence. I reached the edge of the trees and saw the skinwalker coming up the opposite side of the bald knoll. I froze in place behind a screen of brush and shadows. The wind had continued to rise and grow cooler, coming in from the northeast, which meant that it was at the skinwalker's back. It would warn the creature should anything attempt to come slipping up his back trail, but it offered me a small advantage. Shagnasty wouldn't be able to get my scent. He came up the hill, all wiry limbs and stiff yellow fur that seemed entirely unaffected by what must have been a long swim, or by the rain that was currently falling in intermittent splatters. The racing clouds overhead parted for a few seconds, revealing a moon most of the way toward being full and a scythe of silver light swept briefly over the hilltop. It showed me Thomas. The Nagloshi was dragging him by one ankle. His shirt was gone, and his upper body was covered in so many fine cuts and scratches that they looked like marked roads in a particularly detailed atlas. He'd been beaten, too. One eye was swollen up until it looked like someone had stuck a half a peach against the socket. 
There were dark bruises all over his throat, too. He'd been strangled, maybe repeatedly, maybe for fun. His head, shoulders, and upper back dragged the ground, and his arms followed limply along. When the Nagloshi stopped walking, I saw his head move a little, maybe trying to spot some way to escape. His hair was still soaking wet and clinging to his head. I heard him let out a weak, wet cough. He was alive. Beaten, tortured, half-drowned in the icy water of Lake Michigan. But he was alive. I felt my hands clench as a hot and hungry anger suddenly burned through me. I hadn't planned on trying to take the Nagloshi alone. I'd wanted Lara and her people and every member of the council present to be there, too. That had been part of the plan. Establish a common interest by showing them that they had a common enemy. Then take the Nagloshi on with overwhelming force and force it to flee, at the very least, so that we could recover Thomas. I just hadn't counted on the traitor showing up in such numerical strength. Taking the Nagloshi on alone would be a fool's mistake. Anger might make a man bolder than he would be otherwise. It was possible that I could use it to help fuel my magic as well. But anger alone wouldn't give a man skill or strength that he didn't have already, and it wouldn't grant a mortal wizard undeniable power. All it could do is get me killed if I let it control me. I swallowed down my outrage and forced myself to watch the Nagloshi with cold, dispassionate eyes. Once I had a better opportunity, once I had spotted something that might give me a real chance at victory, I would strike. I promised my rage. I'd hit it with the best sucker punch of my life, backed by the ambient energy of demon reach. I focused my whole concentration on the skinwalker and waited. The skinwalker, I realized a moment later, was enormously powerful. I'd known that already, of course, but I hadn't been able to appreciate the threat it represented beyond the purely physical, even though I'd viewed it through my sight. That memory welled up again, trying to club me unconscious as it had before. It was difficult, but I shoved it away and ignored it. Through Demon Reach, I could appreciate its presence in a more tactile sense. The Skinwalker was virtually its own ley line, its own well of power. It had so much metaphysical mass that the dark river of energy flowing up from beneath the tower was partially disrupted by its presence in much the same way as the moon causes tidal shifts. The island reflected that disruption in many subtle ways. Animals fled from the Nagloshi as they might from the scent of a forest fire. Insects fell silent. Even the trees themselves seemed to grow hushed and quiet, despite the cold wind that should have been causing their branches to creak, their leaves to whisper. It paced up to the cottage where Morgan and my apprentice were hiding, and something odd happened. The stones of the cottage began to glimmer with streamers of foxfire. It wasn't a lot of light, only enough to be noticeable in the darkness, but as the Nagloshi took another step forward, the foxfire brightened and resolved itself into symbols, written on each stone in gentle fire. I had no idea what script it was written in. I had never seen the symbols before. The Nagloshi stopped in its tracks, and another flicker of moonlight showed me that it had bared its teeth. It took another step forward, and the symbols brightened even more. It let out a low, snarling noise and tried to take another step. Suddenly, its wiry fur was plastered tight to the front of its body, 
and it seemed unable to take another step forward. It stood there with one leg lifted and let out a spitting curse in a language I did not know. Then it retreated several steps, snarling, and turned to the tower. It approached the ruined tower a bit more warily than it had the cottage, and once again those flowing sigils appeared upon the stones, somehow seeming to repulse the Nagloshi before it could get closer than eight or ten feet to it. It let out a frustrated sound, muttered something to itself, and flicked out a hand, sending unseen streamers of power fluttering toward the tower. The symbols only seemed to glow brighter for a moment, as if absorbing the magic that the skinwalker had presumably meant to disrupt them. It cursed again, and then lifted Thomas idly, as though it planned on smashing his way through the stones using Thomas's skull. Then it glanced at my brother, cursed some more, and shook its head, muttering darkly to itself. It fell back from the tower, clearly frustrated, and just as clearly familiar with the symbols that allowed the stones to shed the power of the skinwalker as swiftly and as easily as they shed rainwater. Demon Reach's alien presence rarely seemed to convey anything understandable about itself, but for a few instants it did. As the skinwalker retreated, the island's spirit allowed itself a brief moment of smug satisfaction. What the hell was that stuff? Never mind, it didn't matter. Or rather, it could wait for further investigation. The important thing was that the game had just changed. I no longer had to get Thomas away from the skinwalker and then find a way to defeat it. All I had to do was get Thomas away. If I could grab my brother and drag him into the circle of the broken tower or into the sheltering walls of the cottage, it seemed as though we would be fine. If the very stones of the cottage repulsed the skinwalker's presence, then all we'd need to do is let Molly activate the crystal and wait the Nagloshi out. Regardless of the outcome of this night's battle, the Council would win the day, eventually. And even the worst thing they might do to us would be a better fate than the skinwalker would meet out. In an instant of rational clarity, I acknowledged to myself that there were about a million things that could go wrong with that plan. On the other hand, that plan had a significant advantage. There was at least one thing that could go right, which was exactly one more right thing than the previous take-back-my-brother-away-and-beat-the-skinwalker-up plan could produce if I tried it unassisted. I might actually pull this one off. Wizard! the skinwalker called. It faced the cottage and began walking in a slow circle around it. Wizard! Come forth! Give me the doomed warrior! I didn't answer him, naturally. I was busy changing position. If he kept pacing in a circle around the cottage, he would walk between me and the empty doorway. If I timed it right, I might be able to unleash a kinetic blast that would rip Thomas out of its grip and throw him into the cottage. Of course, it might also fail to rip Thomas out of the skinwalker's grip, in which case it might whiplash his limp body severely enough to break his neck. Or it might succeed and hit him hard enough to stop his heart or collapse a lung. And if my aim was off, I might be blasting Thomas out of the skinwalker's hands and into a stone wall. Given how badly off he looked at the moment, that might well kill him. Of course, the skinwalker would kill him if I did nothing. So, I would just have to be perfect. I got into position and licked my lips nervously. 
It was harder to work with pure, raw, kinetic energy, with force, than almost any other kind of magic. Unlike using fire or lightning, summoning up pure force required that everything in the spell had to come from the wizard's mind and will. Fire, once called, would behave exactly like fire, unless you worked to make it otherwise. Ditto lightning. But raw will had no basis in the natural order, so the visualization of it had to be particularly vivid and intent in the mind of the wizard using it. That was one reason I usually used my staff or another article to help focus my concentration when I worked with force. But my staff was several minutes away, and my kinetic energy rings, while powerful enough to handle the job, were essentially designed to send out lances of destructive energy to hurt things. And I hadn't designed the magic that supported them with on-the-fly modifications in mind. I couldn't soften the blow, so to speak, if I worked with the rings. I could kill Thomas if I used them. Wizard! Vanagloshi growled. I grow weary of this. I have come to honor the exchange of prisoners. Do not force me to take what I want. Just a few more steps, and it would be in position. My legs were shaking. My hands were shaking. I stared at them in shock for a second and realized that I was terrified. The mind specter of the skinwalker hammered at the doors of my thoughts and raked savagely at my concentration. I remembered the havoc it had wrought, the lives it had taken, and how easily it had avoided or overcome every threat that had been sent its way. Anything less than a flawless execution of the spell could cost my brother his life. What if the skinwalker was good enough to sense it coming? What if I misjudged the amount of force I needed to use? What if I missed? I wasn't even using a tool to help me focus the power, and my control was a little shaky on the best of days. What about the seconds after the spell? Even if I managed to do it right, it would leave me out in the open with a vengeful and enraged Nagloshi to keep me company. What would it do to me? The image of the half-cooked Lara ripping out Madeline's intestines burned in my thoughts. Somehow I knew that the Nagloshi would do worse. A lot worse. Then came the nastiest doubt of all. What if this had all been for nothing? What if the traitor escaped while I flailed around here? What if the politics of power meant that Morgan would pay the price for Lafortier's death despite everything? God, I really wanted that cold beer and a good book. Don't screw this up, I whispered to myself. Don't screw it up. The skinwalker passed in front of the empty cottage doorway, and a second later he dragged Thomas into line between the doorway and me. I lifted my right hand, focusing my will and aligning my thoughts, while the constantly shifting numbers and formulae of force calculation went spinning through my head. I suddenly spread my fingers and called, Forzari! Something approximately the same size and shape as the blade of a bulldozer went rushing across the ground between my brother and me, tearing up earth and gravel, root and plant. The unseen force dug into the earth an inch beneath Thomas, hammered into his unmoving form, and ripped him free of the Nagloshi's grip. He went tumbling over ten feet of ground to the doorway, and struck his head savagely on the stone wall, framing the door as he went through. Had his head flopped about with a lethally rubbery fluidity after the impact? Had I just broken my brother's neck? 
I let out a cry of agony and chagrin. At the same time, the skinwalker whirled to face me, crouched, and let out a furious roar that shook the air all around, sending drops of water that had beaded upon the leaves of the trees, raining to the earth in a fresh shower. That roar held all the fury of a mortally offended, maniacal ego, and promised a death that could only be described with the assistance of an encyclopedia of torments, a thesaurus, and a copy of Grey's Anatomy. Then a gloshi in my crystalline memory of the recent past, and the one standing in front of me, in the here and now, both rushed at me, huge and unstoppable, determined to hit me from either side and rip me to shreds. And suddenly, I did not care that this creature was a foe on par with any number of nightmares I would never dare to trade blows with. I did not care that I was probably about to die. I saw Kirby's still form in my head. I saw the small, broken figure of Andy in her hospital room. I saw my brother's wounds, remembered the agony the thing had caused me when I'd seen it through my sight. This creature had no place here. And if I was to die, I was not going to go out in a gibbering heap of terror. If I was to die, it wouldn't happen because I was half crippled with fear and sight trauma. If I was to die, it was going to be a bloody and spectacular mess. Bring it! I screamed back at the Nagloshi, my terror and rage making my voice sharp and high and rough. I cupped my right hand as if preparing to throw a baseball drew up my will, and filled my palm with scarlet fire. I thrust out my left hand and ran my will through the shield bracelet hanging there, preparing a defense. And as I did, I felt the power of the land beneath my feet, felt it spreading out around me, drawing in supportive energy. Bring it! Bring it, you dickless freak! The Nagloshi's form shifted from something almost human to a shape that was more like that of a gorilla its arms lengthening, its legs shortening. It rushed forward, bounding over the distance between us with terrifying speed, grace, and power, roaring as it came. It was also vanishing from sight, becoming one with the darkness as its veil closed around it, utterly invisible to the human eye. But Demon Reach knew where Shagnasty was, and so did I. In some distant corner of my mind, where my common sense apparently had some kind of vacation home, my brain noted with dismay that I had broken into a sprint of my own. I don't remember making the decision, but I was charging out to meet the skinwalker, screaming out a challenge in reply. I ran, embracing a rage that was very nearly madness, filling the fire in my hand with more and more power that surged higher every time one of my feet hit the ground, until it was blazing as bright as an acetylene torch. The Nagloshi leapt at me, horrible eyes burning and visible from within the veil, its clawed arms reaching out. I dropped into a baseball player's slide on my right hip and brought my shield up at an angle oblique to the skinwalker's motion. The creature hit the shield like a load of bricks and bounced up to continue in the same direction it had been leaping. The instant the Nagloshi had rebounded, I dropped the shield, screaming, Andy! and hurled a miniature sun up at the skinwalker's belly. Fire erupted in an explosion that lifted the skinwalker another dozen feet into the air, tumbling it tail over tea kettle, an expression that makes no goddamn sense whatsoever, yet seemed oddly appropriate to the moment. 
my nose filled with a hideous scent of burning hair and scorched meat, and then Agloshi howled in savage ecstasy or agony as it came tumbling down, bounced hard a couple of times, and then rolled to its feet. It came streaking toward me, its body shifting again behind its concealing veil, becoming something else, something more feline, maybe. It didn't matter to me. I reached out to the wind and rain and rumbling thunder around us and gathered a levy of lightning into my cupped hand. Then, instead of waiting for its charge, I turned my left hand over and triggered every charged energy ring I had left, unleashing their deadly force in a single salvo. Then Agloshi howled something in a tongue I didn't know, and the lances of force glanced off his veil, leaving concentric rings of spreading color where they struck. A bare second later, I lifted my cupped hand and screamed, Thomas! Folding us! Thunder loud enough to knock several stones loose from the tower shook the hilltop, and the blue-white flash of light was physically painful to the eyes. A thorny network of lightning leapt to the Nagloshi, whose defenses had not yet recovered from deflecting the blasts of the force rings. The deadly, delicate tracery of lightning hammered into the exact center of its chest, stopping its charge in its tracks. Smaller strikes, spreading out from the main bolt like the branches of a tree, snapped into the rocky ground in a half a dozen places, digging red-hot, skull-sized divots into the granite and flint. Exhaustion hit me like a hammer, and stars swam in my vision. I had never thrown punches that hard before, and even with the assistance of demon reach, the expenditure of energy needed to do so was literally staggering. I knew that if I pushed too hard, I'd collapse, but the skinwalker was still standing. It stumbled to one side, its veil faltering for a second, its eyes wide with surprise. I could just see it going through the Nagloshi's head. How in the world was I hitting him so accurately when it knew that its veil rendered it all but perfectly invisible? For one quick fraction of a second, I saw fear in its eyes, and triumphant fury roared through my weary body. The skinwalker recovered itself, changing again. With what looked like trivial effort, it reached down and ripped a section of rock shelf the size of a sidewalk paving stone from the rock. It flung the stone at me, three or four hundred pounds coming at me like a major league fastball. I dove to the side, slowed by exhaustion, but fast enough to get out of the way, and as I went, I gathered my will. This time, the silver-white streamers of soul fire danced and glittered around my right hand. I lay on the ground, too tired to get back up, and ground my teeth in determination as it charged me for what would, one way or another, be the last time. I didn't have breath to scream, but I could snarl. And this... I spat. It's for Kirby, you son of a bitch! I unleashed my will and screamed, Lockweos! A cord of pure force, glittering and flashing with soul fire, leapt out of the skinwalker. It attempted to deflect it, but it clearly hadn't been expecting me to turbocharge the spell. Then Agloshi's defenses barely slowed it, and the cord whipped three times around its throat and tightened savagely. The skinwalker's charge faltered, and it staggered to one side, its veil falling to shreds by degrees. It started shifting form wildly, struggling to get loose of the supernatural garrote, and failing. 
The edges of my vision were blurry and darkening, but I kept my will on him, drawing the noose tighter and tighter. It kicked and struggled wildly, and then changed tactics. It rolled up to a desperate crouch, extended a single talon, and swept it around in a circle, carving a furrow into the rock. It touched the circle with its will, and I felt it when the simple magical construct sprang up and cut off the new spell from its source of power, me. The silver cord shimmered and vanished. I lay there on the ground, barely able to lift my head. I looked toward the cottage in the safety it represented, standing only forty feet away. It might as well have been forty miles. Then the Gloshi ran its talons along the fur at its throat and made a satisfied growling noise. Then its eyes moved to me. Its mouth spread into a carnivorous smile. Then it stepped out of the circle and began to stalk nearer. One bloody and spectacular mess coming up. Chapter 45 Thanagloshi walked over to me and stood there, smiling, as its inhuman features shifted and contorted from something bestial back towards something almost human. It probably made it easier to talk. That was hardly pathetic at all, it murmured. Who gifted you with the life-fire, little mortal? Doubt you know him, I responded. It was an effort to speak, but I was used to meeting the rigorous demands of life as a reflexive smartass. He'd have taken you out. The skinwalker's smile widened. I find it astonishing that you could call forth the very fires of creation and yet have no faith with which to employ them. Hell's bells, I muttered. I get sick of sadistic twits like you. It tilted its head. It dragged its claws idly across the stone, sharpening them. Oh? You like seeing someone dangling on a hook, I said. It gets you off. And once I'm dead, the fun's over. So you feel like you have to drag things out with a conversation. Are you so eager to leave life, mortal? Then Agloshi purred. If the alternative is hanging around here with you, I sure as hell am, I replied. Get it over with or buzz off. Its claws moved, pure serpentine speed, and my face suddenly caught on fire. It hurt too much to scream. I doubled up, clutching my hands at the right side of my face, and felt my teeth grinding together. As you wish, then Agloshi said. It leaned closer. But let me leave you with this thought, little spirit caller. You think you've won a victory by taking the phage from my hands. But he was hanging meat for me for more than a day, and I left nothing behind. You don't have words for the things I did to him. I could hear its smile widening. It is starving, mad with hunger, and I smell a young female caller inside the Hogan, it purred. I was considering throwing the phage inside with her before you so kindly saved me the bother. Meditate upon that on your way to eternity. Even through the pain and the fear, my stomach twisted into frozen knots. Oh, God. Molly. 
I couldn't see out of my right eye, and I couldn't feel anything but pain. I turned my head far to the right so that my left eye could focus on the Nagloshi crouching over me, its long fingers tipped with bloodied black claws, twitching in what was an almost sexual anticipation. I didn't know if anyone had ever thrown a death curse backed by soul fire. I didn't know if using my own soul as fuel for a final conflagration would mean that it never went to wherever it is souls go once they're finished here. I just knew that no matter what happened, it wasn't going to hurt for much longer, and that I wanted to wipe that grin off the skinwalker's face before I went. I wasn't sure how defiant you could look with a one-eyed stare, but I did my best, even as I prepared the blast that would burn the life from my body as I unleashed it. Then there was a blur of light, and something darted past the Nagloshi's back. It tensed and let out a snarl of surprise, whirling away from me to stare after the source of light. Its back, I saw, bore a long and shallow wound, straight across its hunched shoulders, as narrow and fine as if cut by a scalpel. Or a box knife. Toot Toot whirled about in midair, a bloodied utility knife, clutched in one hand like a spear. He lifted a tiny trumpet to his lips and piped out a shrill challenge, the notes of a cavalry charge in high-pitched miniature. Avant, villain! He cried in a shrill, strident tone, then he darted at the skinwalker again. The Nagloshi roared and swept out a claw, but Toot evaded the blow and laid a nine-inch-long slice up the skinwalker's arm. It whirled on the tiny fairy in a sudden fury, its form shifting, becoming more feline, though it kept the long forelimbs. It pursued Toot, claws snatching, but my miniature captain of the guard was always a hair's breadth ahead. Toot! I called as loudly as I was able. Get out of there! Then Agloshi spat out an acidic-sounding curse as Toot avoided its claws again and slapped a hand at the air itself hissing out words in an alien tongue. The wind rose in a sudden, spiteful little gale, and it hammered Toot's tiny body from the air. He crashed into a patch of blackberry bushes at the edge of the clearing, and the sphere of light around him winked out with a dreadfully sudden finality. The Nagloshi turned, kicking dirt back toward the fallen fairy with its hind legs. Then it stalked toward me again, seething in fury. I watched him come, knowing that there was nothing I could do. At least I'd gotten Thomas away from the bastard. The Nagloshi's yellow eyes burned with hate as it closed the distance and lifted its claws. Hey, said a quiet voice. Ugly. I turned and stared across the small clearing at the same time the skinwalker did. I don't know how Injun Joe managed to get through the ring of attackers and to the summit of the hill, but he had. He stood there in moccasins, jeans, and a buckskin shirt decorated with bone beads and bits of turquoise. His long, silver hair hung in its customary braid, and the bone beads of his necklace gleamed pale in the night's gloom. The Nagloshi faced the medicine man without moving. The hilltop was completely silent and still. Then, Listens to Wind smiled. He hunkered down, and rubbed his hands in some mud and loose earth that lightly covered the rocky summit of the hill. He cupped his hands, raised them to just below his face, and inhaled through his nose, 
breathing in the scent of the earth. Then he rubbed his hands slowly together, the gesture somehow reminding me of a man preparing to undertake heavy, routine labor. He rose to his feet again and said calmly, Mother says you have no place here. The Nadloshi bared its fangs, its growl prowled around the hilltop like a beast unto itself. Lightning flashed overhead with no accompanying rumble of thunder. It cast a harsh, eerily silent glare down on the skinwalker. Listens to wind, turned his face up to the skies, and cocked his head slightly. Father says you are ugly, he reported. He narrowed his eyes and straightened his shoulders, facing the Nagloshi squarely as thunder rolled over the island, lending a monstrous growling undertone to the old man's voice. I give you this chance. Leave. Now. The skinwalker snarled. Old spirit caller, the failed guardian of a dead people, I do not fear you. Maybe you should, listens to wind said. The boy almost took you, and he doesn't even know the Dine, much less the old ways. Be gone. Last chance. The Nagloshi let out a warbling growl as its body changed, thickening, growing physically thicker, more powerful-looking. You are not a holy man. You do not follow the blessing way. You have no power over me. Don't plan to bind or banish you, old ghost, Injun Joe said. Just gonna kick your ass up between your ears. He clenched his hands into fists and said, Let's go. The skinwalker let out a howl and hurled its arms forward. Twin bands of darkness cascaded forth, splintering into dozens and dozens of shadowy serpents that slithered through the night air in a writhing cloud, darting toward listens to wind. The medicine man didn't flinch. He lifted his arms to the sky, threw back his head, and sang in the wavering high-pitched fashion of the native tribes. The rain, which had vanished almost entirely, came down again in an almost solid sheet of water that fell on maybe fifty square yards of hilltop, drenching the oncoming swarm of sorcery and melting it to nothing before it could become a threat. Injun Joe looked back down again at the Nagloshi. That the best you got? The Nagloshi snarled more words in unknown tongues and began flinging power with both arms. Balls of fire like the ones I'd seen at Chateau Wraith were followed by crackling spheres of blue sparks and wobbling green spheres of what looked like jello and smelled like sulfuric acid. It was an impressive display of evocation. Had a kitchen sink gone flying toward listens to wind, conjured from who knows where, it wouldn't have startled me. The Nagloshi pulled out all the stops, hurling enough raw power at the small, weathered medicine man to scour the hilltop clean to the bedrock. I have no idea how the old man countered it all, even though I watched him do it. Again, he sang, and this time shuffled his feet in time with the music, bending his old body forward and back again. The motions obviously slowed and muted by his age, but just as obviously part of a dance. He was wearing a band of bells on his ankles and another on each wrist, and they jingled in time with his singing. All that power coming at him seemed unable to find a mark. 
fire flashed by him as his feet shuffled and his body swayed without so much as singeing a hair. Crackling balls of lightning vanished a few feet in front of him and resumed their course a few feet beyond him, apparently without crossing the space between. Globes of acid wobbled in flight and splattered over the earth, sizzling and sending up clouds of choking vapors, but not actually doing him any harm. The defense was elegant. Rather than trying to match force against force and power against power, the failure of the incoming sorcery to harm listens to wind seemed like part of the natural order, as if the world was a place in which such a thing was perfectly normal, reasonable, and expected. But as the Nagloshi hurled agony and death in a futile effort to overcome listens to wind's power, it was also striding forward, closing the distance between them, until it stood less than twenty feet from the old medicine man. Then its eyes glittered with a terrible joy, and with a roar hurled itself physically upon the old man. My heart leapt into my throat. Listens to wind might not have come down on my side in this matter, but he had helped me more than once in the past, and was one of the few wizards to hold Ebenezer McCoy's respect. He was a decent man, and I didn't want to see him get hurt in my defense. I tried to cry out a warning, and as I did, I caught the look on his face as the Nagloshi pounced. Injun Joe was smiling, a fierce, wolfish smile. The Nagloshi came down, its mouth stretching into a wolf-like muzzle, extending claws on all four of its limbs as it prepared to savage the old man. But listens to wind spoke a single word, his voice shaking the air with power, and then his form melted and shifted, changing as fluidly as if he'd been made of liquid mercury, that until that moment had only been held in the shape of an old man by an effort of will. His form simply resolved itself into something different, as naturally and swiftly as taking a deep breath. When the Nagloshi came down, it didn't sink its claws into a leathery old wizard. Instead, it found itself muzzle to muzzle with a brown bear the size of a minibus. The bear let out a bone-shaking roar and surged forward, overwhelming the Nagloshi with raw mass and muscle power. If you've ever seen a furious beast like that in action, you know that it isn't something that can be done justice in any kind of description. The volume of the roar the surge of implacable muscle beneath heavy pelt, the flash of white fangs and glaring red-rimmed eyes combine into a whole that is far greater than the sum of its parts. It's terrifying, elemental, touching upon some ancient instinctual core inside every human alive that remembers that such things equal terror and death. Then Agloshi screamed, a weird and alien shriek and raked furiously at the bear, but it had outsmarted itself. Its long, elegantly sharp claws, perfect for eviscerating soft-skinned humans, simply did not have the mass and power they needed to force their way through the bear's thick pelt and the hide beneath, much less the depth to cut through layers of fat and heavy muscle. It might as well have strapped plastic combs to its limbs for all the good its claws did it. The bear seized the skinwalker's skull in its vast jaws, and for a second it looked like the fight was over. Then the Nagloshi blurred, and where a vaguely simian creature had been an instant before, there was only a tiny flash of urine-yellow fur, 
a long, lean creature like a ferret with oversized jaws. It wiggled free of the huge bear and evaded two slaps of its giant paws, letting out a defiant, mocking snarl as it slid free. But Engine Joe wasn't done yet either. The bear lifted itself into a ponderous leap and came down to earth again as a coyote, lean and swift, that raced after the ferret nimbly, fangs bright. It rushed after the fleeing ferret, which suddenly turned, jaws opening wide and then wider and wider, until an alligator coated in sparse tufts of yellow fur turned to meet the onrushing canine, which found itself too close to turn aside. The canine form melted as it shot toward the alligator's maw, and a dark-winged raven swept into the jaws and out the far side as they snapped shut. The raven turned its head and let out mocking caws of laughter as it flew away, circling around the clearing. The alligator shuddered all over and became a falcon, golden and swift, its head marked by tufts of yellowish fur that almost looked like the Nagloshi's ears had in its near-human form. It hurtled forward with supernatural speed, vanishing behind a veil as it flew. I heard the raven's wings beat overhead as it circled cautiously, looking for its enemy and then was struck from behind by the falcon's claws. I watched in horror as the hooked beak descended to rip at the captured raven and met the spiny, rock-hard back of a snapping turtle. A leathery head twisted and jaws that could cut through medium-gauge wire clamped onto the Nagloshi falcon's leg, and it let out another alien shriek of pain as the two went plummeting to the earth together. But in the last few feet, the turtle shimmered into the form of a flying squirrel, limbs extended wide, and it converted some of its falling momentum into forward motion, dropping to a roll as it hit the ground. The falcon wasn't so skilled. It began to change into something else, and struck the stony earth heavily, before it could finish resolving into a new form. The squirrel whirled, bounded, and became a mountain lion in mid-leap, landing on the stunned, confused mass of feathers and fur that was the Nagloshi. Fangs and claws tore, and black blood stained the ground to the sound of more horrible shrieks. The Nagloshi coalesced into an eerie shape, four legs and bat-like wings, with eyes and mouths everywhere. All the mouths were screaming in half a dozen different voices, and it managed to tear its way free of the mountain lion's grip and go flapping and tumbling awkwardly across the ground. It staggered wildly and began to leap clumsily into the air, bat wings beating. It looked like an albatross without enough headwind, and the mountain lion was hard on its heels the whole way, claws lashing out to tear and rake. The Nagloshi disappeared into the darkness, its howls drifting up in its wake as it fled. It continued to scream in pain, almost sobbing, as it rushed down the slope toward the lake, Demon Reach followed its departure with a surly sense of satisfaction, and I couldn't say that I blamed it. The Skinwalker fled the island. Its howls drifted on the night wind for a time, and then they were gone. The mountain lion stared in the direction that the Nagloshi had fled for long moments. Then he sat down, his head hanging, shivered, and became Injun Joe once more. The old man was sitting on the ground, supporting himself with both hands. He stood up slowly and a bit stiffly, and one of his arms looked like it might be broken midway between wrist and elbow. 
He continued to look after his routed opponent, then snorted once and turned to walk carefully over to me. Wow, I told him quietly. He lifted his chin slightly. For a moment, pride and power shone in his dark eyes. Then he smiled tiredly at me and was only a calm, tired-looking old man again. You claim this place as a sanctum? he asked. I nodded. Last night. He looked at me and couldn't seem to make up his mind whether to laugh in my face or slap me upside the head. You don't get into trouble by halves, do you, son? Uh, apparently not, I slurred. I spat blood from my mouth. There was a lot of that at the moment. My face hadn't stopped hurting just because the Nadloshi was gone. Injun Joe knelt down beside me and examined my wounds with a professional manner. Not life-threatening, he assured me. We need your help. You're kidding, I said. I'm tapped. I can't even walk. All you need is your mind, he said. There are trees around the battle below, trees that are under strain. Can you feel them? He'd barely said the words when I felt them through my link to the island's spirit. There were fourteen trees, in fact, most of them old willows near the water. Their branches were bowed down, sagging beneath enormous burdens. Yeah, I said. My voice sounded distant to me and full of detached calm. The island can be most swiftly rid of the beings in them, Injun Joe said, if it withdraws the water from the earth beneath those trees for a time. So, I said, how am I supposed to... I broke off in mid-sentence as I felt Demon Reach respond. It seemed to seize upon Injun Joe's words, but then I understood that nothing of the sort had happened. Demon Reach had understood Injun Joe only because it had understood the thoughts that those words created in my head. Communication by sound was a concept so inelegant and cumbersome and alien to the island spirit that it could never have truly happened. But my thoughts, those it could grasp. I could all but feel the soil shifting, settling slightly, as the island withdrew the water in the ground beneath those trees. It had the predictable side effect that I realized Injun Joe had been going for. Once the ground around the tree's roots had become arid, it began to leach water from the trees themselves, drawing it back out through the same capillary action that had brought it in. It flowed in from the outermost branches most quickly, leaving the structures behind it dry and brittle. Tree branches began to break with enormous popping cracks. A lot of branches broke, dozens, all within a few seconds and it was like listening to packs of firecrackers going off. There was a sudden cacophony of thunder and gunfire that rose up from the docks below and flashes of light that threw bizarre shadows against the clouds overhead. I tried to focus on my other knowledge of the island, and I felt it. The surge in energy being released below, the increased flow of strange blood into the ground beneath the affected trees, blood that they drank thirstily in their sudden drought conditions. The wardens were moving forward into the tree line. The vampires were racing ahead of them, their steps the light, swift stride of predators on the trail of wounded prey. Strange things were dying in the trees, amidst bursts of magic and flurries of gunfire. A light rose over the island, a bright silver star that hung in the air for a long moment like a flare. Once he saw that, Injun Joe's shoulders sagged a little, 
and he let out a slow, relieved breath. Good. Good. That's done for them. He shook his head and looked at me. You're a mess, boy. Do you have any supplies here? I tried to sit up and couldn't. The cottage, I blurted. Molly, Thomas, the, the vampire. I looked toward the bushes where one loyal little guardian had bought me precious seconds in the thick of the fight and started pushing my way to my feet. Toot. Easy, listens to Wynne said. Easy, easy, son. You can't just... The rest of what he had to say was drowned out by a vast, roaring noise. And everything, all my thoughts and fears, stopped making any noise at all inside my head. It was just... quiet. Gorgeously quiet. And nothing hurt. I had time to think to myself, I could get to liking this. Then, nothing. Chapter 46 I heard voices speaking somewhere nearby. My head was killing me, and my face felt tight and swollen. I could feel warmth on my right side and smelled the scent of burning wood. A fire popped and crackled. The ground beneath me was hard, but not cold. I was lying on blankets or something. Really no point to doing anything but waiting, Ebenezer said. Sure, they're under a roof, but it's leaking. And if nothing else, morning should take care of it. Ah, Ancient Mai muttered. I'm sure we could counter it easily enough. Not without risk, Ebenezer said in a reasonable tone. Morgan isn't going anywhere. What's the harm in waiting for the shield to fall? I do not care for this place, Ancient Mai replied. Its feng shui is unpleasant. And if the child was no warlock, she would have lowered the shield by now. No, came Molly's voice. It sounded weirdly modulated, as if being filtered through fifty feet of corrugated pipe in a kazoo. I'm not dropping the shield until Harry says it's okay. After a brief pause, she added, Uh, besides, I'm not sure how. A voice belonging to one of the wardens said, Maybe we could tunnel beneath it. I exhaled slowly, licked my cracked lips, and said, Don't bother. It's a sphere. Oh, Molly said. Oh, thank God, Harry. I sat up slowly, and before I had moved more than an inch or two, Injun Joe was supporting me. Easy, son, he said. Easy. You've lost some blood, and you've got a knot on your head that would knock off a hat. I felt really dizzy while he said that, but I stayed up. He passed me a canteen, and I drank, slowly and carefully, one swallow at a time. Then I opened my eyes and glanced around me. We were all in the ruined cottage. I sat on the floor near the fireplace. Ebenezer sat on the hearth in front of the fireplace. His old wooden staff leaned up against one shoulder. Ancient Mai stood on the opposite side of the cottage from me, flanked by four wardens. Morgan lay on the bedroll where I'd left him, unconscious or asleep, and Molly sat cross-legged on the floor beside him, holding the quartz crystal in both hands. It shimmered with a calm white light that illuminated the interior of the cottage much more thoroughly than the fire did, and a perfectly circular dome of light the size of a small camping tent enclosed both Morgan and my apprentice in a bubble of defensive energy. Hey, I said to Molly. Hey, she said back. Uh, I guess it worked, huh? Her eyes widened. 
You didn't know if it would? The design was sound, I said. I just never had a chance to field test it. Oh, Molly said. Um, it worked. I grunted. Then I looked up at Ebenezer. Sir? Hoss, he said. Glad you could join us. We waste time, Ancient Mai said. She looked at me and said, Tell your apprentice to drop the shield at once. In a minute. Her eyes narrowed, and the wardens beside her looked a little more alert. I ignored her and asked Molly, Where's Thomas? With his family, said a calm voice. I looked over my shoulder to see Lara Wraith standing in the doorway, a slender shape wrapped in one of the blankets from a bunk on the water beetle. She looked as pale and lovely as ever, though her hair had been burned down close to her scalp. Without it to frame her face, there was a greater sense of sharp, angular gauntness to her features, and her gray eyes seemed even larger and more distinct. Don't worry, Dresden. Your cat's paw will live to be manipulated another day. My people are taking care of him. I tried to find something in her face that would tell me anything else about Thomas. It wasn't there. She just watched me coolly. There, vampire, Ancient Mai said politely. You have seen him and spoken to him. What follows is council business. Lara smiled faintly at Ancient Mai and turned to me. One more thing before I go, Harry. Do you mind if I borrow the blanket? What if I do? I asked. She let it slip off one pale shoulder. I'd give it back, of course. The image of the swollen, bruised, burned creature that had kissed Madeline Wraith as it pulled out her entrails returned to my thoughts, vividly. Keep it, I told her. She smiled again, this time showing teeth, and bowed her head. Then she turned and left. I idly followed her progress down to the shore, where she walked out onto the floating dock and was gone. I looked at Ebenezer. What happened? He grunted. Whoever came through the never-never opened a gate about a hundred yards back in the trees, he said, and he brought about a hundred big old shaggy spiders with him. I blinked and frowned. Spiders? Ebenezer nodded. Not conjured forms, either. They were the real thing, from fairy, maybe. Gave us a real hard time. Some of them started webbing the trees while the others kept us busy trying to trap us in. Didn't want us getting behind them to whoever opened the gate, listens to wind, said. Didn't want anyone to see who it was, more likely, I said. That was our perp. That was the killer. Maybe, Ebenezer said quietly, nodding. As soon as those trees and the webbing came down, we started pushing the spiders back. He ran. And once he was gone, the spiders scattered, too. Damn it, I said quietly. That's what all this was about, Ebenezer said. There was no informant, no testimony. I nodded. I told you that to draw the real killer out, to force him to act. And he did. You saw it with your own eyes. That should be proof enough that Morgan is innocent. Ancient Mai shook her head. The only thing that proves is that someone else is willing to betray the council and has something to hide. It doesn't mean that Morgan couldn't have killed La Fortier. At best, it suggests that he did not act alone. Ebenezer gave her a steady look. Then he said, So there is a conspiracy now, is what you're saying? What was that you were saying earlier about simplicity? Mai glanced away from him and shrugged her shoulders. 
Dresden's theory is, admittedly, a simpler and more likely explanation, she sighed. It is, however, insufficient to the situation. Ebenezer scowled. Someone's got to hang? Mai turned her eyes back to him and held steady. That is precisely correct. It is plausible that Morgan was involved. The hard evidence universally suggests that he is guilty, and the White Council will not show weakness in the face of this act. We cannot afford to allow Lafortier's death to pass without retribution. Retribution, Ebenezer said, not justice. Justice is not what keeps the various powers in this world from destroying the White Council and having their way with humanity, Ancient Mai responded. Fear does that. Power does that. They must know that if they strike us, there will be deadly consequences. I am aware how reprehensible an act it would be to sentence an innocent man to death, and one who has repeatedly demonstrated his dedication to the well-being of the Council to boot. But on the whole, it is less destructive and less irresponsible than allowing our enemies to perceive weakness. Ebenezer put his elbows on his knees and looked at his hands. He shook his head once and then said nothing. Now, Ancient Mai said, turning her focus back to me, you will instruct your apprentice to lower the shield, or I will tear it down. Might want to take a few steps back before you do, I said. If anything but the proper sequence takes it apart, it explodes. It'll take out the cottage and the tower and the top of the hill. The kid and Morgan should be fine, though. Molly made a choking sound. <laughs> Finally made that idea work, did you? Ebenezer said. I shrugged. After those zombies turned up and just hammered their way through my defenses, I wanted something that would give me some options. How long did it take you to make? Nights and weekends for three months, I sighed. It was a real pain in the ass. Sounds it, Ebenezer agreed. Wizard McCoy, Mai said sharply. I remind you that Dresden and his apprentice aided and abetted a fugitive from justice. From behind me, listens to Wynne said, Mai, that's enough. She turned her eyes to him and stared hard. Enough, listens to Wind, repeated. The hour is dark enough without trying to paint more people with the same brush we're going to be forced to use on Morgan. One death is necessary. Adding two more innocents to the Count would be callous, pointless, and evil. The Council will interpret Dresden's actions as ultimately to the support of the laws of magic and the White Council. And that will be the end of it. There was no expression on Mai's face. Absolutely none. I couldn't have told you a darn thing about what was going on behind that mask. She stared at the two older wizards for a time, then at me. The Merlin will not be pleased. That is good, listens to Wind said. No one should be pleased with this day's outcome. I'll take Morgan into custody, my, Ebenezer said. Why don't you take the wardens back to the city in the boat? It should give you less trouble without me and Engine Joe on it. We'll follow along in the other boat. Your word, Mai said, that you will bring Morgan to Edinburgh. Bring him and bring him unharmed, Ebenezer said. You have my word. 
she nodded her head once. Wardens? Then she walked calmly out. The four wardens fell into step behind her. I kept track of them once they were outside. They started down the path that would lead them back to the dock. I looked up at listens to wind. I need your help with something, he nodded. There's a patch of blackberry bushes out there. One of the little folk tried to play guardian angel for me. The Naglosh... Don't say the word, listens to wind said calmly. It draws power from fear and from spreading its reputation. Referring to them by name can only increase their power. I snorted. I saw you send it running. You think I'm giving it any fear? Not at the moment, Injun Joe said. But speaking the word doesn't accomplish anything good. Besides, it's a sloppy habit to get into. I grunted. I could accept that. He'd probably phrase things that way intentionally. Besides, of the two of us, which one had a better track record against Nagloshi? I decided not to be an idiot and listen to the medicine man. The creature, I said. Knocked him out of the air. Maybe hurt or killed him. Injun Joe nodded. His broken arm had been splinted with a field dressing and wrapped in medical tape. The wardens had probably brought their own gear. I saw the very end of your fight, which is why I felt it appropriate to give the creature the same treatment. He shook his head. It took a lion's courage for the little one to do what he did. I already went looking for him. I felt a little bit sick. Was he... Listens to wind, smiled faintly and shook his head. Knocked senseless for a while and wounded by blackberry thorns, though his armor protected him from the worst of it. I found myself barking out a short little laugh of relief. That armor? You're kidding. He shook his head. Worst thing hurt was his pride, I think. His dark eyes sparkled. Little guy like that, taking on something so far out of his weight class. That was a sight to see. Ebenezer snorted. Yeah, wonder where the pixie learned that. I felt my cheeks coloring. I didn't want to do it. I had to. You picked a good fight, listens to Wind said. Not a very smart fight, but that old ghost is as close to pure evil as you'll ever see. Good man always stands against that. You had it on the run, I said. You could have killed it. Sure, listens to Wind said. Would have been a chase and then more fight. Might have taken hours. Would have made the old ghost desperate. It would have started using innocence as shields, obstacles, distractions. The old medicine man shrugged. Maybe I would have lost, too. And while it was going on, spiders would be eating fat old hillbillies and picking their fangs clean with his bones. Ebenezer snorted. Never would have happened. I don't much care for vampires, especially not those white court weasels, but I'll say this much for them. They can fight when they have a mind to. After the first rush, those bugs were a lot more careful. Yeah, I said. They didn't have much of a spine when they tried to stop me on the trail to Edinburgh. Both of the old wizards traded a look, and then Engine Joe turned back to me. You got jumped by spiders going through the way? Yeah, I said. I thought about it and was surprised. Had it happened so recently? Two days ago, when I came to Edinburgh, I told you about it. The killer must have had some kind of watch put on the Chicago end of the way to get them into position in time to intercept me. I let out a weary little snigger. What's so funny? 
Ebenezer asked. Nothing, I said, just appreciating irony and getting punchy. I guess he didn't want me letting the council know where Morgan was. Sounds like a reasonable theory, Injun Joe said. He looked at Ebenezer. Gotta be somebody at Edinburgh. Cuts the suspect pool down even more. Ebenezer grunted agreement. But not much. We're getting closer, he exhaled. But it won't do Morgan any good. He stood and his knees popped a couple of times on the way. All right, horse, he said quietly. I guess we can't put this off any longer. I folded my arms and looked at Ebenezer evenly. The old man's face darkened. Hoss, he said quietly, I hate this as much as you do, but as much as you don't like it, as much as I don't like it, ain't your mize right about this. The real killer will know that Morgan is innocent, but the other powers won't. They'll only see us doing business hard and quick, like always. Hell, they might even get the real killer enough confidence to slip up and make a mistake. I told Morgan I'd help him, I said, and I will. Son, Injun Joe said quietly, no one can help him now. I ground my teeth. Maybe, maybe not, but I'm not giving him to you, and I'll fight you if you make me. Ebenezer looked at me and then shook his head, smiling sadly. You couldn't fight one of your little pixie friends right now, boy. I shrugged. I'll try. You can't have him. Harry, said a quiet voice, weirdly mutated by the shield. I looked up to see Morgan lying quietly on his pallet, his eyes open and focused on me. It's all right, he said. I blinked at him. What? It's all right, he said quietly. I'll go with them. His eyes turned to Ebenezer. I killed Lafortier. I deceived Dresden into believing my innocence. I'll give you a deposition. Morgan, I said sharply, what the hell are you doing? My duty, he replied. There was, I thought, a faint note of pride in his voice, absent since he had appeared at my door. I've always known that it might call for me to give up my life to protect the Council. And so it has. I stared at the wounded man, my stomach churning. Morgan? You did your best, Morgan said quietly. Despite everything that has gone between us, you put yourself to the hazard again and again for my sake. It was a worthy effort, but it just wasn't to be. No shame in that. He closed his eyes again. You'll learn. If you live long enough, you never win them all. Damn it, I sighed. I tried to put my face in my hands and had to flinch back as my right cheek touched my skin and began to burn with pain. I still couldn't see out of my right eye. Damn it. After all this, damn it. The fire popped and crackled, and no one said anything. He's in a lot of pain, listens to wind, said quietly, breaking the silence. At least I can make him more comfortable. And you need some more attention, too. He put a hand on my shoulder. Take the shield down, please. I didn't want to do it. But this wasn't about me. I showed Molly how to lower the shield. 
We got Morgan settled into a bunk on the water beetle and prepared to leave. Molly, troubled and worried about me, had volunteered to stay with Morgan. Listens to Wind had offered to show her something of what he did with healing magic. I grabbed some painkillers while we were there and felt like I could at least walk far enough to find Will and Georgia. Demon Reach showed me where they were sleeping, and I led Ebenezer through the woods toward them. How did Engine Joe know about me claiming this place as a sanctum? I asked. Messenger arrived from Rashid, Ebenezer said. He's more familiar with what you can do with that kind of bond. So he went up to find you and get you to take those trees out from under the bugs. I shook my head. I've never seen anyone do shape-shifting the way he did it. Not many ever have, Ebenezer said, with obvious pride in his old friend's skills and his voice. After a moment, he said, He's offered to teach you some, if you want to learn. With my luck, I'd shift into a duck or something and not be able to come back out of it. He snorted quietly and then said, Not shifting. He knows more than any man alive about dealing with rage over injustice and being unfairly wronged. Now don't get me wrong. I think it's admirable that you have those kinds of feelings and choose to do something about them. But they can do terrible things to a man, too. His face was distant for a moment, his eyes focused elsewhere. Terrible things. He's been there. I think if you spent some time with him, you'd benefit by it. Aren't I a little old to be an apprentice? Stop learning, start dying, Ebenezer said, in the tone of a man quoting a bedrock firm maxim. You're never too old to learn. I got responsibilities, I said. I know. I'll think about it. He nodded. Then he paused for a moment, considering his next words. There's one thing about tonight that I can't figure, Hoss, my old mentor said. You went to all the trouble to get everyone here, to lure the killer here. I give you a perfect excuse to roam free behind the lines with no one looking over your shoulder so you can get the job done. But instead of slipping up through the weeds and taking down the killer, which would clear up this whole business, you go up to the hill and throw down with something you know damn well you can't beat. Yeah, I said, I know. Ebenezer spread his hands. Why? I walked for several tired, heavy steps before answering. Thomas got into trouble helping me. Thomas, Ebenezer said. The vampire, I shrugged. He was more important to you than stopping the possible fragmentation of the White Council? The creature was heading straight for the cottage. My apprentice and my client were both there, and he had Thomas, too. Ebenezer muttered something to himself. The girl had that crystal to protect herself with. Hell, son, if it went off as violently as you said it would, it might have killed the creature all by itself. He shook his head. Normally, I think you've got a pretty solid head on your shoulders, hoss, but that was a bad call. Maybe, I said quietly. No, maybe about it, he replied firmly. He's a friend. Ebenezer stopped in his tracks and faced me squarely. He's not your friend, Harry. You might be his, but he isn't yours. He's a vampire. When all's said and done, he'd eat you if he is hungry enough. It's what he is. Ebenezer gestured at the woods around us. Hell's bells, boy. We found what was left of that wraith creature's cousin after the battle, and I figure you saw what it did to its own blood. Yeah, 
I said, subdued. And that was her own family, he shook his head. Friendship means nothing to those creatures. They're so good at the lie that sometimes maybe they even believe it themselves. But in the end, you don't make friends with food. I've been around this world a while, Haas, and let me tell you, it's their nature. Sooner or later, it wins out. Thomas is different, I said. He eyed me. Oh? He shook his head and started walking again. Why don't you ask your apprentice exactly what made her drop the veil and use that shield, then? I started walking again. I didn't answer. We got back into Chicago in the witching hour. Ancient Mai and the wardens were waiting at the dock to escort Ebenezer, Injun Joe, and Morgan to Edinburgh in case of trouble. They left within three minutes of me tying the water beetle to the dock. I watched them go and sipped water through a straw. Listens to wind had cleaned my wounds and slapped several stitches onto my face, including a couple on my lower lip. He told me that I hadn't lost the eye and smeared the entire thing with a paste that looked like guano and smelled like honey. Then he'd made me a shoe-in for first place in the International Walking Wounded Idiot competition by covering that side of my face and part of my scalp with another bandage that wrapped all the way around my head. Added to the one I needed for the damned lump the skinwalker had given me, I looked like the subject of recent brain surgery, only surlier. Will and Georgia were sleeping it off under a spread sleeping bag on an inflatable mattress on the rear deck of the water beetle, when I walked down the dock, over to the parking lot, and up to a parked Mercedes. Vince rolled down his window and squinted at me. Did you curse everyone who desecrated your tomb, or just the English-speaking guys? You just lost your tip, I told him. Did you get it? He passed me a manila envelope without comment. Then he leaned over and opened his passenger door, and Mouse hopped down from the passenger seat and came eagerly around the car to greet me, wagging his tail. I knelt down and gave the big beastie a hug. Your dog is weird, Vince said. Mouse was licking my face. Yeah, what you gonna do? Vince grinned, and for just a second he didn't look at all nondescript. He had the kind of smile that could change the climate of a room. I stood up and nodded to him. You know where to send the bill. Yep, he said, and drove away. I went back down to the boat and poured some coke into the now-empty water bottle. I sipped at it carefully so that I wouldn't break open one of the cuts and bleed some more. I was too tired to clean it up. Molly fussed around the boat for a few minutes, making sure it was tied down, and then took two sets of spare shorts and T-shirts from the cabin's tiny closet and left them where Georgia and Will would find them. She finally wound up sitting down on the other bunk across the cabin from me. The shield, I said quietly. When did you use it? She swallowed. The skin... The creature threw Thomas into the cabin and he... She shuddered. Harry, he'd changed. It wasn't... It wasn't him. She licked her lips. He sat up and started sniffing the air like... Like a hungry wolf or something, looking around for me. And his body was... She blushed. He was hard, and he did something, and all of a sudden I wanted to just rip my clothes off, and I knew he wasn't in control, and I knew he would kill me, but 
I wanted to anyway. It was so intense. So you popped the shield. She swallowed and nodded. I think if I'd waited much longer, I wouldn't have been able to think of it. She looked up at me and back down. He was changed, Harry. It wasn't him anymore. I left nothing behind. You don't have words for the things I did to him. Thomas. I put the drink aside and folded my arms over my stomach. You did good, kid. She gave me a tired smile. An awkward silence fell. Molly seemed to search for something to say. They're... They're going to try Morgan tomorrow, she said quietly. I heard Mai say so. Yeah, I said. They expect us to be there. Oh, I said. We will be. Harry? We failed, she said. She swallowed. An innocent man is going to die. The killer is still loose. That entire battle took place and didn't accomplish anything. I looked up at her. Then, moving deliberately, I opened the manila envelope Vince had given me. What's that? she asked. Surveillance photos, I said quietly. Shot through a telephoto lens from a block away. She blinked at me. What? I hired Vince to take some pictures, I said. Well, technically, Murphy hired him because I was worried about my phone being bugged. But I'm getting the bill, so really, it was me. Pictures? What pictures? Of the way to Chicago from Edinburgh, I said, where it opens up into that alley behind the old meatpacking factory. I had Vince take pictures of anyone coming out of it right after I informed Edinburgh about the meeting on the island. Molly frowned. But why? Didn't give them time to think, kid, I said. I was fairly sure the killer was in Edinburgh, so I made sure he or she had to come to Chicago. I made sure he didn't have time to get here by alternate means. I drew out the pictures and started flipping through them. Vince had done a crisp, professional job. You could have used them for portraits, much less identification. McCoy, Mai, Listens to Wind, Bjorn, Bjorn Gunnarsson, the other wardens were all pictured, both in a wide shot, walking in a right stuff group, and in tight focus on each face. And I made sure Vince and Mouse were there to watch the only fast way into town from Scotland. While I did that, Molly puzzled through the logic. Then, that entire scenario on the island, the meeting, the fight, the entire thing was a ploy? Wily Coyote, I said wisely. Super genius. Molly shook her head. But you didn't tell anyone. Nobody. Had to look good, I said. Didn't know who the traitor might be, so I couldn't afford to give anyone any warning. Wow, Obi-Wan, the grasshopper said. I'm sort of impressed. The smackdown on the island plan might have worked, I said, and I needed it to get a crack at the skinwalker on friendly ground. But lately, I've started thinking that you don't ever plan on a single path to victory. You set things up so that you've got more than one way to win. What I really needed was a weapon I could use against the killer. I stared at the last photo for a moment, and then flipped it over and showed it to her. And now, I said, a snarl coming unbidden into my voice, I've got one. Molly looked at the picture blankly. Oh, she said. Who's that?
Chapter 47 Morgan's trial was held the next day, but since Scotland was six hours ahead of Chicago, I wound up getting about three hours' worth of sleep sitting up in the chair. My head and face hurt too much when I lay all the way down. When I got back to the apartment with Molly, Lucio was gone. I had been pretty sure she would be. I got up the next morning and took stock of myself in the mirror. What wasn't under a white bandage was mostly bruised. That was probably the concussion grenade. I was lucky. If I'd have been standing where Lara had been when Binder's grenade went off, the overpressure would probably have killed me. I was also lucky that we'd been outdoors, where there was nothing to contain and focus the blast. I didn't feel lucky, but I was. It could have been a fragmentation grenade spitting out a lethal cloud of shrapnel, though at least my duster would probably have offered me some protection from that. Against the blast wave of an explosion, it didn't do jack. Having gained something like respect for Binder's know-how when it came to mayhem, I realized that he may have been thinking exactly that when he picked his gear for the evening. I couldn't shower without getting my stitches wet, so after changing my bandages, I took a bird bath in the sink. I wore a button-up shirt, since I would probably compress my brain if I tried to pull on a tee. I also grabbed my formal black council robe with its blue stole and my warden's cape. I did my best to put my hair in order, though only about a third of it was showing, and I shaved. Wow, Molly said as I emerged. You're taking this pretty seriously. She was sitting in a chair near the fireplace, running her fingers lightly down Mr.'s spine. She was one of the few people he deemed worthy to properly appreciate him in a tactile sense. Molly wore her brown apprentice's robe, and if her hair was bright blue, at least she had it pulled back in a no-nonsense style. She never wore a lot of makeup these days, but today she was wearing none at all. She had made the very wise realization that the less attention she attracted from the council, the better off she would be. Yep. Cab here yet? She shook her head and rose, displacing Mr. He accepted the situation, despite the indignity. Come on, Mouse, she said. We'll give you a chance to go before we head out. The big dog happily followed her out the door. I got on the phone and called Thomas's apartment. There was no answer. I tried Lara's number, and Justine answered on the first ring. Ms. Wraith's phone? This is Harry Dresden, I said. Hello, Mr. Dresden, Justine replied, her tone businesslike and formal. She wasn't alone. How may I help you today? Now that the furor of the manhunt had blown over, my phone was probably safe to talk on, but only probably. I emulated Justine's vocal mannerisms. I'm calling to inquire after the condition of Thomas. He's here, Justine said. He's resting comfortably now. I'd seen what terrible shape Thomas was in. If he was resting comfortably, it was because he had fed, deeply and intently, with instinctive obsession. In all probability, my brother had killed someone. I hope he'll recover quickly, I said. His caretaker... That would be Justine. Is concerned about complications arising from his original condition. I was quiet for a moment. How bad is it? The business-like meter of her voice changed, filling with raw anxiety. He's under sedation. There was no choice. My knuckles creaked as they tightened on the earpiece of the phone. I left nothing behind, 
You don't have words for the things I did to him. I'd like to visit, if that can be arranged. She recovered, shifting back into personal assistant mode. I'll consult Ms. Wraith, Justine said. It may not be practical for several days. I see. Could you let me know as soon as possible, please? Of course. My number is... We have that information, Mr. Dresden. I'll be in touch soon. I thanked her and hung up. I bowed my head and found myself shaking with anger. If that thing had done my brother as much harm as it sounded like, I was going to find the Nagloshi and rip him to gerbil-sized pieces if I had to blow up every cave in New Mexico to do it. Molly appeared in the doorway. Harry, cab's here. Okay, I said. Let's go spoil someone's day. I tried not to think too hard about the fact that Wiley Coyote, super genius, pretty near always took a hideous beating at the hands of his foes and finished the day by plunging off a two-mile-high cliff. Well then, Harry, I thought to myself, you'll just have to remember not to repeat Wiley's mistake. If he would just keep going after he runs off the cliff rather than looking down at his feet, everything would be fine. They held the trial in Edinburgh. There wasn't much choice in that. Given the recent threats to the senior council and the unexpected intensity of the attack at Demon Reach, they wanted the most secure environment they could get. The trial was supposed to be held in closed session, according to the traditions of how such things were done, but this one was too big. Better than five hundred wizards, a sizable minority of the whole council would be there. Most of them would be allies of Lafortier and their supporters, who were more than eager to see justice done, which is a much prettier thing to do than to take bloodthirsty vengeance. Molly, Mouse, and I took the way, just as I had before. This time, when I reached the door, there was a double-sized complement of wardens on duty, led by the big Scandinavian, all of them from the old guard. I got a communal hostile glare from them as I approached, with only a desultory effort to disguise it as indifference. I ignored it. I was used to it. We went into the complex, past the guard stations, they were all fully manned as well, and walked toward the speaking room. Maybe it said something about the mindset of wizards in general that the place was called the speaking room, and not the listening room, or in the more common vernacular, an auditorium. It was an auditorium, though, Rows of stone benches rising in a full circle around a fairly small circular stone stage, rather like the old Greek theaters. But before we got to the speaking room, I turned off down a side passage. With difficulty, I got the wardens on guard to allow me, Mouse, and Molly into the ostentatory while one of them went to Ebenezer's room and asked him if he would see me. Molly had never been into the enormous room before and stared around it with unabashed curiosity. This place is amazing, she said. Is the food for the bigwigs only, or do you think they'd mind if I ate something? Ancient Mai doesn't weigh much more than a bird, I said. Lafortier's dead, and they haven't replaced him yet. I figure there's extra. She frowned. But is it supposed to be only for them? I shrugged. You're hungry. It's food. What do you think? I think I don't want to make anyone angry at me. Angrier? The kid has better sense than I do, in some matters. Ebenezer sent the warden back to bring me up to his room at once, 
and he'd already told the man to make sure Molly was fed from the buffet table. I tried not to smile at that. Ebenezer was of the opinion that apprentices were always hungry. Can't imagine whoever gave him that impression. I looked around his receiving room, which was lined with bookshelves filled to groaning. Ebenezer was an eclectic reader. King, Heinlein, and Clancy were piled up on the same shelves as Hawking and Nietzsche. Multiple variants of the great religious texts of the world were shamelessly mixed with the writings of Julius Caesar and D. H. Lawrence. Hundreds of books were handmade and handwritten, including illuminated grimoires any museum worth the name would readily steal, given the chance. Books were crammed in, both vertically and horizontally, and though the spines were mostly out, it seemed clear to me that it would take the patience of Job to find anything, unless one remembered where it had been most recently placed. Only one shelf looked neat. It was a row of plain leather-bound journals, all obviously of the same general design, but made with subtly different leathers and subtly different dyes that had aged independently of one another into different textures and shades. The books got older and more cracked and weathered rapidly as they moved from right to left. The leftmost pair looked like they might be in danger of falling to dust. The rightmost journal looked new and was sitting open. A pen held the pages down, maybe thirty pages in. I glanced at the last visible page where Ebenezer's writing flowed in a strong, blocky style. Seems clear that he had no idea of the island's original purpose. I sometimes can't help but think that there is such a thing as fate, or at least a higher power of some sort, attempting to arrange events in our favor, despite everything we, in our ignorance, do to thwart it. The Merlin has demanded that we put the boy under surveillance at once. I think he's a damn fool. Rashid says that warning him about the island would be pointless. He's a good judge of people, but I'm not so sure he's right this time. The boy's got a solid head on his shoulders, generally. And of all the wizards I know, he's among the three or four I'd be willing to see take up that particular mantle. I trust his judgment. But then again, I trusted Maggie's, too. Ebenezer's voice interrupted my reading. Hoss, he said. How's your head? Full of questions, I replied. I closed the journal and offered him the pen. My old mentor's smile only touched his eyes as he took the pen from me. He'd intended me to see what he'd written. My journal, he said. Well, the last three are. The ones before that were from my master. Master, huh? Didn't use to be a dirty word, Hoss. It meant teacher, guide, protector, professional, expert, as well as the negative things. But it's the nature of folks to remember the bad things and forget the good, I suppose. He tapped the three books previous to his own. My master's writings. He tapped the next four. His master's writings, and so on, back to here. He touched the first two books very gently. Can't hardly read them no more, even if he can make it through the language. Who wrote those two? Merlin, Ebenezer said simply. He reached past me to put his own journal back up in place. One of these days, Hoss, I think I'll need you to take care of these for me. I looked from the old man to the books. The journals and personal thoughts of master wizards for more than a thousand years? Ye gods and little fishes. That 
would be one hell of a read. Maybe, Ebenezer said, you'd have a thought or two of your own someday that you'd want to write down. Always the optimist, sir. He smiled briefly. Well, what brings you here before you head to the trial? I passed him the manila envelope Vince had given me. He frowned at me and then started looking through pictures. His frown deepened until he got to the very last picture. He stopped breathing, and I was sure that he understood the implication. Ebenezer's brain doesn't let much grass grow under its lobes. Stars and stones, Hoss, Ebenezer said quietly. Thought ahead this time, didn't you? Even a broken clock gets it right occasionally, I said. He put the papers back in the envelope and gave it back to me. Okay, how do you see this playing out? At the trial, right before the end. I want him thinking he's gotten away with it. Ebenezer snorted. You're going to make ancient Mai and about 500 former associates of Le Fortier very angry. Yeah, I hardly slept last night I was so worried about him. He snorted. I've got a theory about something. Oh? I told him. Ebenezer's face darkened sentence by sentence. He turned his hands palm up and looked down at them. They were broad, strong, seamed, and calloused with work, and they were steady. There were scabs on one palm, where he had fallen to the ground during last night's melee. Ink stained some of his fingertips. I'll need to take some steps, he said. You'd best get a move on. I nodded. See you there? He took his spectacles off and began to polish the lenses carefully with a handkerchief. I... The trial began less than an hour later. I sat on a stone bench that was set over to one side of the stage floor, Molly at my side. We were to be witnesses. Mouse sat on the floor beside me. He was going to be a witness too, though I was the only one who knew it. The seats were all filled. That was why the council met at various locations out in the real world, rather than in Edinburgh all the time. There simply wasn't enough room. Wardens formed a perimeter all the way around the stage, at the doors, and in the aisles that came down between the rows of benches. Everyone present was wearing his or her formal robes, all flowing black with stoles of silk and satin in one of the various colors and patterns of trim that denoted status among the council's members. Blue stoles for members, red for those with a century of service, a braided silver cord for acknowledged master alchemists, a gold-stitched caduceus for master healers, a copper chevron near the collar for those with a doctorate in a scholarly discipline. Some of the wizards had so many of them that they had stretched the fabric of the stole, an embroidered white seal of Solomon for master exorcists, and so on. I had a plain blue stole with no ornaments whatsoever, though I'd been toying with the idea of embroidering GED on it in red, white, and blue thread. Molly was the only one in the room wearing a brown robe. People were avoiding our gazes. The White Council loved its ceremonies. Anastasia Lucio appeared in the doorway in her full regalia, plus the gray cloak of the wardens. Her arm was still in a sling, but she carried the ceremonial staff of office of the captain of the wardens in one hand. She entered the room, and the murmuring buzz of the crowd fell silent. She slammed the end of the staff three times upon the floor, and the six members of the senior council 
entered in their dark robes and purple stoles, led by the Merlin. They proceeded to the center rear of the stage and stood solemnly. Peabody appeared, carrying a lap-sized writing desk, and sat down on the far end of the bench from Molly and me to begin taking notes, his pen scratching. I put my hand on Mouse's head and waited for the show to begin, because that's all this was, a show. Two more wardens appeared with a bound figure between them. Morgan was brought in and stood as all accused brought before the council did, with his hands bound in front of him and a black hood over his head. He wasn't in any shape to be walking, the idiot, but he was managing to limp heavily along without being physically supported by either warden. He must have been on a load of painkillers to manage it. The Merlin, speaking in Latin, said, We have convened today in a matter of justice to try one Donald Morgan, who stands accused of the premeditated murder of senior council member Aleron Lafortier, conspiracy with the enemies of the White Council and treason against the White Council. We will begin with a review of the evidence. They stacked things up against Morgan for a while, laying out all the damning evidence. They had a lot of it. Morgan standing there with the murder weapon in his hand over the still warm corpse. The bank account with slightly less than six million dollars suddenly appearing in it. The fact that he had escaped detention and badly wounded three wardens in the process, and subsequently committing sedition by misleading other wizards, Molly and I were just barely mentioned by name, into helping him hide from the wardens. Donald Morgan, the Merlin said. Have you anything to say in your defense? That part was sort of unusual. The accused were very rarely given much of a chance to say anything. It clouded issues, so. I do not contest the charges, Morgan said firmly through his black hood. I, and I alone, am responsible for Lafortier's death. The Merlin looked like he just found out that someone had cooked up his own puppy in the sausage at breakfast that morning. He nodded once. If there is no other evidence, then the senior counsel will now pass. I stood up. The Merlin broke off and blinked at me. The room fell into a dead silence except for the scratch of Peabody's pen. He paused to turn to a new page and pulled a second inkwell out of his pocket, placing it on the writing desk. Anastasia stared at me with her lips pressed together, her eyes questioning. What the hell was I doing? I winked at her then walked out into the center of the stage and turned to face the senior counsel. Warden Dresden, Ebenezer said, have you some new evidence to present for the senior counsel's consideration? I do, I said. Point of order, Ancient Mai injected smoothly. Warden Dresden was not present at the murder or when the accused escaped custody. He can offer no direct testimony as to the truth or falsehood of those events. Another point of order, listens to wind, said. Warden Dresden earns a living as a private investigator, and his propensity for ferreting out the truth in difficult circumstances is well established. Mai looked daggers at Injun Joe. Warden Dresden, the Merlin said heavily, your history of conflict with Warden Morgan acting in his role as a warden of the White Council is well known. You should be advised that any damning testimony you give 
will be leavened with the knowledge of your history of extreme, sometimes violent, animosity. The Merlin wasn't the Merlin for nothing. He had instincts enough to sense that maybe the game wasn't over yet, after all, and he knew how to play to the crowd. He wasn't warning me so much as making sure that the wizards present knew how much I didn't like Morgan, so that my support would be that much more convincing. I understand, I said. The Merlin nodded. Proceed. I beamed at him. I feel just like Hercule Poirot, I said in my reasonably functional Latin. Let me enjoy this for a second. I took a deep breath and exhaled in satisfaction. The Merlin had masterful self-control. His expression never changed, but his left eye twitched in a nervous tick. Score one for the cartoon coyote. I first became suspicious that Morgan was being framed, well, basically, when I heard the ridiculous charge against him, I said. I don't know if you know this man, but I do. He's hounded me for most of my life. If he'd been accused of lopping off the heads of baby bunny rabbits because someone accused them of being warlocks, I could buy that. But this man could no more betray the White Council than he could flap his arms and fly. Working from that point... I hypothesized that another person within the council had killed Lafortier and set Morgan up to take the blame. So I began an independent investigation. I gave the senior council and the watching crowd of wizards the rundown of the past few days, leaving out the overly sensitive and unimportant bits. My investigation culminated in the theory that the guilty individual was not only trying to fix the blame upon Morgan— but planting the seeds of a renewed outbreak of hostilities with a vampire white court by implicating them in the death. In an effort to manipulate this person into betraying himself, I continued, I let it be known that a conspirator had come forward to confess their part in the scheme and would address members of the White Council at a certain place and time in Chicago. Working on the theory that the true killer was a member of the council, indeed, someone here at headquarters in Edinburgh, I hypothesized that he would have little choice but to come to Chicago through the way from Edinburgh, and I had the exit of that way placed under surveillance. I held up the manila envelope. These are the photographs taken at the scene of everyone who came through the way during the next several hours. I opened the envelope and began passing the senior council the photos. They took them, looking at each in turn. Ebenezer calmly confirmed that the images of the wardens exiting the way together with himself, Mai, and Listens to Wind were accurate. Other than this group, I said, I believe it is highly unlikely that anyone from Edinburgh should have randomly arrived at the way in Chicago. Given that the group was indeed assaulted by creatures with the support of a wizard of council-level skill at that meeting, I believe it is reasonable to state that the killer took the bait. I turned, drawing out the last photo with a dramatic flourish worthy of Poirot, and held it up so that the crowd could see it while I said, So why don't you tell us what you were doing in the Chicago area last night? Wizard Peabody. If I'd had a keyboard player lurking nearby for a soap opera organ sting, it would have been perfect. Everyone on the senior council, except Ebenezer and, for some reason, the gatekeeper, turned to stare slack-jawed at Peabody. The senior council secretary sat perfectly still beneath his little lap desk.
Then he said, I take it that you have proof more convincing than a simple visual image. Such things are easily manufactured. In fact, I said, I do. I had a witness who was close enough to smell you. On cue, Mouse stood up and turned toward Peabody. His low growl filled the room like a big, gentle drum roll. That's all you have? Peabody asked. A photo? And a dog? Mai looked as if someone had hit her between the eyes with a sledgehammer. That, she said in a breathless tone, is a foo dog. She stared at me. Where did you get such a thing? And why were you allowed to keep it? He sort of picked me, I said. The Merlin's eyes had brightened. My, the beast's identification is reliable? She stared at me in obvious confusion. Entirely. There are several other wizards present who could testify to the fact. Yes, rumbled a stocky, bald man with an Asian cast to his features. It's true, said a middle-aged woman with skin several tones darker than my own, maybe from India or Pakistan. Interesting, the Merlin said, turning toward Peabody. There was something almost shark-like about his sudden focus. Working on the evidence Dresden found, Ebenezer said. Warden Ramirez and I searched Peabody's chambers thoroughly not twenty minutes ago. A test of the inks he used to attain the signatures of the senior counsel for various authorizations revealed the presence of a number of chemical and alchemical substances that are known to have been used to assist psychic manipulation of their subjects. It is my belief that Peabody has been drugging the ink for the purpose of attempting greater mental influence over the decisions of members of the senior council, and that it is entirely possible that he has compromised the free will of younger members of the council outright, listens to Wynne's mouth opened in sudden surprise and understanding. He looked down at his ink-stained fingertips and then up at Peabody. Peabody may not have seen the man turn into a grizzly, but he was bright enough to know that Injun Joe was getting set to adjust another relative ass-to-ears ratio. The little secretary took one look around the room, and then at my dog. The expression went out of his face. The end, he said calmly and clearly, is nigh. And then he flung his spare pot of ink onto the floor, shattering the glass. Mouse let out a woofing bark of warning and knocked Molly backward off of the bench as a dark cloud rose up away from the smashed bottle, swelling with supernatural speed, tendrils reaching out in all directions. One of them caught a warden who had leapt forward toward Peabody. It encircled his chest and then closed. Everything the slender thread of mist touched turned instantly to a fine black ash, slicing through him as efficiently as an electric knife through deli meat. The two pieces of the former warden fell to the floor with wet, heavy thumps. I'd seen almost exactly the same thing happen once before, years ago. Get back! I screamed. It's Mordite! Then the lights went out, and the room exploded into screams and chaos. Chapter 48 the truly scary part wasn't that I was standing five feet away from a cloud of weapons-grade death stone that would rip the very life force out of everything it touched. 
It wasn't that I had confronted someone who was probably a member of the Black Council, probably as deadly in a tussle as their members always seemed to be, and who was certainly fighting with his back to the wall and nothing to lose. It wasn't even the fact that the lights had all gone out and that a battle to the death was about to ensue. The scary part was that I was standing in a relatively small, enclosed space with nearly 600 wizards of the White Council, men and women with the primordial powers of the universe at their beck and call, and that, for the most part, only the wardens among them had much experience in controlling violent magic in combat conditions. It was like standing in an industrial propane plant with 500 chain-smoking pyromaniacs double-jonesing for a hit. It would only take one dummy to kill us all, and we had 499 to spare. No lights! I screamed, backing up from where I'd last seen the cloud. No lights! But my voice was only one amongst hundreds, and dozens of wizards reacted in the way I and Peabody had known they would. They immediately called light. It made them instant, easy targets. Cloudy tendrils of concentrated death whipped out to strike at the source of any light, spearing directly through anyone who got in the way. I saw one elderly woman lose an arm at the elbow as the Mordite-laden cloud sent a spear of darkness flying at a wizard seated two rows behind her. A dark-skinned man with gold dangling from each ear roughly pushed a younger woman who had called light to her crystal in her hand. The tendril missed the woman but struck him squarely instantly dissolving a hole in his chest a foot across, and all but cut his corpse in half as it fell to the floor. Screams rose, sounds of genuine pain and terror, sounds the human body and mind are designed to recognize, and to which they have no choice but to react. It hit me as hard as the first time I'd ever heard it happen. The desire to be away from whatever was causing such fear, combined with the simultaneous engagement of adrenaline, the need to act, to help, calmly, said a voice from right beside my right ear, except that it couldn't have been there because bandages covered that side of my head completely, and it was physically impossible for a voice to come through that clearly, which meant that the voice was an illusion. It was in my head. Furthermore, I recognized the voice. It was Langtree's, the Merlin. Council members get on the ground immediately, said the Merlin's calm, unshakable voice. Assist anyone who is bleeding, and do not attempt to use lights until the mist fiend is contained. Senior Council, I have already engaged the mist fiend, and am preventing it from moving any farther away. Rashid, prevent it from moving forward and disintegrating me, if you please. My and Martha Liberty take its right flank. McCoy, and listens to wind, it's left. It's rather strong-willed, so let's not dawdle, and remember that we must also prevent it from moving upward. The entire length of that dialogue, though I could have sworn it was physically audible, was delivered in less than half a second, speech at the speed of thought. It came accompanied with a simplified image of the speaking room, as if it had been drawn on a mental chalkboard, I could clearly see the swirling outline of the mist fiend surrounded by short blocks, with each block labeled with the names of the senior council and drawn to represent a section of three-dimensional dome that would hem the cloudy terror in. Hell's bells! The Merlin had, in the literal length of a second and a half, turned pure confusion 
into an ordered battle. I guess maybe you don't get to be the Merlin of the White Council by saving up frequent flyer miles. I'd just never seen him in motion before. Warden Dresden, the Merlin said, or thought, or projected. If you would be so good as to prevent Peabody from escaping, Warden Thorson and his cadre are on their way to support you. But we need someone to hound Peabody and prevent him from further mischief. We do not yet know the extent of his psychic manipulations, so trust none of the younger wardens. I love being a wizard. Every day is like Disneyland. I ripped off my ridiculous stole, robe, and cloak as I turned toward the doorway. The frantic motions of panic made the two or three light sources that had not been instantly snuffed into independent stroboscopes. Running toward the room's exit was a surreal experience, but I was certain that Peabody had planned his steps before he'd begun to move, and he'd had plenty of time to sprint across the room in the darkness and leave the auditorium. I tried to think like a wizard, who had just been outed as Black Council and marked for capture, interrogation, and probable death. Given that I had been fairly sure it was going to happen to me over the past few days, I'd already given consideration to how to get out of Council HQ, and I figured Peabody had taken more time to plan than I had. If I was him, I'd rip open a way into the never-never and close it behind me. I'd find a good spot to get out, and then I'd make sure it was prepared to be as lethally hostile to pursuers as I could make it. The centuries upon centuries of wards placed upon the Edinburgh tunnels by generations of wizards, though, prevented any opening to the never-never from inside the security checkpoints. So Peabody would have to get through at least one warden man's security gate before he enacted his plan. I had to stop him before he got that far. I plunged through the doorway and noted that both wardens on guard outside were of the younger generation, who had risen to the ranks since the disastrous battle with the Red Court in Sicily. Both young men were standing blankly at attention, showing no reaction whatsoever to the furor in the speaking room. A corner of a black formal robe snapped as its wearer rounded a corner in the hallway to my right, and I was off and running. I felt like hell, but for a refreshing change of pace, I had an advantage over an older, more experienced wizard. I was younger and in better shape. Wizards might stay alive and vigorous for centuries, but their bodies still tend to lose physical ability if they do not take great pains to stay in training. Even then, they still don't have the raw capabilities of a young person, and running at a dead sprint is as raw as physical activity gets. I rounded the corner and caught a glimpse of Peabody running up ahead of me. He turned another corner, and by the time I rounded that one, I had gained several steps on him. We blew through administration and past the warden barracks, where three wardens, who were still freaking teenagers, the dangerous babies we'd hurried through military training for the war, emerged from the doors twenty feet ahead of Peabody. The end is nigh, he snarled. All three of them froze in their tracks, their expressions going blank, and Peabody went through the group, puffing and knocked one of them down. I pushed harder, and he started glancing over his shoulder, his eyes wide. He ducked around the next corner, and my instincts twigged to what he was about to try. I came around the corner and flung myself into a diving roll, and a spray of conjured liquid hissed as it went by overhead. It smacked against the wall behind me with a frantic chewing noise, like a thousand bottles of carbonated soda all shaken and simultaneously opened. I hadn't had time to recharge my energy rings, and they were still on my dresser back home, 
but I didn't want Peabody to get comfortable taking shots at me over his shoulder. I lifted my right hand, snarled, Fuego! and sent a basketball-sized comet of fire flying down the hallway at him. He spat out a few words and made a one-handed defensive gesture that reminded me of Doctor Strange, and my attacking spell splashed against something invisible a good three feet short of him. Even so, some of it wound up setting the hem of his formal robes on fire, and he frantically shucked out of it as he continued to flee. I made up even more distance on him, and as he turned into one of the broad main hallways of the complex, I wasn't twenty feet away, and the first security checkpoint was right in front of us. Four wardens, all of them young, manned the gate. Which was to say that since all the grown-ups, grandpas, and fuss budgets who might object were at the trial, they were sitting on the floor playing cards. Stop that man! I shouted. Peabody shrieked, obviously terrified. Dresden's gone, Morlock! He's trying to kill me! The young wardens bounced to their feet with the reaction speed of youth. One of them reached for his staff and another drew his gun. A third turned and made sure the gate was locked, and the fourth acted on pure instinct, whipping her hand around her head in a tight circle and making a throwing gesture as she shouted. I brought up my shield in time to intercept an invisible bowling ball, but the impact hit the shield with enough force to stop me cold. My legs weren't ready for that, and I staggered, bouncing a shoulder off of one wall. Peabody's eyes gleamed with triumph as I fell, and he snapped, The end is nigh! freezing the young wardens in place, as he'd done before. He ripped the key on its leather thong from around the neck of one of the wardens, opened the gate, then turned with a dagger in his hand and sliced it along the thigh of the young woman who had clobbered me. She cried out, and her leg began spurting blood in rhythm with her heart, a telltale sign of a severed artery. I got back to my feet and hurled a club of raw force at Peabody, but he defeated it as he had the fireball leapt through the gate and ripped at the air, peeling open a passage between this world and the next. He plunged through it. Son of a bitch, I snarled. None of the young wardens were moving, not even the wounded girl. If she didn't get help, she would bleed to death in minutes. Damn it, I swore. Damn it, damn it, damn it. I threw myself onto the girl, ripping the belt off of my jeans and praying that the wound was far enough down her leg for a tourniquet to do any good. Footsteps hammered the floor, and Anastasia Lucio appeared, gun in her good hand, her face white with pain. She slid to a halt next to me, breathing hard, set the weapon on the floor, and said, I've got her. Go. On the other side of the security gate, the way was beginning to close. I rose and rushed it, diving forward. There was a flash of light, and the stone tunnel around me abruptly became a forest of dead trees that smelled strongly of mildew and stagnant water. Peabody was standing right in front of the way as he tried to close it, and I hit him in a flying tackle before he could finish the job. He went over backward, and we hit the ground hard. For a stunned half-second, neither of us moved, and then Peabody shifted his weight, and I caught the gleam of the bloody dagger at the edge of my vision. He thrust the point at my throat but I got an arm in the way. He opened a vein. I grabbed at his wrist with my other hand, and he rolled, gaining the upper position and gripping the dagger with both hands, leaning against my one arm with all of his weight. Drops of my own blood fell onto my face as he forced the point slowly toward my eye. I struggled to throw him off me, but he was stronger than he looked. 
and it was clear that he had more experience in close quarters fighting than I did. I clubbed at him with my wounded arm, but he shrugged it off. I felt my triceps giving way and watched the tip of the knife come closer. The breaking point was at hand, and he knew it. He threw more effort into his attack, and the dagger's tip suddenly stung hot against my lower eyelid. Then there was a huge noise, and Peabody went away. I remained still for a stunned moment and then looked up. Morgan lay on the ground, just inside the still open way, Lucio's gun smoking in his hand, his wounded leg a mass of wet scarlet. How he'd managed to run after us given his injury, I had no idea. Even with painkillers, it must have hurt like hell. He stared at Peabody's body with hard eyes. Then his hand started to shake, and he dropped the gun to the ground. He followed it down with a groan. I went to him, breathing hard. <sighs> Morgan! I turned him over and looked at his wound. It was soaked in blood, but it wasn't bleeding much anymore. His face was white. His lips looked gray. He opened his eyes calmly. Got him. Yeah, I said. You got him. He smiled a little. That's twice I pulled your ass out of the fire. I choked out a little laugh. <laughs> I know. They'll blame me, he said quietly. There's no confession from Peabody, and I'm a better candidate politically. Let them pin it on me. Don't fight it. I want it. I stared down at him. Why? He shook his head, smiling wearily. I stared down at him for long seconds, and then I got it. Morgan had been lying to me from the very start. Because you already knew who killed Lefortier. She was there when you woke up in his chambers. You saw who did it. And you wanted to protect her. Anastasia didn't do it, Morgan said, his voice intense and low. She was a pawn, asleep on her feet. She never even knew she was being used, he shuddered. Should have thought of that. She got put in that younger body, made her mind vulnerable to influence again. What happened? I asked. Woke up. Lafortier was dead, and she had the knife. Took it from her, veiled her, and pushed her out the door, Morgan said. Didn't have time to get both of us out. So you took the blame, thinking you'd sort things out in the aftermath. But you realized that the frame was too good for anyone to believe you when you tried to tell them what was up. I shook my head. Morgan hadn't given a damn about his own life. He'd escaped when he realized that Anastasia had still been in danger, that he wouldn't be able to expose the real traitor alone. Dresden, he said quietly. Yeah. I didn't tell anyone about Molly, what she tried to do to Anna. I... I didn't tell. I stared at him, unable to speak. His eyes became cloudy. Do you know why I didn't? Why I came to you? I shook my head. Because I knew, he whispered. He lifted his right hand, and I gripped it hard. I knew that you knew how it felt to be an innocent man hounded by the wardens. It was the closest he'd ever come to saying that he'd been wrong about me. He died 
less than a minute later. Chapter 49 Thorson kept me from bleeding to death from the cut Peabody had given me. The Swede and his backup squad had been faced with a long run to catch up, a lot of locked gates and the confusion we'd left in our wake. They reached me about three minutes after Morgan died. They did their best to revive Morgan, but his body had taken enough torment and lost too much blood. They didn't even bother with Peabody. Morgan had double-tapped the traitor's head with Lucio's pistol. They bundled me off to the infirmary, where Injun Joe and a crew of healers, some of whom had gone to medical school when the efficacy of leeches was still being debated, were caring for those wounded in the attack. After that, things fell into place without requiring my participation. The senior council managed to contain and banish the Mordite-infused Mist Fiend, a rare and dangerous gaseous being from the far reaches of the Never-Never, before it had killed more than forty or fifty wizards. All things considered, it could have been a lot worse. But the fact that it had been the gathering of Lafortier's former political allies, who had been subject to the attack, occasioned an enormous outcry of suspicion, with the offended parties claiming that the Merlin had disregarded their safety, been negligent in his security precautions, etc., etc. The fact that the attack had occurred while unmasking Lafortier's true killer was brushed aside. There was political capital to be had. Basically, the entire supernatural world had heard about Lafortier's death, the ensuing manhunt for Morgan, and the dust-up during his trial, though most of the details were kept quiet. Though there was never any sort of official statement made, Word got out that Morgan had been conspiring with Peabody, and that both of them had been killed during their escape attempt. It was a brutal and callous way for the Council to save face. The Merlin decided that it was ultimately less dangerous for the wizards of the world if everyone knew that the Council responded to Lafortier's murder with a statement of deadly strength and power, i.e. the immediate capture and execution of those responsible. But I knew that whoever Peabody had been in bed with, the people who had really been responsible knew that the Council had killed an innocent man, and one of the largest military assets at that, to get the job done. Maybe the Merlin was right. Maybe it's better to look stupid but strong than it is to look smart but weak. I don't know. I'm not sure I want to believe that the world stage bears that strong a resemblance to high school. The Council's investigators worked more slowly than Lara's had, but they got to the same information by following the money, eventually. The Council confronted the White Court with the information. Lara sent them the heads of the persons responsible, literally. Leave it to Lara to find a way to get one last bit of mileage out of Madeline and the business manager's corpses. She told the Council to keep the money, too, by way of apology. The next best thing to six million in cash buys a lot of oil to pour on troubled waters. He might have wound up with his brains splattered all over a desolate little hellhole in the never-never, but Peabody had inflicted one hell of a lot of damage before he was through. A new age of White Council paranoia had begun. The Merlin, the Gatekeeper, and Injun Joe investigated the extent of Peabody's psychic infiltration. In some ways, the worst of what he'd done was the easiest to handle. Damn near every warden under the age of fifty had been programmed with that go-to-sleep trance command, and it had been done so smoothly and subtly that it was difficult to detect, even when the master wizards were looking and knew where to find it. 
Ebenezer told me later that some of the young wardens had been loaded up with a lot more in the way of hostile psychic software, though it was impossible for one wizard to know exactly what another had done. Several of them, apparently, had been intended to become the supernatural equivalent of suicide bombers, the way Lucio had been. Repairing that kind of damage was difficult, unpredictable, and often painful to the victim. It was a long summer and autumn for a lot of the wardens, and a mandatory psychic self-defense regimen was instituted within weeks. It was tougher for the members of the senior council, in my opinion, all of whom had almost certainly been influenced in subtle ways. They had to go back over their decisions for the past several years and wonder if they'd been pushed into making a choice, if it had been their own action, or if the ambiguity of any given decision had been natural to the environment. The touch had been so light that it hadn't left any lasting tracks. For anyone with half a conscience, it would be a living nightmare, especially given the fact that they had been leading the council in time of war. I tried to imagine second-guessing myself on everything I'd done for the past eight years. I wouldn't be one of those guys for the world. I was in the infirmary for a week. I got visits from McCoy, Ramirez, and Molly. Mouse stayed at my bedside and no one tried to move him. Listens to Wind was a regular presence, since he was pretty much my doctor. Several of the young wardens I'd helped train stopped by to have a word, though all of them were looking nervous. Anastasia never visited, though Listens to Wind said she had come by and asked after me when I was asleep. The gatekeeper came to see me in the middle of the night. When I woke up, he had already created a kind of sonic shield around us that made sure we were speaking in privacy. It made our voices sound like our heads were covered with large tin pails. How are you feeling? he asked quietly. I gestured at my face, which was no longer bandaged. As listens to wind had promised, my eye was fine. I had two beautiful scars, though, one running down through my right eyebrow, skipping my eye, and continuing for an inch or so on my cheekbone, and another one that went squarely through the middle of my lower lip and on a slight angle down over my chin. Like Herr Harrison von Ford, I said, dueling scars and beauty marks. The girls will be lining up now. The quip didn't make him smile. He looked down at his hands, his expression serious. I've been working with the wardens and administrative staff whose minds Peabody invaded. I heard. It appears, he said, choosing his words carefully, that the psychic disruption to Anastasia Lucio was particularly severe. I was wondering if you might have any theories that might explain it. I stared across the darkened room quietly for a moment, then asked, Did the Merlin send you? I am the only one who knows, he said seriously, or who will know. I thought about it for a moment before I said, Would my theory make any difference in how she gets treated? Potentially. If it seems sound, it might give me the insight I need to heal her more quickly and safely. Give me your word. I said. I wasn't asking. You have it. Before he died, I said, Morgan told me that when he woke up in Lafortier's room, Lucio was holding the murder weapon. I described the rest of what Morgan had told me of that night. The gatekeeper stared across the bed at the far wall, his face impassive. He was trying to protect her. I guess he figured the council might do some wacky thing like sentencing an innocent person to death. He closed his eyes for a moment, 
and then touched the fingertips of his right hand to his heart, his mouth, and his forehead. It explains some things. Like what? He held up his hand. In a moment. I told you that the damage to Anastasia was quite extensive. Not because she had been persuaded to do violence. That much came easily to her. I believe her emotional attitudes had been forcibly altered. Emotional attitudes, I said quietly. You mean, her and me? Yes. Because she always believed in keeping her distance, I said quietly. Until recently. Yes, he said. She never cared about me. He shrugged his shoulders. There had to have been some kind of foundation upon which to build. It's entirely possible that she genuinely felt fond of you, and that something might have grown from it, but it was forced into place instead. Who would do that? I shook my head. No, that's obvious. Why would he do that? To keep tabs on you, perhaps, the gatekeeper replied. Perhaps to have an asset in position to remove you if it became necessary. You were, after all, virtually the only younger warden who never gave Peabody an opportunity to exploit you, since you never came to headquarters. You're also probably the most talented and powerful of your generation. The other young wardens like to associate with you generally, so there was every chance you might notice something amiss. Taken as a whole, you were a threat to him. I felt a little sick. That's why she showed up in Chicago when she should have been back at headquarters helping with the manhunt. Almost certainly, he said, to give Peabody forewarning if you should get closer to his trail, and to locate Morgan so that Peabody could make him disappear. Morgan dead at the hands of White Council justice is one thing. Had Peabody succeeded, killed Morgan, and gotten rid of the body, then, as far as we knew, the traitor would be at large in the world and uncatchable. It would have been a continuous stone around our necks. And a perfect cover for Peabody, I said. He could off whoever he wanted, and given the slightest excuse, everyone would assume that it had been Morgan. Not only Peabody, the gatekeeper said. Any of our enemies might have taken advantage of it the same way. And it also explains why he came to Chicago, after I dropped that challenge on the council. He probably thought that the fake informant was Anastasia. He had to go there to find out if his brain lock was holding. I shook my head. I mean, he never needed to come through that way, since he already knew one out to Demon Reach. Christ, I got lucky. Also true, the gatekeeper said. Though I would suggest that your forethought allowed you to make your own luck. He shook his head. If Morgan had not acted so quickly, things might have been even worse. Lucio would have stood accused as well, and neither of them would have had any idea what had happened. Accusing Morgan was bad enough. The wardens would not have stood for both the captain and her second to be placed under arrest. It might have begun a civil war all on its own. Morgan, he loved Lucio, I said. The gatekeeper nodded. He wore his heart on his sleeve for quite a while when he was younger, but she never let anyone close. In retrospect, it was a personality shift that should have been noted, though she kept her relationship with you discreet. I snorted quietly. Easy to expect tampering when someone turns into a foaming maniac, I said. When someone changes by becoming happy, 
It's sort of hard not to be happy for them. He smiled, a brief flash of warmth. Very true. So she's... I mean, when you help her start fixing the damage, it's already begun. Her subconscious has been struggling against the bindings placed in her mind for some time. Even if she'd felt something before, the fact that it was forced upon her will cause a backlash. Yeah, I said. Things got sort of tense between us. I guess after this whole situation got going. I mean, I sort of figured we'd already broken up, but... But this wasn't a case of having loved and lost. She had never loved me. Madeline's kiss, when she'd buried me in an avalanche of bliss while she took a bite from my life force, had proved that. Anastasia hadn't ever been in love. Maybe she hadn't ever really liked me. Or maybe she had. Or maybe it was all of the above. Whatever it had been, it was over now, before it could grow into anything else. And neither of us had been given much of a choice in the matter. I hadn't expected it to hurt quite as much as it did. Rashid put his hand on my shoulder. I'm sorry, he said. I thought you deserved to know. Yeah, I said, my voice rough. Thank you, I guess. I found myself letting out a bitter little laugh. The gatekeeper tilted his head. I've been trying to work out why no one used magic on anyone at Lafortier's murder. What is your conclusion? You can't do anything with magic that you don't really, truly believe in, I said. Some part of Lucio had to recognize that killing Lafortier was wrong, so she used a knife. Morgan could no more have unleashed magic upon a lawfully serving senior council member or onto his commanding officer than he could have apologized for how he's treated me. And Lafortier never saw it coming from Anastasia. He probably died confused, never had a chance to use a spell. I looked up at the gatekeeper. It wasn't some big, arcane, mysterious reason. It was because everyone was human. In my experience, he said, that is more than mystery enough. I was gathering up my things to leave and go back home when Ebenezer appeared in the doorway. Halls, he said calmly. Figured I'd walk you home. Appreciate it, sir, I told him. I had already sent Mouse home with Molly, and it was always a good idea to avoid walking the ways alone. We started walking through the tunnels. I was heartily sick of them. I'm not claustrophobic or anything, but I think you need some kind of groundhog gene to enjoy living at White Council HQ. We hadn't gone far when I realized that Ebenezer was taking a roundabout route to the way, through tunnels that were largely unused and unlit. He conjured a dim red light to his staff, just enough to let us see our way, and in the color least likely to be noticed. Well, he said, we filled Lafortier's seat on the senior council today. Klaus the toymaker, I asked. Ebenezer shook his head slowly. Klaus didn't say it, but I suspect the Merlin asked him to decline. Grigori Christos got the seat. I frowned. The seats on the senior council were awarded geriocratically. Whoever had the most years of service in the council was offered the position of leadership, though there was nothing that required a wizard to accept a seat when it was available. Who the hell is that? He's not up at the top of the seniority list. My mentor grimaced. Ah, a Greek. And an unpleasant bastard. He's lived all through southern Asia over the past couple of centuries. 
distinguished himself in the battle with that Rakshasa Raj the council took on recently. I remember when it happened, I said. I heard it was pretty crazy. Ebenezer grunted. He was Lafortier's protege. I took that in, processing the logic. I thought that block had been appeased. When someone wants power, you can't buy him off, Ebenezer said. He'll take what you offer and keep on coming. And Christos as much as told the Merlin that he and his allies would secede from the council if he didn't get the seat. Jesus, I said quietly. He nodded. Might as well give the Red Court the keys to all our gates and let them kill us in our sleep. Fewer bystanders would get hurt. So the Merlin made a deal, I said. Didn't have a lot of choice. Christos's people gained a lot of support after they lost so many at the trial. He'd have taken a third of the council with him. Screw the selection process, huh? Ebenezer grimaced. It's never been codified by anything but tradition. Oh, the Merlin made a show of adhering to it. But I guarantee you it was arranged behind the scenes, Hoss. He shook his head. The senior council has issued official positions on the Fortier's assassination. Let me guess, I said. Lone gunman. He frowned at that for a moment and then nodded. Oh, Kennedy. Yes. It was an act of individuals motivated by profit. There is no evidence to suggest the presence of an organized conspiracy. There is no Black Council. I stared blankly at Ebenezer. That's... stupid. Damn right, he said. But they had a majority. The Merlin, Christos, Mai, Martha Liberty, and the Gatekeeper. I shook my head. What the hell does he think he's accomplishing? Ebenezer shrugged. He's never been easy to read, and I've known him since I was sixteen years old. Two or three explanations come to mind. Like, maybe he's Black Council? Ebenezer walked for several steps in silence, then he said, Aye. Or maybe Peabody got to him harder than we all think, I said. Improbable, Ebenezer said. The drugs he slipped the senior council let him nudge them, us. But we're all too crusty to bend more than that. What then? Well, Hoss, he said. Maybe Langtree's worried about the consequences of officially acknowledging the Black Council. I felt a little chill glide over the nape of my neck. He's worried that if enough people knew that the Black Council was real, they wouldn't line up to fight them. They'd join. Everyone loves a winner, Ebenezer said. And we haven't been looking too good lately. People are afraid. Christos is building his influence on it. I stopped in my tracks and all but threw up on the cold stone floor. Ebenezer stopped, putting his hand on my arm, and frowned in concern. What is it, boy? Sir, I said, hearing my voice shake. When Peabody came to the island... Yes? He wasn't alone. Someone else came with him. Someone we never saw. We said nothing for a long minute. That's only one explanation, Hoss, Ebenezer said. It's not even a calculated estimate. It's a flat-out guess. There was no conviction in his voice, though. Ebenezer felt the same thing I did, a hard-gut feeling that left me certain, not pretty sure, but certain, that I was right. Besides, we were talking in whispers in an out-of-the-way corridor of our own damn stronghold. If that didn't tell you something was seriously wrong with the White Council, I don't know what would. 
They're inside, I whispered. My mentor faced me gravely. That's why they whacked Le Fortier. To get their own man into position. I leaned against the wall and shook my head. They won. They won the round, he said. Fight isn't over. It is for Morgan, I said. But not for you, he said with harsh intensity. Morgan thought that saving your life was worth losing his own. Ebenezer took a deep breath. Then he said, very quietly, Hoss, it ain't over. Some of us are going to do something about it. I looked at him sharply. Do something? It's just a few for now. Some wizards. Some key allies. People we know we can trust. I'm the only one who knows everyone involved. We've got to take this fight to the enemy. Learn more about them. Determine their goals. Shut them down. Fight fire with fire, huh? Ebenezer smiled wryly. In denying the existence of one conspiracy, Langtree has necessitated another. And got himself a twofer with a side order of irony, I said. If the Black Council finds out about us, they're going to jump for joy. They'll expose us, call us the Black Council, and go on their merry way. Us already, is it? His eyes gleamed as he nodded. And given what we'll be doing, if the White Council finds out, they're going to call it sedition. They'll execute us. See what I mean? Just like Disneyland. I thought about it for a minute. You know that in every objective sense, we're making a black council of our own. Aye. So where does that leave us? With pure hearts and good intentions, he answered. Our strength shall be the strength of ten. I snorted loudly. Ebenezer smiled wearily. Well, hoss, we're not going to have much choice other than to be walking down some mighty dark alleys and doing it in mighty questionable company. Maybe we should think of ourselves as a Grey Council. Grey Council, I said. We started walking again, and after a few minutes I asked him, The world's gotten darker and nastier, even in just the past few years. Do you think what we do will make a difference? I think the same thing you do, Ebenezer said, that the only alternative is to stand around and watch everything go to hell. His voice hardened. We're not going to do that. Damn right we're not, I said. We walked the rest of the way to Chicago together. Murphy drove me down to get my car out of impound, and I caught her up on most of what had happened on the way. You're holding out on me, she said when I finished. Some, I said. Sort of necessary. She glanced at me as she drove and said, Okay. I lifted my eyebrows. It is? You're beginning to deal with some scary people, Harry, she said quietly. And people are trusting you with secrets. I get that. Thanks, Murph. She shook her head. I don't know, Harry. It means I'm trusting you to come to me when you've got something that intersects with my responsibilities. I'm a cop. If you screw me on something I should know, she shrugged. I don't know if we could ever patch something like that up. I hear you, I said. She shook her head. I never really cared for Morgan, but I wish it hadn't ended that way for him. I thought about that for a minute and then said, I don't know. He went out making a difference. He took out the traitor who had gotten hundreds of wizards killed. 
He kept them from getting away with God only knows what secrets. I shrugged. A lot of wardens have gone down lately. As exits go, Morgan's was a good one. I smiled. Besides, if he'd been around any longer, he might have had to apologize to me. That would have been a horrible way to go. He had courage, Murphy admitted. And he had your back. Yeah, I said. Did you go to his funeral? No one did, I said. Officially, he was corpus non grata. But we had a kind of a wake later, unofficially. Told stories about him and came to the conclusion that he really was a paranoid, intolerant, grade-A asshole. Murphy smiled. I've known guys like that. They can still be part of the family. You can still miss them when they're gone. I swallowed. Yeah. Tell me you aren't blaming yourself. No, I said honestly. I just wish something I'd done had made more of a difference. You survived, she said. Under the circumstances, I think you did all right. Maybe, I said quietly. I went through that phone you sent me. She meant Madeline's phone, the one Binder had given me. What did you find? I asked. The phone numbers to a lot of missing persons, she said. Where's the owner? With them. She pressed her lips together. There were a lot of calls to a number I traced back to Algeria and another in Egypt. A couple of restaurants, apparently. She took an index card out of her pocket and passed it to me. It had the names and addresses of two businesses on it. What are they? she asked. No clue, I said. Maybe Madeline's contacts in the Black Council. Maybe nothing. Important? No clue. I guess we'll file this under wait and see. I hate that file, she said. How's Thomas? I shrugged and looked down at my hands. No clue. My apartment was a wreck. I mean, it's never really a surgical theater, except for right after Morgan had shown up, I guess. But several days of frantic comings and goings, various injuries, and serving as Morgan's sickbed had left some stains not even my fairy housekeepers could erase. The mattress wasn't salvageable, much less the bedding, or the rug we transported his unconscious body on. It was all soaked in blood and sweat, and the various housekeeping fairies apparently didn't do dry cleaning. They'd taken care of the usual stuff, but there was considerable work still to be done, and moving mattresses is never joyful, much less when you've been thoroughly banged up by a supernatural heavyweight and then stabbed, just for fun, on top of it. I set about restoring order, though, and I was hauling the mattress out to tie onto my car so that I could take it to the dump when Lucio arrived. She was dressed in gray slacks and a white shirt, and carried a black nylon sports equipment bag, which would hold, I knew, the rather short staff she favored, and her warden's blade, among other things. The clothes were new. I realized belatedly that they'd been the sort that she'd favored when I first met her, wearing another body. Hey, I panted. Give me a second. I'll give you a hand, she replied. She helped me maneuver the mattress onto the top of the blue beetle, and then we tied it off with some clothesline. She checked the knots, making sure everything was just so, and then leaned on the car, studying my face. I looked back at her. Rashid said he talked to you, she said. I nodded. Didn't want to push. I appreciate that. Quite a bit, actually. She looked off to one side. Mouse, now that the work was done, came out of a shamelessly lazy doze he'd been holding in the doorway, 
and trotted over to Lucio. He sat down and offered her his paw. She smiled quietly and took it. Then she ruffled the fur behind his ears with her fingers, the way she knew he liked, and stood up. I, uh, I wanted to be sure you were recovering. That's very responsible of you, I said. She winced. Oh, damn it to hell, Dresden, she shook her head. I spent almost two hundred years not getting close to anyone, for damn good reasons. As can be evidenced by what happened here. Can it? She shook her head. I was distracted by you. By us, I suppose. Maybe if I hadn't been, I'd have seen something, noticed something, I don't know. I kind of thought that you were distracted by the mind mage who had you twisted in knots. She grimaced. They're separate things, and I know that. But at the same time, I don't know that. And here I'm talking like some flustered teenager. She put her hands on her hips, her mouth set in annoyance. I'm not good at this. Help. Well, I said, I take it that you came here to let me know that you weren't going to keep pursuing whatever it is we had. It's not because of you, she said. I know, I said. Never was, was it? She exhaled through her nose, a slow sigh. Her eyes lingered on me. I've always liked you, Dresden. For a long time I thought you were dangerous. Then I saw you in action against the heirs of Kemmler, and I respected you. She smiled slightly. You're funny. I like that. But, I asked. But someone pushed me toward you, she said, and that pisses me off. And she started weeping, though her posture and her voice didn't waver. And I thought that maybe I had broken through some kind of scar or old wound or something, that I had grown closer to you and maybe would keep growing closer to you, and it made me feel... She shook her head as her voice finally broke. Young. It made everything feel new. I walked around the car to stand in front of her. I reached a hand toward her shoulder, but she raised hers in a gesture of denial. But it was a lie. I'm not young, Harry. I'm not new. I've seen and done things that, that you can't understand. That I pray to God you'll never need to understand. She took a deep breath. This is ridiculous. I should be better at handling this. What's wrong? I asked quietly. I mean, other than the obvious. I got to have sex again, she snarled. And I liked it. I really liked it. I had forgotten exactly how mind-numbingly incredible sex is. And right now I'm having trouble forming complete sentences because I want to rip your shirt off and bite your shoulder while you're still sweating, while you... She broke off abruptly, her cheeks turning bright red. You're not even forty. I leaned against the car, looking at her, and started laughing quietly. She shook her head, scowling ferociously at me, her dark eyes bright. How am I supposed to give you orders now, she asked, when you and I have done all the things we've done? Well, what if I promise not to put the pictures on the Internet? She blinked at me. Pictures? You are joking, Dresden, aren't you? I nodded. Because I had quite enough of that during my first young adulthood, she said. Italy may not have had an Internet back then, 
but you'd be shocked how quickly pictures can circulate even when they're painted on canvas. Anna, I said quietly. She bit her lip and looked at me. I reached out and took her hands. I squeezed them. Then I lifted them to my lips and kissed them each once gently. Whatever the reason, I'm happy to remember the time we had. She blinked her eyes several times, looking up at me. I get it, I said. Things have changed, and maybe that time is over. But you'll be okay, and I'll be okay. You don't have to feel guilty about that. She lifted my hands to her lips and kissed them, once each, just as I had. A tear fell on my knuckle. I'm sorry, she said. It'll be okay, I said. It's okay. She nodded and looked up at me. I could see the calm, collected strength of the captain of the wardens, ready to assume its guiding role. I could see the uncertainty of Anastasia, who hadn't been close to anyone in a long time. And maybe I could see something lonely and sad that was part of who she had been when she was a young woman, well over a century before I was born. Goodbye, Harry, she whispered. Goodbye, Anna, I said. She squeezed my hands and turned to walk away. She stopped after half a dozen paces and looked back. Dresden? I looked at her. Rashid doesn't talk much about the night Morgan died. I barely remember anything myself, after Peabody said what he said. I knew what she was after. He wasn't alone, I said. I was with him. And he knew that he found the traitor. He was content. Something tight in her shoulders eased. Thank you, she said. Sure. Then she turned and strode purposefully away. I looked at the blood-stained mattress on the blue beetle and sighed. I didn't feel like driving it anywhere. It was early. I could wait a few hours. I turned to Mouse and said, Come on, boy. I need a beer. We descended out of the summer heat into the relative cool of my basement apartment. Maybe I needed two. It took Justine more than two weeks to get me that meeting with Thomas. When she called, she was speaking in her official secretary tone again. She stipulated a public meeting place where both of us would have the protection of the need to maintain a low profile. It was a precaution that the White Court had required of me, given how tense things had been between the Council and the White Court's leadership of late. I met Thomas on a Saturday afternoon outside the Great Cat House at the Lincoln Park Zoo. As I came up, I spotted a pair of Lara's security guys trying to blend in. Thomas was leaning on the rail that looked into this big pit where they keep a couple of tigers. He was wearing tight blue jeans and a big loose white shirt. Every woman there and a large chunk of the guys were looking at him with various degrees of lust, longing, interest, and seething hatred. I walked up and leaned on the rail beside him. Hey, I said. Hey. We stood there watching the tigers for a few minutes. You asked for the meeting, he said. What do you want? I arched an eyebrow. Thomas, I want to see you. Talk to you. Be sure you're okay. You're my brother, man. He didn't react to my words. Not at all. I studied his profile for a few moments, and I said, What's wrong? He moved one shoulder in a careless gesture. Nothing is wrong, per se, unless it was me. 
You were wrong. I was an idiot to try to live the way I've been living, he said. I looked at him sharply. What? He rolled a hand in a lazy gesture. The boutique. The constant nibbling, never sating myself. The... He shrugged. All of it. I stared hard at him. Then I asked very quietly, What did the skinwalker do to you? He reminded me of what I really am. Oh? Thomas turned to look at me with calm, deep gray eyes. Yes. It didn't take him long once he said about it. I felt sick to my stomach. What happened? He hung me up by my heels, Thomas said, and ripped strips of skin off me, one at a time. I shuddered. It's agonizing, he said. Not terribly dangerous to one of us. My demon didn't really have any trouble regenerating the skin, but it did become hungry. Very, very hungry. His eyes suddenly gleamed paler silver, and he looked back at the tigers, which were now restlessly prowling the pit. He'd taken a female kind to the lair where he had me prisoner, and he fed her to me. Hell's bells, I breathed. Thomas watched the tiger's pace. She was lovely. Sixteen or so. I don't know exactly. I didn't ask for her name. He spread his hands. It was a fatal feeding, of course. I don't think I've ever really explained to you exactly what that is like. What is it like? I asked in a quiet rasp. Like becoming light, he said, his eyes drifting closed. Like sinking into the warmth of a campfire when you've been shivering for hours. Like a hot steak after a day of swimming in cold water. It transforms you, Harry. Makes you feel... His eyes became haunted, hollow. Whole. I shook my head. Thomas. Jesus. Once she was gone and my body was restored, the skinwalker tortured me again until I was in the same desperate condition. Then he fed me another dough. He shrugged. Rinse and repeat. Perhaps half a dozen times. He gave me young women and then put me in agony again. I was all but chewing out my own innards when he took me to the island. To tell you the truth, I barely remember it. He smiled. I remember seeing Molly, but you've taught her enough to protect herself, it seems. Thomas, I said gently. He smirked. If you ever get tired of her, I hope you'll let me know. I stared at him, sickened. Thomas! He looked at me again, still smirking, but he couldn't hold it. Once again, his eyes looked hollow, touched with despair. He looked away from me. You don't get it, Harry. Then talk to me, I said urgently. Thomas, Jesus Christ, this is not you. Yes, it is, he spat, the words a bladed hiss. That is what it taught me, Harry. At the end of the day, I'm just an empty place that needs to be filled. He shook his head. I didn't want to kill those girls, but I did it. I killed them over and over, and I loved how it felt. When I think back on the memory of it, it doesn't make me horrified. He sneered. 
It just makes me hard. Thomas, I whispered, please, man. This isn't what you want to be. I know you, man. I've seen you. You've seen who I wanted to be, he said, who I thought I was. He shook his head and looked around at the people around us. Play a game with me. What game? He nodded toward a pair of young women walking by holding ice cream cones. What do you see when you look at them? Your first thought. I blinked. I looked. Ah, uh, blonde and brunette, too young for me, not bad to look at. I bet the blonde paid too much for those shoes. He nodded and pointed at an old couple sitting on a bench. Them? They're fighting with each other over something and enjoying it. They've been together so long it's comfortable for them. Later they'll hold hands and laugh over the fight. He pursed his lips and pointed at a mother shivying a trio of small children of various sizes along the zoo. Them? She's got an expensive ring, but she's here at the zoo alone. Her kids all have matching outfits. Her husband works a lot, and she doesn't look as good as she used to. Look how the shoes are biting into her feet. She's worried that she's a trophy wife, or maybe an ex-wife in progress. She's about to start crying. Uh-huh, he said. Can I give you my first thoughts? I nodded, frowning at him. Thomas pointed a finger at the young women. Food. He pointed a finger at the old couple. Food. He pointed a finger at the mother and her children. Food. I just stared at him. He rolled his head, inhaling deeply and then exhaling. Maybe it was all those kills together like that. Maybe he drove me insane with the torment. He shrugged. Honestly, I don't know. I just know that things seem a lot simpler now. What are you trying to tell me? I asked. That you're happy now? Happy, he said, scorn ringing lightly in his voice. I'm not wandering around blind anymore, not trying desperately to be something that I'm not. He looked back down at the tigers, something I can never be. I just stood there, shaking my head. Oh, empty night, Harry, he said, rolling his eyes. I'm not some kind of ravaging monster. I'm not some kind of psychotic rampaging around the city devouring virgins. He waved a hand in a casual gesture. Killing when you feed feels fantastic, but it's stupid. There are far too many advantages in ensuring that the kind survive. Not only survive, but grow and prosper. He smiled a bit. You know, I really think I might have something to offer the world. I never could have exerted any kind of influence on my kin as a moping exile trying to be human. Maybe this way... I actually can accomplish something. Promote a more responsible standard of relations between humanity and my kind. Who knows? I stared at him and said, Gosh, that's noble. He eyed me. I hit him with my heaviest sucker punch. What does Justine think of it? He straightened and turned toward me, and there was imminent violence in the set of his body. What? He asked. What? Did you say to me? You heard me, I said, without changing posture or rising to the threat. His hands closed into fists, knuckles popping. Still stings, doesn't it? I said quietly. 
still burns you when you try to touch her? He said nothing. And you still remember what it was like to hold her, like you did the night you trashed Madeline at zero. Jesus Christ, Harry, he said. He turned to face out, away from the tigers, and his voice was full of weariness. I don't know. I just know that it doesn't hurt so bad all the time anymore. He was quiet for a long time. Then he said in a very quiet voice, I have bad dreams. I wanted to put my hand on his shoulder, give him some support, but some instinct warned me that it wouldn't be welcomed. You took a beating, I said quietly. What that thing did to you? Thomas, it knew exactly how to get to you, how to torment you the most. But it won't last. You survived. You'll get past it. And go back to that miserable half-life I had, he whispered. Maybe, I said quietly. I don't know. He looked at me. You're my brother, I said. Nothing will ever change that. I'm here for you. You're a damn fool, he said. Yeah, it would be easy to use you. Part of me thinks it's a fantastic idea. I didn't say you weren't an asshole. I said you were my brother. The bodyguards stirred. Nothing big. They just sort of animated and moved toward the exits. Thomas grimaced. Lara thinks I've made great progress. She's... He shrugged. Proud of me. I liked you better the other way, I said. So did Justine. Maybe that should tell you something. I've got to go. She's afraid you'll think I'm all brainwashed. Didn't want to risk you trying to deprogram me when I haven't been programmed. I confess the idea occurred to me. If someone had gotten into my head, I don't think there'd be so many doubts, he said. This isn't something you can help me with, Harry. Maybe, I said. Maybe not. Either way, you're still my brother. Broken damn record, he said. I held up a fist. He stared at it for a couple of silent beats before he made a fist of his own and wrapped my knuckles against his. Don't call me, he said. I'll be patient, I said, but not forever. He hesitated and then nodded once more. Then he thrust his hands into the hip pockets of his jeans and walked quickly away. The bodyguards fell in behind him. One of them said something while he had one hand pressed against his ear. Purely from petty malice, I waved a hand and hexed his radio or phone. Sparks flew out of his ear, and he all but fell over trying to get the earbug out. Thomas looked back. He grinned. Not long, but real. After he was gone, I turned to regard the tigers. I wondered if I knew them for what they really were, or if all I could see were the stripes. I'd missed Kirby's funeral while I was in the infirmary in Edinburgh. A couple of weeks had gone by after that, and I'd talked to Will and Georgia by phone occasionally. Gaming night came along, and as I had most weeks for the past several years, I showed up at Will and George's place. I had my Arcanos rule book with me and a Crown Royal bag filled with dice. I was wearing a black T-shirt that had a monochrome image of several multi-sided dice and said in block print, Come to the dork side. Do not make me destroy you. Will answered the door and smiled at me. Hey, Harry. Wow, your face is... manly. Chicks dig scars, I said. Who is it? came Andy's voice. It sounded limp, lifeless. It is I, Harry Dresden, 
I said solemnly. Georgia appeared behind Will, smiling. Harry! She looked at my shirt and my gaming stuff. Oh, we weren't really going to... Kirby had been the one who ran the game for us. I stepped aside, grabbed the geek standing behind me, and tugged him forward. This is Waldo Butters, I said, and his geek penis is longer and harder than all of ours put together. Butters blinked, first at Georgia and Will, and then at me. Oh, he said. Um, thank you? Will looked from Butters to me, his eyes searching. What is this? he asked gently. Life, I said. It keeps going. Butters says he can handle an Arcanos game, or he can run a bunch of other ones if we want to try something new. I cleared my throat. If you like, we can go over to my place, change a view and so on. Georgia looked at me and gave me a small and grateful smile. Will looked at me uncertainly. Then he turned back into the apartment. Andy? She appeared beside Georgia. Andy looked absolutely withered. Multiple broken ribs and major surgery will do that to you. She was on her feet and moving, but it was clear that she'd been staying with Will and Georgia so that they could help care for her until she recovered. I smiled at Andy and said, I don't think Kirby would want us to stop playing completely. What do you think? I mean, it won't be the same game, but it might be fun. She looked at me and then at Butters. Then she gave me a little smile and nodded. Will swung the door open wide and we went inside, where I introduced Butters to everyone and produced several bottles of Max Best Ale. See, here's the thing. Morgan was right. You can't win them all. But that doesn't mean that you give up. Not ever. Morgan never said that part. He was too busy living it. I closed the door behind me while life went on. This is James Marsters. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Turncoat by Jim Butcher. This program was executive produced by Patty Peruse, produced by David Rapkin, and directed by Bob Walter. Turncoat is a production of Penguin Audio, a member of Penguin Group USA, Inc. Copyright 2009, all rights reserved. The book, Turncoat, is available wherever rock books are sold. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.